Volume 2, Chapter 27 The Communication of Ideas Postal Service and the Freedom of the Press One of the most important domestic developments shared by the colonies in the first half of the 18th century was the emergence of more regular and effective channels for the sharing and dissemination of ideas. No newspapers had existed in 17th century America, which had virtually no printing of any kind. Through that century, Massachusetts was the only colony containing a press, and this was under tight censorship and government control. By the 18th century, printers had begun to spread throughout the colonies, and slowly a newspaper press emerged. Books and news still emanated mainly from England, but the colonies were slowly developing a press of their own. Unfortunately, the press was long hobbled by tight government regulation, expressed first through prior licensing, then through the law of seditious libel and parliamentary privilege. Effective control of the press was also exercised through lucrative contracts for public printing and by the valuable and ever-necessary tie-in of the press with the royal postmasters, who had the power to exclude all papers but their own from the mails. Control through the important postal service was assured at the turn of the 18th century by the compulsory monopolization of the post in the hands of the crown. Postal service began in the early American colonies as freely competitive private enterprises of varying forms and types. Letters between neighboring villages were sent by special messengers, who were often Indians. For longer journeys, letters were carried by travelers or regular merchants. Letters to or from England were carried by private ship captains, who often hung a bag in the local coffee house to receive letters for shipment. The price was generally a penny for a single letter and two pence for a double letter or parcel. Unfortunately, English precedent held out little hope for the unhampered development of a freely competitive postal service. In 1591, the Crown had issued a proclamation granting itself the monopoly of all foreign mail, and in 1609, the Crown's proclamation extended its own monopoly to all male, foreign or domestic. The purpose of this postal monopoly was quite simple, to enable governmental officials to read the letters of private citizens in order to discover and suppress treason and sedition. Thus, when the Privy Council decided in 1627 to allow merchants to operate an independent foreign post, the King's Principal Secretary of State wrote sternly, Your Lordship best knoweth what account we shall be able to give in our places of that which passeth by letters in or out of the land, if every man may convey letters under the course of merchants to whom and what place he pleaseth. How unfit a time this is to give liberty to every man to write and send what he list. And in 1657, when the Commonwealth Parliament continued the English governmental postal monopoly, the preamble of the Act stated a major objective, to discover and prevent many dangerous and bigoted designs 
which have been and are daily contrived against the peace and welfare of this commonwealth, the intelligence whereof cannot well be communicated, but by letter of script. The first government meddling in the postal service in America came as early as 1639 in Massachusetts. At that time, the government appointed Richard Fairbanks to be a receiver and deliverer of foreign letters for the price of one penny. No monopoly privilege was granted, and no one was prevented from using other postal intermediaries. The Dutch government in New Netherland went far beyond this when in 1657 it awarded itself a compulsory monopoly of receipt of foreign mail. Anyone presuming to board a vessel first to obtain his own mail was fined 30 guilders. Ship captains were fined heavily for carrying letters for anyone except the government postal monopolist. The first governmental postal service was established by Governor Lovelace in New York in 1673, primarily for carrying intergovernmental mail between New York and Boston. But the Dutch wars rendered this attempt abortive. Massachusetts and Connecticut established government post in 1673, but only for governmental and not for private letters. In 1677, Massachusetts appointed John Hayward to carry private mail, and in 1680, Hayward was granted the monopoly of the postal business in the colony. Pennsylvania established a public but not monopoly post for private mail in 1683. The specter of a single colonial monopoly was now beginning to loom on the horizon. Parliament had granted the revenues of the British Post Office to the Duke of York, and Governor Dongan of New York outlined in 1684 an ambitious scheme for a vast intercolonial system of post houses, a good part of the profit of which would also accrue to the Duke of York. The rates charged were to be three pence a letter, and more for letters carried over 100 miles. This and similar plans however, again proved abortive. None of these actions and restrictions had gone beyond one or two colonies. The true monopolization of the entire American Postal Service came in 1692, when the king granted a patent of monopoly privilege over all the American colonies for 21 years to Thomas Neal, a court favorite whom he designated as Postmaster General. Neal's agent in operating the post was Andrew Hamilton, who also served as governor of East New Jersey and who persuaded some colonial assemblies to pass legislation enforcing the monopoly. Thus, a New York law of 1692 prohibited post from competing with Hamilton's and prescribed postage rates ranging from four and one-half pence for nearby mail to twenty-four pence to more distant colonies. The enormous rise in postal rates from the days of free competition make clear how valuable the monopoly privilege was. Most of the colonies followed suit. The particularly free and independent colonies of Rhode Island and North Carolina, on the other hand, passed no enabling legislation at all. Despite the enormous rise in rates, the postal monopoly suffered net losses, for the service was slow and inefficient. 
and undoubtedly Hamilton had priced himself out of the consumer market. But typical of monopolists, his only suggested remedy was to raise the rate still further, from sixpence to forty-two pence per letter. The U.S. Postmaster General, however, incisively held that the proposed rates were much too high and that a greater revenue would be obtained by lowering rather than raising the rates, for then the easy and cheap correspondency thus encouraged people to write letters. He also charged that the colonial governments did not grant enough subsidies to the post and were insisting on free and special delivery transmissions of all governmental letters. On Neal's death, the patent of postal privilege fell partly to his creditor, Hamilton, and after Hamilton's death in 1703, the latter's creditors carried on the work. In 1707, however, the Crown refused to consider renewing the grant and instead purchased the privilege back from the owners for somewhat less than 1,700 pounds. The American Postal Service became from that point on, a crown monopoly. The crown moved immediately to raise its postal rates. In the Act of 1711, it established a range of some four pence to six pence on local mail to one shilling six pence on letters to distant colonies. The Act also appointed a royal postmaster general for the whole empire, with a deputy postmaster general stationed in New York to run the post for the English colonies on the American continent. The colonies proceeded to evade the postal monopoly and its charges more than ever before. Officially, the bulk of the colonies accepted the imposition without protest, with the honorable exception of Virginia. Virginia pointed out that the establishment of postal rates by the Crown, in effect, constituted taxation, and a crucial point in Crown-colony relations was always that England could not impose taxation on the colonies without the consent of their assemblies. The Virginia House of Burgesses, therefore, refused to grant any money for the post office and also passed laws crippling its operation. Virginia, however, was induced to join the Royal Continental Monopoly when its former governor, Alexander Spotswood became deputy postmaster general in 1732. All in all, the crown was no more able than Hamilton to make the postal service self-sufficient, and it continued to lose money. The royal postmasters soon found a peculiarly unfortunate way to use their post to enrich their personal coffers. The law made no provision for admission of newspapers to the mails, and so the various postmasters adopted the custom of publishing their own newspapers, circulating them in the mails, and prohibiting the post riders from delivering any competing papers. The effect on freedom of the press may well be imagined, not that the content of the press was free anyway, Indeed, the first newspaper in America, the Boston Public Occurrences, had been issued by Benjamin Harris in 1690 and was suppressed by the governor and council after the first issue for being critical of the war being prosecuted against France. The excuse was that the paper was unlicensed and therefore illegal. A licensing requirement for all publications had long been in effect in Massachusetts, 
and had effectively prevented the publication of seditious literature for over 20 years. The first continuous newspaper in the colonies was the Boston Newsletter, a weekly founded in 1704 by Boston postmaster John Campbell. Campbell's paper, which kept carefully away from political criticism, was warmly approved and assisted by the Massachusetts authorities, by whom it was licensed despite the ending of press licensing in the mother country in 1695. Campbell asked for and obtained several governmental subventions for his newsletter. His editorial policies were in keeping with this cozy relationship. When the tyrannical and widely hated ex-governor Joseph Dudley died in 1720, the newsletter wildly exalted the deceased as the glory of his country, early its darling, always its ornament, and in his age its crown. It was not until 1758, upon orders of Benjamin Franklin, deputy postmaster general for the colonies, that the repressive system of prohibiting the mails to the postmaster's competitors was ended, and the post was ordered to accept all newspapers at a uniform rate. John Campbell's Toadine Weekly remained the sole newspaper in the colonies until about 1720, around which year two new papers were opened in Boston. One was the Boston Gazette, begun by Campbell's successor as postmaster and continued in turn by each succeeding postal officer. Campbell's old newsletter, however, continued to be as fawning as the official organ of the royal postmaster. On the other hand, the other New Boston newspaper, the New England Courant, begun by Benjamin Franklin's older brother James, was a hard-hitting, critical, and unlicensed publication. The Franklins soon lined up the current with the lower house against tyrannical intrusions by the governor and the council. The current could remain unlicensed because in the spring of 1721, Governor Shute had urged the legislature to pass a law for censorship through licensing of the press. The council had approved it, but the lower house had quickly rejected the bill. James Franklin directed much of his withering fire against the venerable despot, the Reverend Increase Mather. After Mather's standard invocation of the judgment of God failed to deter Franklin even a little, the old minister warned the public against the wicked paper edited by Children of the Old Serpent. Mather wistfully recalled that in the old days, the civil government would have taken an effectual course to suppress such a cursed libel, which, if be not done, I am afraid that some awful judgment will come upon this land, and the wrath of God will arise, and there will be no remedy. But this time Mather faced a foe who hit back as effectively as he received. It must have been liberating indeed for the Massachusetts citizenry merely to read in the current that Mather was a reverend scribbler who quarrels with his neighbors because they do not look and think just as he would have them. The Assembly's rejection of licensing did not mean, however, that the lower house was at all libertarian. Indeed, the house's main reason for rejection was fear 
of aggrandizing executive power over the press at its own expense. Thus, when James Franklin criticized the government for laxity in pursuit of pirates in the summer of 1722, both houses censored Franklin and summarily imprisoned him for a month on the simple order of the Speaker. The Assembly continued to refuse to pass a press licensing bill, but in early 1723, the current again angered the government. Both houses of the general court then censored the paper and ordered the prohibition of Franklin's further publishing of the current. Franklin continued to publish the paper without a license and courageously continued to attack the government. The council tried to arrest him for contempt, but Franklin cleverly managed to evade the legislative order by naming his younger brother Benjamin, publisher of the paper and the grand jury failed to indict. The Franklin case ended prior censorship and licensing of the press in Massachusetts. This did not mean that the press was now free. As in all the other colonies, it was subject, albeit after publication, to the vague and pernicious common law doctrine of seditious libel, affecting virtually any criticism of the government and to the unlimited parliamentary privilege of a legislature to arrest and punish its critics. Of these, the most pernicious and unchecked was the power of the legislature. As we have seen in the Franklin case, the legislature needed only to vote its punishment. It had no need for a non-governmental expression of the people, such as a grand jury to indict or a petty jury to convict. In the colonies, the assembly, as well as the governor and council, could and did summon and invoke criminal penalties against anyone who it decided had impeached its behavior, or had traduced its honor or affronted its dignity. These were all seditious scandals against the government, and punishable as a breach of parliamentary privilege. That under these twin engines of oppression, the press was still not free in Massachusetts, was dramatically illustrated the following year in the case of the Reverend John Checkley, the leading Anglican minister in Massachusetts. In 1719, Checkley had written a tract criticizing Calvinist doctrines. With the governor still exercising prior censorship, Checkley was prevented from publishing his essay. Returning from England in 1724 with a printed stock of his book, Checkley was denounced by the council for vile and scandalous passages reflecting on the Puritan ministers of the gospel established in this province and denying their sacred function and the holy ordinances of religion as administered by them. The council ordered the attorney general to try Checkley, who was convicted of seditious libel, fined 50 pounds, and bonded for future good behavior. There were virtually no intrusions on freedom of the press in Massachusetts in the next two decades, but only because this freedom was not exercised very vigorously. After Franklin discontinued the current in 1726, the newspapers settled down to being timid sheets with no editorial viewpoint of their own. The boldest publisher was Thomas Fleet, publisher of the Boston Evening Post, Fleet maintained the general practice of giving equal hearing to both sides of every controversial question, 
but more vigorously and trenchantly than did his competitors. For daring to publish unorthodox opinions, however, the ministers denounced Fleet and urged the magistrates to suppress the Evening Post as a dangerous engine, a sink of sedition, error, and heresy. In the spring of 1742, Fleet published an item critical of Britain's conduct of the war with Spain, and the council immediately ordered prosecution for libel against the crown. Fleet was able to avoid prosecution, but only by proving the truth of the item in question. Thus, newspapers were alerted to the narrow bounds within which they could engage in political comment. In the fall of 1754, the Massachusetts Lower House demonstrated its power to punish criticism as a supposed breach of its privileges. A pamphlet was anonymously written and published satirizing debates in the House on an unpopular tax bill. The Lower House angrily denounced the humorous piece as a false, scandalous libel, ordered the hangman to burn the pamphlet publicly, and to drag before it Daniel Fowle, suspected of doing the printing. Fowle was induced to confess his deed and to implicate his brother as well as Royal Tyler, a prominent merchant, as the author. Fowle did not, however, beg mercy from the lower house, and he was summarily thrown into prison, incommunicado, on the mere charge of suspicion, and prevented from writing to his wife. After five days of such imprisonment under foul conditions, the lower house bitterly reprimanded Fowle for publishing seditious libel and sent him back to his cell until he could pay the cost of the case. Tyler, in the meanwhile, had demanded a lawyer, and when this was denied him by the house, refused to incriminate himself by answering any questions. He was thrown into jail without bail, but was suddenly released after two days, along with Fowle's apprentice. After six days in prison, Fowle himself was released to visit his sick wife. The lower house finally bowed to an upsurge of public sympathy for the printer and did not resume its harassments. Daniel Fowle, outraged at the injustice of the whole affair, wrote a pamphlet about the case, A Total Eclipse of Liberty, 1755, and then bravely proceeded to sue the Speaker of the House, the House's messenger, and its jailkeeper for illegal imprisonment. But the inferior and superior courts ruled against the unfortunate foul. Government officials have rarely been liable for any deed done in their official capacity, these official duties apparently being enough to invoke a double standard of justice and criminality, one for ordinary citizens and the other for government officials. The best-known and most highly touted case concerning freedom of the press in the colonies was the trial of John Peter Zenger in New York. Historians have been prone to wild exaggeration of the importance and significance of the Zenger case. A typical example, the case was a monument to freedom and established the freedom of the press in North America. Actually, it did nothing of the sort. Before the Zenger case, there was little freedom to speak or publish criticism of the government. In the early 18th century, the main enemy of freedom of criticism was the assembly. 
Between 1706 and 1720, the New York Assembly prosecuted four such cases, one of which involved the mass arrest of nine people and another of 17 grand jurors for seditious remarks about the New York Assembly. As for the press, the first newspaper in New York was the New York Gazette, founded in 1725. The only paper in the colony, the Gazette, was the licensed and pampered organ of the government, its editor William Bradford also serving as the official public printer. The arrival in 1732 of William Cosby as governor of New York soon set off a bitter factional dispute in the politics of the province. The historical zealots for Zenger have grandiloquently referred to the opposition to Cosby as the popular party. In reality, the dispute was strictly between two factions of the landed oligarchy, and the trouble was raised over extremely petty issues. The opposition was headed by such oligarchs as Lewis Morris, the Livingstons, and the Stevensons, while the Cosby faction was led by Delancey and Phillips. There were here no great liberal issues or principled liberal opposition. To advance their cause, the Morris faction established the New York Weekly Journal in 1733, with the learned lawyer James Alexander as its editor and John Peter Zenger of Palatine, German descent, as printer. While the Morris faction was not rooted in vital issues, the slashing, bitter nature of the weekly journal's attacks on the administration was in itself a bracing exercise of the freedom of the press in an America that badly needed such an example. Furthermore, the corollary exposés of Cosby's tyrannies and misdeeds had a liberal effect, even though not so intended by the authors. The articles were anonymous and written by various members of the Morris faction. Cosby soon decided to strike back by moving against the vulnerable Zenger. Twice he tried to obtain a grand jury indictment for seditious libel, and twice the jury refused. He then ordered the public burning of the journal, and on November 17, 1734, the governor and council ordered the summary arrest of Zenger, on the charge of seditious libel. Avoiding the need for a grand jury indictment, the government placed the bail at the enormous sum of 400 pounds, forcing Zenger to remain in prison for nine months before coming to trial. Furthermore, for protesting Cosby's packing of the court with the two leading members of his faction, Delancey and Phillips, the selfsame court summarily disbarred his lawyers James Alexander and William Smith. The Morris faction now secured the venerable Pennsylvania lawyer Andrew Hamilton, a stalwart of the proprietary party and patron of Benjamin Franklin, to argue Zenger's case. The struggle against Cosby was not at root a popular or liberal affair, but in the Zenger case it became transformed, for the already unpopular Cosby was now generally hated and the popular sympathies were all with the defendant. On August 4, 1735, Andrew Hamilton won acquittal of Zenger by the trial jury. Two things were significant about this decision. First, Hamilton was able to persuade the jury to broaden its jurisdiction to cover the law as well as the facts. 
The customary practice insisted on by the court had been to limit the jury severely to deciding whether or not an item had been published by the defendant. It was then supposed to be the judge's role to decide whether the item was indeed libelous. Now Hamilton persuaded the jury to broaden its powers so as to decide the guilt or innocence of the defendant on the charge. Secondly, Hamilton defended the journal's articles on the ground that they were true, and thus was able to establish a precedent for truth as a valid defense against seditious libel. This contrasted to the earlier despotic practice that the greater the truth, the greater the libel. Since then, government was put into greater public disrepute. These were legal advances, to be sure, but they hardly justify the paeans of praise that have been delivered for the Zenger decision. The important point is that the root evil, the common law of seditious libel, remained virtually intact. The jury is a protection against government judges, to be sure, but juries too can be despotic and rule against the liberty of the person. And truth as a defense is a very shaky read, for in political criticism there is no simple and precise method of demanding truth. If X prints the charge that Y is a tyrant, is this truth? And is a jury qualified to determine its truth? Should it have the power to do so? James Alexander, the legal mastermind of the Zenger defense, along with Andrew Hamilton, had conceded that to infuse into the minds of the people an ill opinion of a just administration is a crime that deserves no mercy. But how could a defendant be expected to prove the truth of the injustice of an administration or a jury to decide? For here is a wide path indeed for a despotically inclined jury, and juries have proved to be guardians of freedom only if the particular defendant happens to have been supported by public opinion, as in the Zenger case. Moreover, allowing each jury to decide the law in each particular case prevents the formation of a uniform law code so essential to the orderly administration of justice. Each jury would then be deciding the law of the case on its arbitrary whim, and no citizen could know in advance whether his utterances or writings would be libelous or not. Furthermore, the Zenger case did not establish either of its two major contentions, narrow as they were, in English or in American law. English law did not accept the power of juries to judge guilt until 1792 or truth as a defense until 1843. In America, the Chief Justice of New York was still maintaining that truth did not constitute a defense against seditious libel as late as 1804. Finally, perhaps the most important reason for belittling the importance generally given to the Zanger case is the fact that royal judges were not the major threats to freedom of the press in the colonial era. The main threat was the use of parliamentary privilege by which the assembly or the governor and council tried and punished the seditious libeler without benefit of jury. 
Trials for seditious libel at court were few and far between in the colonial period. It was, in fact, the very rarity of the phenomenon that gave the Zenger case its fame. Far more important were the actions of the legislature. As Dean Levy writes, the traditionally maligned judges were virtually angels of self-restraint when compared with the intolerance of community opinion, the tyranny of governors, acting in a quasi-judicial capacity with their councils, and especially the popularly elected assembly. That the law bore down so harshly on verbal crimes in colonial America was the result of inquisitorial propensities of the non-judicial branches which vied with each other in ferreting out slights on the government. The law of seditious libel was enforced in America chiefly by the provincial legislatures exercising their power of punishing alleged breaches of parliamentary privilege. The common law courts gathered a very few seditious scalps and lost as many to acquittals, but the assemblies, like the House of Commons, which they emulated, needing no grand jury to indict and no pettit jury to convict, racked up a far larger score. The Zenger case thus made virtually no impact on the legislative oppression of the press, even in New York, let alone in the other colonies. Furthermore, from 1745 on, the assembly consistently prohibited the printing of the votes or debates of the legislature without prior authorization by the speaker. Thus, even prior censorship on publication continued throughout the colonial period in the vital field of information on the proceedings of the legislature. In 1753, the printer Hugh Gain published the king's instructions to the new governor of New York, as well as the latter's speech to the assembly. Immediately, the assembly summoned Gain and demanded to know how he dared print any part of the proceedings without license or prior approval. Humbly abasing himself, the startled Gain was released by the assembly, but only after it forced him to pay the cost of the case. A more serious case occurred in 1756, when James Parker published an article on the depressed conditions of the country in his New York Gazette. The Assembly took this to be a grave reflection on itself and summarily voted Parker and his assistant to be guilty of high misdemeanor and contempt of authority. Seized and hauled into the Assembly, the frightened Parker and his aide abjectly confessed their guilt and begged pardon and showed their good faith by informing on the Reverend Hezekiah Watkins of Newburgh as author of the offending article. Despite their abasement, the editors were put into jail for a week by the assembly, which also moved, of course, for the immediate arrest of the unfortunate minister. The Reverend Mr. Watkins proved to be no more heroic than his editors, begging forgiveness for his misplaced zeal. He, too, was jailed by the assembly. Watkins was discharged the next day, but only after being forced to pay the costs of his case. Two years later, Samuel Townsend, Justice of the Peace in Queens County, sent a petition to the Speaker of the Lower House 
asking for relief for some refugees stationed on Long Island. The Speaker denounced Townsend's letter as insolent, and the Assembly then promptly ordered his appearance. When Townsend bravely failed to heed the summons, he was cited for contempt, seized, and hauled before the Assembly. Townsend surprisingly failed to show the usual abject humility. The enraged assembly voted him clearly guilty of a high misdemeanor and most daring insult and threw him into prison. In this atmosphere, Townsend had ample opportunity to reflect on the error of his ways and soon sent the House a profound apology and a promise to avoid all such misconduct in the future. The assembly then graciously released Judge Townsend. It is certainly significant that of the hapless defendants appearing before the New York Assembly twenty years after Zenger, none bothered to justify himself on the basis of liberty of the press. Editor James Parker, battling for his own conception of freedom of the press in 1759, summoned up the most enlightened of American opinion. Liberty truly reigns, wrote Parker, where every one hath the privilege of declaring his sentiments upon all topics with the utmost freedom, provided he does it with proper decency and a just regard to the laws. And the laws, let it not be forgotten, included punishment of seditious libel and breach of parliamentary privilege. Indicative of more reactionary opinion was an editorial in 1753 by a trio of prominent new young New York lawyers and friends of Parker. These lawyers, William Livingston, John Moran Scott, and William Smith, radical Republicans all, averred that whatever a printer prostitutes his art by the publication of anything injurious to his country, it is criminal. It is high treason against the state. Treason, of course, constituted a capital crime, in contrast to the mere misdemeanor involved in seditious libel. Thus, far from the Zenger case, establishing freedom of the press, in either thought or action, we find New York opinion a generation later backsliding to the pre-Zenger status quo. James Alexander's narrow advance for the freedom of the press turned out to be an isolated spark rather than the spearhead of a mighty move forward. During the remainder of the colonial period, only Thomas Bolin, in 1766, an eminent lawyer in Massachusetts, reached the modest height of Alexander's devotion to freedom of the press. Nor were the points pressed by the Zenger defense original, as some writers have stated. The principle of truth as a defense against libel was taken by Alexander from the famous Cato's letters written in the early 1720s by two leading English liberals, John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon. The argument that the jury should decide the law, as well as the facts in seditious libel, was explicitly put forward in 1692 by William Bradford, defendant in the first criminal trial for seditious libel in the colonies. Bradford, the first printer to work in Pennsylvania, had been a member of the Keith faction of dissident Quakers, and for printing Keithian tracts he was charged with seditious libel. Moreover, Bradford's trial judge was convinced by his argument 
and so instructed the jury, which deadlocked on the issue. Bradford's successful example was followed four years later in Massachusetts by Thomas Maul, a Quaker merchant who had published a book attacking tyranny in Massachusetts Bay. Maul also succeeded and was acquitted by the jury, but on religious rather than on freedom of the press grounds. The case of William Bradford highlights an ironic aspect of the Zenger affair. Bradford was soon appointed royal printer by Governor Fletcher of New York, who at that time was briefly in control of Pennsylvania. Bradford's minimal devotion to freedom of the press, despite his own experiences, is shown by his editorship of the very fawning and licensed New York Gazette, against which Zenger and his backers were rebelling. Bradford's reaction to the arrest of Zenger was characteristic. He condemned the defendant for publishing pieces tending to set the province in a flame and to raise sedition and tumults. A further irony is the earlier role of the presumed champion of freedom of the press, Andrew Hamilton. In 1719, Bradford's son, Andrew, founded the first paper in Philadelphia, the American Weekly Mercury. Three years later, the council hauled young Bradford before it to answer the charge of publishing a pamphlet and article criticizing the government. Bradford not only humbly apologized, but treacherously tried to place responsibility for the printing on his assistance. The governor and council, not yet mollified, ordered Bradford that he must not for the future presume to publish anything relating or concerning the affairs of this government or the government of any other of His Majesty's colonies without the permission of the governor or secretary of the province. Such was the state of freedom of the press in colonial Pennsylvania. The ironic twist is the fact that one of the councillors laying down this appalling and despotic order was none other than Andrew Hamilton. As it happened, Andrew Bradford was again in trouble in 1729 when his Mercury published a letter critical of the British government. The Council of Pennsylvania denounced the letter as a wicked and seditious libel. Bradford was jailed and his home and shop searched. Characteristically, Bradford saved himself by pleading innocence and naming the author as a Reverend Mr. Kimball of Long Island. Bradford was recommitted to jail for his sins, but was finally released for his cooperative attitude. Again, it is interesting to note that the recorder of the council and one of the major persecutors of Bradford was Andrew Hamilton. Hamilton, moreover, was able to use the young and ambitious Benjamin Franklin to pursue a vendetta against Bradford. By aiding Franklin's new Pennsylvania Gazette against the rival Mercury and by giving Bradford's coveted public printing contract to his young protege. It is no surprise that in this intercolonial struggle of factions, Andrew Bradford should join his father in taking a leading role in approving the persecution of Zenger. Bradford's acid stricture against Hamilton that a single attempt on the side of liberty hardly overweighed Hamilton's long record of hostility to a free press 
is not refuted by the Bradford's own lack of consistent dedication to the libertarian cause. Neither did the Zenger case establish freedom of the press in the colonies beyond New York. We have already seen its lack of influence in Massachusetts. In 1758, the Quaker-run Pennsylvania Assembly decided to take revenge on its old enemy, the Reverend William Smith, an Anglican, a leader of the proprietary party, and the head of the University of Pennsylvania. Smith was an outstanding advocate of war against the French, and furthermore had proposed disenfranchising the Quakers. Smith's future father-in-law, Judge William Moore, had been investigated in late 1757 for conduct of his office. The judge's defense was printed in Smith's German-language newspaper, as well as in other papers, and the assembly used this as an excuse to arrest Smith and Moore for criminal libel of itself. Moore was imprisoned for five days and convicted by the assembly for false, scandalous, virulent, and seditious libel of itself. The public hangman was ordered to burn the publication and the sheriff to keep him in jail indefinitely and to ignore any writs of habeas corpus. After this act of high-handed despotism, the assembly turned its tender ministrations to the Reverend Mr. Smith. Smith was now charged with abetting the publication of the vicious libel by Moore. The assembly took the precaution of voting Smith's guilt by a large majority even before his so-called trial began, thereby launching the fascinating procedure of deciding upon the verdict before the trial was underway. The imprisoned Smith was denied bail, and the assembly took the further pretrial precaution of not permitting Smith either to dispute its authority or to argue that Moore's article was not a libel. Witnesses against Smith and Moore were procured by intimidation. Smith's friend, Dr. Phineas Bond, first refused to answer questions against Smith. He was thereupon found guilty of high contempt by the assembly and thrown into jail for an indefinite period. After a few hours of this treatment, Bond changed his mind and gave testimony along with other chastened friends of Smith. Anthony Armbruster, printer of the German paper involved, also proved an easy mark for the assembly. At first, refusing to answer certain questions, Armbruster was committed to jail indefinitely. After one day, he begged the assembly's pardon and answered all of its questions. The trial of Smith, with the assembly functioning as prosecutor, judge, and jury, with its verdict already pronounced, proceeded to its foregone conclusion. Smith was denied the privilege of appeal to the king and was sentenced to jail until he should purge himself of his crime by humble submissions and confession of error. Smith proved a tougher nut to crack than the witnesses. He rose to protest his innocence and, striking his hand upon his breast, assured them no punishment they could inflict would be half so terrible to him as the suffering his tongue to give his heart the lie. Smith also had the courage and the vision to invoke, at least fleetingly, the freedom of the press as part of his defense. 
Smith's noble and dramatic speech moved several people in the audience to burst into applause. They were, of course, promptly arrested and only released after being forced to beg the pardon of the mighty assembly. As for Smith, he was returned to jail for an indefinite term, and the sheriff was again ordered to disregard any writs of habeas corpus. The embattled Smith and more petitioned the chief justice and the governor for habeas corpus writs, but the highest court ruled that while the assembly sat in session, its power to punish for breach of privilege was absolute. Smith and Moore were only released when the assembly was recessed in three months' time, but they were arrested again in three weeks when the assembly reconvened. Fortunately, the assembly adjourned for the summer, and the hapless prisoners were again released. But, on meeting again in the fall, the assembly yet again ordered the arrest of Smith and Moore. This time the two victims had wisely turned fugitives and could not be found. In hiding, Moore courageously published another attack on the assembly. Once again a new session of the assembly reordered his and Smith's arrest, but Smith had fled to England to appeal to the crown, while the assembly continued to seek the elusive Moore. In England, Smith's battle against the despotism of the assembly was strenuously opposed by that great fighter for freedom, Benjamin Franklin, English agent for the assembly. Finally, however, the Privy Council issued its ruling in 1759. It decided that Moore's criticism had indeed been a libel, thus continuing the law of seditious libel in full force, but ruled that the assembly had no power to imprison for breach of privilege or to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. Their long ordeal over, Smith and Moore were finally allowed to return to Philadelphia. Future assemblies, sad to say, paid little attention to the Crown's attempt to check their power to imprison the seditious. The situation was about the same in the other colonies. The Rhode Island legislature and the New Hampshire assembly each imprisoned a critic in the mid-1750s. If there were fewer cases in the South, it was only because the Southern press was more passive and more under government control. Virginia had no newspapers until 1733, and the government newspaper enjoyed a monopoly in the colony until as late as 1766. The Carolinas and Georgia came to enjoy the benefits of printing and of a non-government press even earlier. Clearly, there was little chance for popular opposition to the government to develop in the southern colonies. Freedom of speech was, of course, subject to the same severe restraints for seditious libel as was expression in the press. The record of persecution of opinion in the 17th century included the cases of Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson and the Baptist and the Quakers. In 1711, Governor Spotswood of Virginia issued an order threatening loss of life or limb or imprisonment to anyone daring to disseminate seditious principles in the province. The Virginia Council persecuted a justice of the peace in 1714 for many seditious speeches, 
and a minister six years later for false and scandalous speeches against the crown. In 1758, the Virginia House of Burgesses arrested the Reverend Jacob Rowe, professor of philosophy at the College of William and Mary, for a scandalous and malicious criticism of itself at a private party. Rowe was forced to beg the House's pardon and to pay its cost in the case. There were few common law prosecutions for seditious libel, but as we have seen, This did not mean that freedom of expression in 18th century America was well protected. In fact, its parlous state is indicated by the common law trial in 1723 of two Pennsylvanians for uttering criticisms of the king. Upon conviction, the defendant who refused to confess his guilt was sentenced to the pillory, and on two successive days was tied to a cart's tail and dragged around the city, whipped forty-one times, and then imprisoned until he could pay the cost of prosecuting him. The trial judge, Robert Ashton, instructed the jury herewith, It is greatly impudent and presumptuous for private persons to meddle with matters of so high a nature and it will be impossible to preserve the peace unless subjects will quietly submit themselves to those whom providence has placed over them. What severity can be too harsh for those who thus despise dominions and speak evil of dignitaries? Volume 2, Chapter 28 Religious Trends in the Colonies In the 18th century, an established church existed in most of the colonies. However, there was a fair amount of religious liberty, except for Roman Catholics, apart from the existence of the discriminatory establishment. The first years of the century saw a successful royal drive by liberal use of chicanery to impose an Anglican establishment on the majority of dissenters of North Carolina and South Carolina. Maryland had also been recently saddled with an Anglican establishment, and Virginia had long had a state church. When Georgia was founded, it too acquired an Anglican establishment. Never was the Anglican church able to take firm root in these colonies, however, especially in dissident North Carolina. Ministerial pay was sparse, and control was firmly exercised by the local vestries rather than by the church in Great Britain. Attempts to impose an Anglican establishment on New York and New Jersey were unsuccessful. Local vestries in the former colony persisted in appointing Protestant ministers of other denominations, while the New Jersey Assembly, with a heavy non-Anglican majority, refused to pass an establishment law. Massachusetts and New Hampshire suffered a Puritan congregational establishment, while Connecticut's established church was essentially Puritan Presbyterian. Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, on the other hand, were completely free of an established church. Roman Catholics were a small but uniformly persecuted minority. This despite the fact that there were virtually no Catholics except in Maryland, among the old Calvert aristocracy, and among the Pennsylvania Germans. 
They were excluded from most of the provinces, and any suspected Catholic was treated with hate and fear as a menace to society, a subversive and a probable agent of France or Spain. By the first decades of the 18th century, religion, though still established, had lost its commanding power in society and its practitioners their old dogmatic zeal. The Puritan theocracy gradually but steadily dissolved during the latter part of the 17th century. Some of the reasons why Puritan zeal flagged were the debilitating effects of the growth of culture and worldly cosmopolitanism on it, plus the liberal trends emerging from within the Puritan church to become powerful in Harvard College, the very training ground of Massachusetts Puritanism. The liberal Puritans, incidentally, used the Salem witch hunt effectively as an object lesson of the consequences of unchecked religious superstition and frenzy. In the southern colonies, the Anglican establishment was largely a formal shell behind which religion, per se, had very little impact on the people. The Virginia squire, for example, was naturally and habitually a churchgoer and vestryman, but far more for institutional and social than for deeply religious reasons. The Anglican ministry had little influence in the southern colonies, even though the vestry in the state church was the basic unit of local government. In fact, there is generally a clearly discernible correlation between the governmental perquisite of an establishment and the dwindling of religious zeal in the society. Even in dedicated Pennsylvania, as we have seen, recently intense Quaker zeal faded rather rapidly, and a more worldly and less principled Quaker generation replaced the old holy experiment. Moreover, in Pennsylvania, the Quakers were by mid-century far outnumbered by other creeds. As for the Ulster Scott frontiersmen, they were almost devoid of ministers during much of this period, hence religious activity slackened greatly in that numerous group. The growing liberalization of the churches was also a function of the new spirit abroad in Europe. The great rationalist movement we know now as the Enlightenment. The intellectual emphasis in England was shifting from a Calvinist preoccupation with pure faith, divine revelation, and the depravity of man, to an Enlightenment belief in the supremacy of man's reason and in the possibility of his goodness and his progress. The Enlightenment emphasis was on individual liberty, including the sphere of religion. Isaac Newton's great achievement in the late 17th century gave a powerful impetus, despite the great physicist's own personal inclination, to the growth of rationalism. Here was a mighty achievement of man using his reason to uncover the hitherto hidden and mysterious laws of nature. For the 18th century, Newton's achievement had an enormously liberating impact. As the great poet Alexander Pope celebrated, Nature and nature's law lay hidden in night. God said, Let Newton be, and all was light. 
and in America, William Livingston, future governor of New Jersey, hailed the immortal Newton, whose illustrious name will shine on records of eternal fame. Even the Reverend Cotton Mather incurred the distrust of such hard-shell Puritans as Samuel Sewell in 1714 by accepting the Copernican system. Clearly, even Mather was displaying a softness toward modern trends. Newton's works graced libraries and private bookshelves throughout colonial America. Also very popular in America was John Locke's late 17th century essay concerning human understanding, which set forth an empiricist philosophy and psychology. The works of both Newton and Locke contributed to a more rationalist and liberal view of religion. While liberalism made great strides in New England, it had by no means completely conquered Puritanism, or even Harvard, by the end of the first third of the 18th century. Despite the great fears of the Orthodox that liberal Arminian doctrines were spreading in New England, there were few Arminian ministers and no Arminian works had yet been published in America. Arminians were followers of the Dutch liberal theologian Jacobus Arminius, 1560-1609, through 1609, who stressed the moral freedom and responsibility of the individual to achieve salvation partly by his own merits. Ensconced in the theology chair at Harvard was the impeccably orthodox Reverend Edward Wigglesworth, and at Marlborough the Reverend Benjamin Kent was forced out of the ministry for his advanced liberal views. Still, by the end of the first third of the 18th century, liberalism was advancing, and religion was definitely declining as a vital force in the lives of the people. Volume 2, Chapter 29, The Great Awakening Into this relaxing atmosphere came a great reaction, which has become known in rather loaded terms as the Great Awakening. Since the Great Awakening was certainly a people's movement, it has been dubbed as necessarily a progressive force by Marxist and neo-Marxist historians, but it was nothing of the sort. The Great Awakening was a profoundly reactionary counterblow to the emergence of a liberal and more rational and cosmopolitan religious atmosphere. It set itself determinedly against all that was enlightened and constituted an attempt to return to the pure Calvinism of the previous century. This is particularly true of the form taken by the Great Awakening in New England, where the religious revival had its most eminent leader. The founder of the Great Awakening in New England was the Reverend Jonathan Edwards, minister of the important inland town of Northampton, Massachusetts. Born in Connecticut, young Edwards, who came from a long line of Puritan ministers on both his father's side and his mother's, was graduated from and taught at Yale, the center of Puritan orthodoxy. He then took up his post at Northampton in 1727. Edwards was horrified 
to find Northampton happily filled with a most unpuritan addiction to mirth and jollity, including the frequenting of taverns. Edwards began to thunder at these modern corruptions and moved on to rail at the rising menace of Arminianism and its papist view that salvation was a function of a man's free will and his consequent good works. What was happening to the good old creed of their fathers, of the depravity of man, of the predestination of the elect, of reliance on faith and not on reason? Was the pervasive Calvinist fear of hellfire and damnation to be replaced by the modern namby-pamby view that God is love? To the sinners, and who is not a sinner, Edwards warned, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as anyone holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. It is possible to pinpoint the time when the rapidly growing influence of this oratory reached a crisis and accelerated and burst into flame. December 1734 Religious concerns swept the people of Northampton. Other discourse, then, of the things of religion would scarcely be tolerated in any company. In an orgy of proclaiming their repentance, over three hundred people of Northampton soon professed conversion to the true faith. Children formed prayer groups to repent the monstrousness of their sins, and Edward's own uncle committed suicide in remorse. The intense religious excitement faded in Northampton by the spring, but the precedent had been set, and the revivals of the Great Awakening spread to other towns in the colonies. Apart from the content of the creed, the mechanism and strategy of the revival movement was profoundly reactionary. In contrast to the older Calvinism, it functioned by whipping up the emotions of the masses rather than by serving or convincing their intellect. With emotional frenzy and hysteria suspending sober and rational conviction, the leaders of the revivals soon reached the point of making this frenzy the acid test of a person's true Christianity. A man, even a minister of Christ, was still a sinner unless he too had been born again and experienced conversion by emotional hysteria. Meanwhile, the Great Awakening had begun independently among Calvinists in New Jersey. It was launched there by the Reverend Theodore J. Frelinghuysen of the Dutch Reformed Church. Frelinghuysen arrived in New Jersey from Holland in 1720 and immediately began an evangelistic revivalism, attacking the sobriety and intellectuality of Dutch Reformed Orthodoxy. The new revivalism soon split the Dutch churches into pro- and anti-Frelinghuysen factions, which were battling furiously by 1723. In three more years, Frelinghuysen's converts were increasing and spreading beyond New Jersey. A particularly important convert was the Reverend Gilbert Tennant, 
a young English-speaking Presbyterian who took up the task of spreading the revival among Presbyterians in New Jersey. Tennant and his ministerial brothers soon controlled the New Brunswick Presbytery of central New Jersey, and emotional revivalism spread throughout rural New Jersey and to Newark and on to Long Island and Pennsylvania. The revival encountered bitter opposition among the Presbyterian ministry, angry at the emotionalism of the new movement. The various trends of the revival movement were soon fused into a great awakening by the first of the continental tours of the famous English evangelical preacher, the Reverend George Whitefield. Young Whitefield was one of the first members of the small holy club at Oxford University, which stressed evangelical preaching to the masses and constituted the first of the Methodists. Graduated from Oxford in 1736, Whitefield was ordained an Anglican priest and soon won fame as by far the most popular and crowd-pleasing evangelist of the day. It was soon to become evident, however, that Whitefield was not a true Methodist, for while he and John Wesley used similar evangelical methods, Wesley was at once a liberal believer in free will and in more rigorous observation of the Anglican rite, while Whitefield cared little for ritual and a great deal for Calvinist orthodoxy. Whitefield and his followers soon broke off to form the Calvinistic Methodist. Whitefield's important tour of America took place in 1739 and 1740 as he crisscrossed the colonies, drawing enormous crowds, arousing great enthusiasm, and cementing the whole revival movement. Harvard students were roused and converted en masse, and even the cynical Benjamin Franklin was greatly impressed. In contrast, the brilliant young liberal Jonathan Mayhew, studying for the ministry at Harvard, wrote bitterly of Whitefield's largely subliterate following. As for himself, I heard him, Whitefield, once, and it was as low, confused, puerile, conceited, ill-natured, enthusiastic a performance as I ever heard. Whitefield polarized the religious structure of the colonies by thundering his attacks against the dominant clergy and their parishioners. All too many historians have been misled into treating this movement as a great lower-class protest against the wealthy and the dominant classes. An attack and a protest it was, but of what kind? Not any sort of egalitarian or Marxist rallying cry, but a profoundly reactionary and demagogic appeal to the masses against the liberalism, cosmopolitanism, intellectualism, and sobriety of the religion of the day. In short, this was a cry of mystical religious fundamentalism against the trappings of civilization that had begun to emerge in America. Whitefield denounced Christians and their ministers for not having experienced their Christianity in an emotional frenzy. He deplored colleges such as Harvard for being seedbeds of liberalism. He vilified the luxuries of the rich. That this cry appealed to the lower classes 
indeed to many people of all classes, is beside the point. This was a religious and not an economic class movement. Whitefield's triumphal tour introduced him to his admiring allies, Tennant and Edwards. Tennant was moved to level a bitter attack on the unconverted ministry, and to the applause of Whitefield and other evangelists, joined in trying to weed out of Christianity all those ministers who did not support the revival movement. Whitefield's preaching in Northampton brought a dramatic new upsurge of revivalism to New England. During early 1741, Edwards and other ministers became itinerant evangelists throughout New England, arousing demonstrations of frenzy and huge crowds. Edwards warned of sinners in the hands of an angry God, and the Reverend James Davenport from Long Island denounced the bulk of the Massachusetts ministry as unconverted and leading their people blindfold to hell. These bitter attacks, of course, provoked a counter-movement in the churches. The reaction, as well as the attacks, spread through various denominations. As we have seen, Whitefield paid no attention to the Anglican creed and made his appeal to all Calvinists. The polarization in Massachusetts and New England especially highlights the nature of the Great Awakening itself. For the opposition to the Great Awakening consisted of two disparate groups. The conservatives, like the Reverend Mr. Wigglesworth, aghast at the emotionalism and anti-intellectualism of the revival, and the liberals, headed by the Reverend Charles Chauncey of the First Church of Boston, who opposed virtually anything the Awakening stood for. The criticisms of the two groups unsurprisingly differed. Wigglesworth centered his attack on the disorderly individuality of the revival movement, whereas Chauncey, in his Seasonable Thoughts on the State of Religion in New England, 1743, concentrated on its fundamentalist emotionalism. By the very nature of polarization, it was inevitable that the most thoroughgoing group of critics, the liberals, should take the lead in attacking the Great Awakening. Epitomizing the liberal, rationalist attack on the Awakening in the colonies was this statement by Philarites in the South Carolina Gazette. As none but rational creatures are capable of religion, so there is no true religion but in the use of reason. If we do not make it our own by understanding the reasons for it, we offer to God the sacrifice of fools in which he has no pleasure. The congregational ministry soon split into the New Lights, who joined in the Awakening, and the Old Lights, who opposed it. The majority of the Massachusetts Ministerial Convention condemned the revival for its errors and disorders, while in Connecticut the General Convocation of the Established Ministry induced the legislature to prohibit itinerant preaching. Throughout New England, Revivalists were splitting from their congregations and forming separate churches to become known generally as separatist. Emotions, particularly frenzied emotions, are notoriously fleeting. 
and the Old Light counterattack was soon able to crush the New Light movement. Even in Northampton, where not a single new member joined the church from 1744 to 1748, Whitefield's second tour of New England in 1744 was hardly triumphal. Although he attracted thousands, he was generally rebuffed and denounced by ministerial associations and by Yale as well as Harvard. Ironically, Jonathan Edwards was even ousted from his home parish at Northampton in 1750 when he abandoned the liberal practice of his predecessors in administering the sacraments to unregenerate members. This was far too purist even for his own congregation. In New Jersey, the battle between the Evangelicals or New Side Party and the Old Side Party came to a head at the meeting of the Presbyterian Synod of 1741. The Old Siders expelled the New Side for their itinerant activities, their bitter attacks, and their emotional stress on hellfire. After vain attempts to win their return. The New Lights set up their own New York Synod in 1745 at Elizabethtown, New Jersey. The developments after the Presbyterian split, however, were the opposite of the Congregational experience. The New Siders attracted the young ministers and grew apace, while the Old Siders dwindled. Finally, turning conciliatory, the majority New Siders were able to induce a reunion of both groups in 1758. The New Siders founded the College of New Jersey, later Princeton, in 1746, as the first college of the Awakening, and this college became the main training ground of Presbyterianism in America. And the College of New Jersey symbolized its new position as the fortress of Calvinist orthodoxy, taking the honors from an old light Yale, when it named Edwards its president shortly before his death. The immigrant Ulster Scots, formerly almost devoid of ministers, now received the expanding product of the new school and were instructed by new side ministers. Frailing Hewson, a leader of the revival movement, also sparked a schism in the Dutch Reformed Church in New York. The conservatives, however, stood no chance there, for they called for remaining under the authority of the classis of Amsterdam, as well as for services in the Dutch language, whereas evangelicals wanted independence for the American Church and preaching in English. Eventually, in 1772, the split was healed on evangelical terms. As the new side became dominant among young Presbyterians and finally conquered the church, the new Presbyterian ministers to the Ulster Scot naturally brought the Great Awakening to the South. Early in the Awakening, a revival movement had begun among lay Presbyterians in Hanover County. In the Virginia Piedmont, led by Samuel Morris and inspired by Whitefield's sermons, they persisted as a New Side center, nourished by visiting New Side ministers. When the Reverend John Roane in 1745 bitterly denounced the established church and its ministers, 
Governor William Gooch, with equal bitterness, condemned such false teachers who, without order or license, lead the innocent and ignorant people into all kinds of delusion, including railing against our religious establishment. In response, the Virginia Grand Jury indicted Roan for vilifying the established religion, as well as two laymen for speaking ill of the establishment and for allowing Roan to speak in an unlicensed house of worship. The three were eventually convicted and forced to pay small fines and court costs. The empaddled old siders of the Philadelphia Synod welcomed Gooch's intervention against their enemies. The new siders won permission to continue operations from Gooch, but two years later the governor and council issued a proclamation to prohibit all itinerant preachers. At this point, the new lights of Virginia were saved by the arrival of the young Reverend Samuel Davies as the first settled Presbyterian minister in the region. The relatively moderate Davies was able to win a license to preach from Virginia's governor and general court. The Reverend Mr. Davies actually won the hearts of the Virginia authorities with his fervent warmongering during the French and Indian War. Davies found it easy to substitute the enemy for the devil in his sermons. Thus, ye that love your country, enlist, for honor will follow you in life or death in such a course. Ye that love your religion, enlist, for your religion is in danger. Can Protestant Christianity expect quarters from heathen savages and French papists? Sure, in such an alliance the powers of hell make a third party. Ye that love your friends and relations, enlist, lest ye see them enslaved and butchered before your eyes. Shortly after this bit of elegant demagoguery, the Reverend Mr. Davies achieved the pinnacle of his career. Like Jonathan Edwards before him, he became president of the College of New Jersey until his death two years later in 1761. Despite the rapid expansion in the South, the New Side Presbyterians faced two inherent restrictions on their growth among the masses. The moderation brought to the movement by Samuel Davies and their stringent requirements that their ministers be properly educated. The Baptist, however, labored under no such handicaps, and a fateful shift in the Baptist creed enabled them to fill this gap after mid-century. The Baptist had begun in the colonies in mid-17th century Rhode Island. There they emerged not only as a liberal, but as a radically individualist group. Their creed was individualism, not only in religion, but also in political philosophy, to the point of anarchism. The religious individualism of the Rhode Island Baptists, however, was not frenzied Calvinist orthodoxy, but a liberal and rationalistic creed that tended toward Arminianism and deism. It is not surprising that, with such a heroically radical creed, the Baptist did not exactly flourish in the colonies. They managed to grow moderately, however, and to establish centers in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and New York early in the 18th century, 
in addition to their previous membership in New England. Their main center soon became the new and expanding colony of religious liberty, Pennsylvania, and the first general organization of American Baptist met as the Philadelphia Association in 1707. Ever since the founding of the Baptist sect in early 17th century England, however, there had been two drastically conflicting and contradictory strains within baptism. The general, that is, those subscribing to the individualist, rationalist, and Arminian creed, and the independently founded particular Baptist, that is, orthodox Calvinist except for their opposition to infant baptism and differences over church polity. The American Baptist had always been Arminian, but the church had remained small. Under the impact of the Calvinist outburst of the Great Awakening, the Philadelphia Association, in a fateful turning point in Baptist history, abandoned the great tradition of the American church and swung over to a rigid Calvinism in 1742. The Baptist had not yet gone so far as to join the Awakening, but this drastic switch to Calvinism paved the way for their eventual surrender to the new movement. It soon became clear that the old lights were winning the struggle for the capture of the Puritan churches of New England. Many of the separated new lights, harassed as unrecognized churches, then took the opportunity to declare themselves Baptist and thus to win a recognized religious status, an important consideration in any community where a church is established. And the shift of the Philadelphia Association to Calvinism made this course an especially easy one. Between 1740 and the mid-1760s, the number of Baptist churches in Massachusetts expanded fivefold, and in Connecticut and Rhode Island, threefold. The Baptists were now not only Calvinist, but new light separatist to boot. By 1764, the Baptists were strong enough to found Rhode Island College, later Brown University, though it began on liberal principles, with various Protestant sects sharing in control of the college. By the early 1760s, the Baptists were ready to meet the Ulster Scots and the Presbyterians southward. To meet the demands of the masses, they allowed virtually anyone, even illiterates, to dub themselves ministers and to take up evangelical preaching. By 1760, the separate Baptist, led by the former New Light, Connecticut Congregationalist Shubal Stearns had taken up headquarters at Sandy Creek in Guilford County in western North Carolina. From there, the Sandy Creek Association spread the separate Baptist gospel into Virginia and South Carolina. They soon far overshadowed the sober and educated older or regular Baptist churches in these provinces. Moreover, with their enthusiasm and uneducated ministry, the separate Baptists were able after 1760 to grow far more rapidly in the South than were the Presbyterians. Indeed, they grew extremely rapidly, especially in Virginia and North Carolina. In the years 1768 to 70, 
the period of the Great Persecution, the angered Virginia government arrested and imprisoned over 30 separate Baptist ministers as disturbers of the peace. But the persecutions only served to multiply rather than restrict the number of Baptist adherents. Despite Whitefield's original connection with the Church of England, the Anglican Church remained a stronghold of opposition to the Great Awakening. Indeed, many old siders, when defeated in their own communions, turned to the Anglican Church. Methodism began as an evangelical tendency within the Church of England. As such, it first took root in the colonies in 1763 in Dinwiddie County in southern Virginia, with the new light preaching of the Reverend Devereux Jarrett. Cooperating with Methodist lay preachers emerging in New York and Maryland, Methodism grew rapidly in the vicinity of Jarrett's parish. Of all the major church groups, the Quakers were the least affected by the Great Awakening. The Quakers were already pietistic and individualistic and thus were not affected by this major attraction of the Awakening. Two, the Quaker creed was highly optimistic and liberal and at the opposite pole from the rigid predestinarian Calvinist theology. The consequences of dynamic new movements are not always the same as their original objectives. For one thing, although the Great Awakening was by no means an economic class struggle in intent, its permanent consequence was to bring about a sharp religious split throughout the colonies along income and educational class lines. The upper classes would remain sober and rationalistic, whether as Quakers, Deists, liberal Congregationalist, conservative Congregationalist, or Anglicans. The lower classes would adopt emotional and evangelistic creeds as New Side Presbyterians, Methodist, or Baptist. Previously in America, there had been few, if any, religious splits along class lines. The Great Awakening, while reactionary in nature, also had progressive and libertarian consequences. The Awakening split had fragmented the Protestant churches. In doing so, the New Lights found themselves at war with the established church in the various colonies, with the Puritans in New England and the Anglicans in the South. At war with the establishment, the New Lights were willy-nilly pushed by the logic of their situation into libertarian positions, and they contributed greatly to the weakening of the establishment in New England and the South. Liberalism in Massachusetts and indifference in the South had already weakened these establishments internally, and the fissures opened by the awakening greatly furthered this task. Moreover, the ensuing multiplication of sects made it far more difficult for any one sect to establish itself in place of the old creed. In short, the awakening permanently made matters far more difficult for any sect to become or remain an established religion. The most severe struggle against establishment came in Connecticut, 
where control by the established quasi-Presbyterian church was far more rigorous than in the more liberal and more truly Congregationalist Massachusetts. The Connecticut Old Lights, in control of the established church, were far more willing to tolerate other dissenting groups than their own separatist. At the behest of the Old Light ministers, the Connecticut Assembly in 1742 outlawed itinerant as well as unlicensed preaching and took away tax support from New Light ministers. Unlicensed or itinerant ministers were to be fined or expelled from the colony. The following year, toleration of dissent, as established in the Act of 1708, was repealed, and religious dissidents were required to obtain special permission from the assembly. When the New Lights tried to set up their own training school, the Connecticut legislature passed a law prohibiting any school college, or seminary from being created without the license of the assembly. For unlicensed preaching at Milford and New Haven, the New Light Presbyterian Reverend Samuel Finley, afterwards president of the College of New Jersey, was arrested and expelled from the colony. Furthermore, suspected New Lights were ejected from public office and elected representatives from New Light towns such as Canterbury, Plainfield, and Lyme in eastern Connecticut, were refused their seats in the assembly. The old siders were by no means alone in persecuting the Great Awakening. This was particularly true among the liberals. In 1743, Governor Jonathan Law of Connecticut wrote the powerful dissenting deputies of Great Britain defending the persecutions in view of the troublesomeness of the Great Awakening movement. The dissenting deputies replied in a friendly but firm reminder of libertarian principles. They too deplored the delusions and disruptions of the Great Awakening. But great and manifest as those mischiefs are, we cannot be of the opinion that the magistrate has anything to do in this matter, but to see that the public peace is preserved, that there are no riots or tumults, and that his subjects are not allowed to assault, hurt, maim, wound, plunder, or kill one another in these religious contests. Laws against differing religious opinions, on the other hand, are unfortunate, as Connecticut should well have known from the experience of the establishment in England the deputies proceeded to criticize sharply the Connecticut Law of 1742 and its severe penalties for dissent from Connecticut's own establishment. The deputies concluded eloquently, In short, whether we consider this matter in a religious or political light, it seems every way most advisable to let these men alone how wildly erroneous soever both you and we may take their sentiments to be. So great was the prestige of the dissenting deputies in New England that, before long, Connecticut had adopted the bulk of their advice. The campaign of persecution did not stamp out the New Lights. Rather, it led to a libertarian opposition among the New Light ministry, the New Light Association of Ministers of Western Fairfield County, 
denounced the use of the civil power to impose ecclesiastical discipline. They also called for more genuine congregationalism in the Connecticut church. The separatist New Lights only came to adopt a libertarian anti-establishment posture by the logic of their political position as a dissenting minority. After they had been clearly defeated in their attempt to control the Congregational Church. Only after several years did the logic of the situation push more and more separatists into opposing an establishment. The first clear-cut separatist opposition to the principle of establishment in Connecticut came in 1747 in the town of Canterbury in eastern Connecticut, the site of the colony's most violent struggle between the two congregational factions. And from Yale, all of the rebellious New Light students were expelled, and the senior class's attempt to reprint John Locke's Letter on Toleration was suppressed by the college. Finally, the students won their academic religious freedom by threatening to appeal the situation to the crown. At last, the reaction against the persecutions in Connecticut triumphed, and in 1750, the persecutory laws were repealed. The Puritan establishment continued on, however, along with taxation of the separatists for salaries for their tax-supported enemies. Separate Congregationalists and Baptists continued to be jailed for refusal to pay taxes to the establishment. Struggles continued between local Congregationalists and the quasi-Presbyterian Church authorities. And this uncongregational type of control was weakened further in such cases as Wallingford. There, old lights separated from the majority new lights of the local church and were freed from the obligation to pay taxes for support of a new light minister. This breakdown of central control helped to weaken the establishment still further. The separate Baptist, in particular, inherited a Baptist tradition of religious liberty and separation of church and state that helped propel them to anti-establishment positions. However, coming from a different theological wing of their church, they were more influenced by the logic of their struggle and their minority position. The separate Baptist showed no sign of favoring wider separation of church and state than equality for their own sect, for example, of advocating repeal of compulsory church attendance laws, prohibition on work or travel on Sunday, outlawing of blasphemy, or banning of Catholics or deists from public office. In more liberal Massachusetts, the major fight for religious liberty among new lights was conducted by the separate Baptist. In contrast to the far more tyrannical Connecticut, there were no laws against the freedom of the separate Baptist as such. But by the law of 1753, separate Baptists were in effect deprived of the exemption from taxes for the establishment, an exemption that had been granted to the general Baptist two decades before. This flagrant discrimination against the hated New Lights roused the latter to enlarge the libertarian situation into which they had been placed. 
town officials enforced religious taxes against the separates with relish, often seizing goods for payment of taxes and imprisoning them for defying the discriminatory law. The separate Baptist drew up a memorial and remonstrance against the act. Written by John Proctor, a Boston schoolteacher, the memorial cited their grievances and called for repeal in order to provide equal freedom and independence with all other religious groups in Massachusetts. A movement grew in Massachusetts to imprison the rash signers of this petition, but wiser heads prevailed. It was not until 1770 that the worst features of this discrimination against the separate Baptist were repealed. The law served to liberalize the separate Baptist politically. One of their main leaders in Massachusetts, the Reverend Isaac Bacchus of Middleborough in Plymouth County, drew heavily on John Locke's letter on toleration in working out a theory of religious freedom. Here and there in the colonies, new light ministers, repelled by struggles against persecution, began to adopt a broader libertarian outlook, at least in rhetoric. Thus, the Reverend Mr. Davies referred in 1751 to men's natural right to follow their judgment, including the questioning and even rejection of authority. Davies, however, confined the application of this radical principle to religious matters. On the other hand, the Reverend Aaron Burr, new side president of Princeton during the 1750s, went on to widen the principle, becoming known as a great friend to liberty, both civil and religious. Burr abhorred tyranny in the state as well as in the church. Volume 2, Chapter 30 The Growth of Deism Liberal religion, strong for several decades in Massachusetts, was intensified in the wake of reaction against the emotional frenzy of the new lights. Rationalists were horrified at tendencies among extreme new lights to consider themselves perfect and immortal, one example being the Reverend Shadrach Ireland of Charlestown. Some new lights deduced from this a call to promiscuity, some to murder, and one man proclaimed that he himself was the risen Christ. It is no wonder that liberal and rationalist trends in Massachusetts were intensified in reaction to the Great Awakening. This growth was also advanced by the increasing popularity of the works of two English Arminians, the Reverend Daniel Whitby, an Anglican, and the Reverend John Taylor, a Presbyterian, both of whom attacked Calvinist orthodoxy in behalf of optimism and free will. The first Arminian work, following swiftly after Charles Chauncey's violent attack on the Great Awakening, was Grace Defended, published by the Reverend Experience Mayhew in 1744. The Arminian movement came to full flower with the Reverend Lemuel Briant's The Absurdity and Blasphemy of Deprecating Moral Virtue, 1749. 
Brent, a minister at Braintree, repudiated Calvinist predestination and maintained that the pure and perfect religion of Jesus was built on the axiom that the individual was a responsible agent whose happiness depended upon his own actions. Thus, the Arminian Credo stressed the importance of a man's adoption of those moral principles that would advance his happiness on earth. God's aim was to advance man's happiness. Brent, realizing his position would not find either popular applause or princely favors, was determined to cleave to eternal truths. Brent's essay led to a wave of Arminian liberalism, soon called the liberal theology, among the congregational churches, especially in the vicinity of Boston. The Reverend Ebenezer Gay of Hingham advanced liberalism still further to a virtual deism, an anticipation of Unitarianism. In a lecture at Harvard College in 1759, Gay, a staunch believer in free inquiry, called for natural religion as distinguished from revealed. Natural religion was to be discovered by reason alone and consisted in worshiping God and his natural laws. If Christianity was inconsistent with natural law, Gay boldly proclaimed, then the former must be discarded. Yet Gay, in common with the other English and American deists of the period, did not launch any open attack on the Christian religion. Instead, they held that Christianity is necessary to supplement the sadly deficient reason of the masses and to inculcate proper moral principles amongst them. The veteran leader of Massachusetts liberalism, Charles Chauncey, pressed even further into deism. God being the epitome of love, declared Chauncey, he would not damn sinners eternally. Furthermore, man using his reason was capable of pursuing the good and obtaining happiness. One of the great leaders of the deist movement in Massachusetts, and indeed the last of the mighty and influential colonial preachers in America, was the brilliant Boston minister, Jonathan Mayhew. It is not surprising that this great liberal figure, highly important in the religious and political development in America, lacked a modern biographer until very recently, while such fanatics as Mather and Edwards have drawn the fascinated attention of numerous historians. Son of the Reverend Experience Mayhew, Jonathan had a good start in developing his liberal views. He spent his formative years at Harvard College, which had become increasingly more advanced, and studied there under the great liberal teacher Edward Guts Holyoke, for three decades a thorn in the side of Orthodox Calvinism. At Harvard, young Mayhew eagerly imbibed the political philosophy of John Locke and the religious views of the English deist Samuel Clark, and then went on to complete his development under the Reverend Ebenezer Gay of Hingham. What emerged was a man who by 1755 was the first New England minister explicitly to reject the Trinity. Rejecting Calvinist determinism and pessimism, Mayhew's rationalist philosophical outlook rested squarely on a belief in natural law 
and a natural law morality. Truth and moral rectitude are things fixed, stable, and uniform, having their foundation in the nature of things. And it is rooted in the nature of man that each person is endowed with reason and with free will, and that he is able to use free will to employ his reason in order to discover the natural law of what is good or bad for man's happiness. Furthermore, he is then able to use that free will to choose the good. And since each individual's choices rest on the convictions of his mind, each man has the right and duty of private judgment over his own life. Thus, each individual is morally capable and therefore responsible for his own actions. For Mayhew, the God that so endowed man, was clearly a being of divine goodness and love. By the mid-1750s, deism had swept through eastern Massachusetts, centering around Boston, especially among the more civilized citizens. Skepticism abounded toward the miracles of the Bible, and the work of the English deist Thomas Morgan, the Moral Philosophers, 1737, circulated throughout the area. Morgan had called for a return to the allegedly deist teachings of the original Jesus, short of miracles and of messianism. While most prevalent in the Boston area, deism was by no means non-existent in the other colonies. The transplanted Bostonian Benjamin Franklin was a deist from his early years. Considering Franklin's overriding concern with the opinion of others and with seizing the main chance, one is not surprised that he carefully cloaked his deist views always hypocritically willing to abandon principle for the sake of keeping his public image bland and inoffensive. Franklin not only continued to attend a church in which he did not believe, but also pressured his daughter to do the same. For the worried Franklin suspected that her failure to attend church would be used to discredit him politically. In private letters, however, Franklin made clear his deist belief in a natural rather than a revealed religion, in free will, in an ethic of human happiness, and in a God of goodness. Franklin's fawning posturing was a conscious rule of his life. I made it a rule to forbear all direct contradiction to the sentiments of others and all positive assertion of my own. I even forbade myself the use of every word and expression that imparted a fixed opinion such as certainly, undoubtedly, and so forth. And I adopted instead, I conceive, I apprehend, or I imagine, or so it appears to me at present. When another asserted something that I thought in error, I denied myself the pleasure of contradicting him sharply. In answering, I began by observing that in certain cases or circumstances that his opinion could be right, but in the present case there appeared or seemed to me some differences, and so forth. And as a result, for these fifty years past, no one has ever heard a dogmatic expression escape me, and I had early so much weight with my fellow citizens and so much influence in public councils. Philadelphia, in fact, 
was a center of deistic and skeptical opinion. Thus, in the mid-1750s, the Reverend William Smith, leader of the Proprietary Party in Pennsylvania and head of the College of Philadelphia, later the University of Pennsylvania, stressed the importance of a reasoned and natural religion. And in New York, William Livingston called for more rationality in religion, while Cadwallader Colden, one of the most eminent men of the province, espoused in 1746 a deism closely akin to atheism in its questioning of the concept of an immaterial first cause. There was little articulate deist leadership in the South in the first half of the century, but widespread deism was found in Georgia in the late 1730s, and North Carolina had always been pervasively indifferent to religious concerns. Deist and rationalist thought did not, of course, spring up full-blown in America. As we have indicated, the influence of English thinkers was dominant. Like their counterparts in America, the English writers made no attempt to mount a direct assault on Christianity. Leaders of the English rationalist movement were, in the 17th century, Lord Herbert of Cherbury, John Locke, Charles Blount, Lord Shaftesbury, Archbishop John Tillotson, and John Toland, a disciple of Locke. And in the early 18th, Samuel Clark, John Taylor, Dr. George Chain, William Wollaston, Matthew Tyndall, Anthony Collins, and Lord Bolingbroke. These writers were read and cited in the American colonies. Archbishop Tillotson, Locke, always widely read in America, Chain, and Clark were deist typical of the Anglican Latitudinarian movement, which tried to establish Christianity by rational means and to use revelation only as a supplement. Much more frankly deist and aloof from Christianity was Lord Shaftesbury, who believed that the masses needed Christian superstition to live morally. By 1750, deism had spread widely in England, especially among the educated classes. The high-water mark of English deism was the posthumous publication in the early 1750s of the noted philosopher and essayist Lord Bolingbroke, in which publication he, following the English deist, scorned Christian theology completely and called for a return to the supposedly simple and deistic gospel of Jesus founded on natural law. Volume 2, Chapter 31 The Quakers and the Abolition of Slavery In 1688, Francis D. Pastorius, head of a colony of German Quakers in Pennsylvania, persuaded his flock to issue a remonstrance against slavery. It was sent to the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting of the Quakers, which promptly buried the protest. In stressing slavery as a violation of the Golden Rule, Pastorius followed the teachings of the Reverend William Edmundston in Maryland a dozen years before. Anti-slavery protest, even among people as individualistic as the Quakers, had proved abortive. Some Quakers were still troubled about the issue, but little was done. The Keithian Quakers denounced slavery in 1693, as did Cadwallader Morgan a few years later, but the most 
the yearly meeting would do, first in 1696 and more stringently in 1715, was to criticize any further importation of slaves. The Pennsylvania Assembly, governed by Quakers, placed prohibitory import duties on the importation of slaves, but this was disallowed by the Crown under the influence of the slave-trading Royal African Company. As more and more Quakers acquired slaves, protests within the order intensified. The minister, William Sotheby, denounced the institution entirely, and in 1712 vainly urged the Pennsylvania legislature to outlaw slavery. The Chester, Pennsylvania, quarterly meeting was the center of Quaker opposition to the practice, and in 1711 it began a series of resolutions for the expulsion of Quakers engaging in the importation of slaves. The Pennsylvania yearly meeting impatiently refused. Furthermore, for repeatedly urging Quaker condemnation of slavery, Sotheby was expelled from the Quaker communion in 1716, and this suppression intimidated the more cautious Chester meeting to keep silent. Meanwhile, similar protests were growing among New York and New England Quakers. Abolition of slavery centered in the Flushing meeting in New York and the Dartmouth and Nantucket meetings in Massachusetts. Sparking the protest was an English Quaker minister, John Farmer, who raised a protest against both slavery and the slave trade at the Flushing Quarterly Meeting in 1717. The agitation was joined by Horsman Mullinix and William Burling. Burling presented an attack on slavery at the New York Yearly Meeting in 1718, though he himself balked at urging its abolition for fear of causing strife within the church. In New England, the Nantucket Monthly Meeting in 1717 bravely condemned both the slave trade and slavery per se, while Dartmouth and Greenwich confined themselves to criticizing the slave trade. Newport, heavily involved in both slaveholding and slave trading, refused to condemn either one. Hence, the Rhode Island Quarterly Meeting took no action. John Farmer now came to New England to preach against slavery, thereby intensifying the gulf between Newport and Nantucket. After urging the New England Yearly Meeting to denounce slavery in a paper relating to Negroes, Farmer succeeded only in bringing the meeting's wrath down upon his own head. The meeting ordered Farmer to stop preaching against the slave trade, to turn over his papers to its care, and to cease publicizing his essay. Farmer would not allow his rights to be trampled on, and continued to preach his opposition to slavery. Appealing to the Philadelphia yearly meeting, Farmer, like Sotheby, was ousted from the Quaker society. The Philadelphia meeting's only concession to anti-slavery sentiment was to threaten, in 1719, the expulsion of any Quaker engaging in the importation of slaves. And even this mild step was not followed by other regional yearly meetings for several decades. The Virginia yearly meeting only began to advise against the slave trade in 1722, but not until 1768 did it move over to discipline. 
New England advised against slave imports in 1717 and only made the prohibition mandatory in 1760. Maryland issued a hesitant prohibition in 1759-60. New York advised in 1718 and only prohibited the slave trade in 1774. The North Carolina Yearly Meeting only advised in 1772. The high-handed treatment of Sotheby and Farmer suppressed further anti-slavery agitation for over a decade. Finally, in 1729, the question was reopened by one courageous man, Ralph Sandiford. An English Quaker and businessman, Sandiford settled in Philadelphia, only to be revolted at the sight of slave auctions. In this year, despite refusal of permission to publish by the overseer of the press in Philadelphia, Sandiford bravely published his The Mystery of Iniquity, in which he bitterly attacked Quaker slaveholding. The Quakers, he charged, had had it in their power to make their name glorious by spurning slavery. Instead, they had shown a defect of spirituality by engaging in this evil practice. Sandiford's booklet once again radicalized the Quakers of Chester, Pennsylvania. The Chester Quarterly Meeting now called for the next step in restricting slavery. Since slave importation was now prohibited to Quakers, purchase of newly imported slaves would likewise be banned. Two small quarterly meetings in New Jersey backed the Chester view. The Bucks Quarterly Meeting failed to take a stand. Philadelphia criticized any further changes in Quaker policy, and the Burlington meeting compromised on advising against purchase, but without any disciplinary prohibition. This waffling suggestion was adopted by the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting in 1730. Also cautioned against was the sale of previously purchased imported slaves, as this would be profiting from slave imports. For Quakers, the slave trade was easier to attack as inducing and profiting from the booty of war in Africa, and further profit from such imports could also be condemned as grounded in war. Of course, if the Quakers had cared to pursue the logic further, they would have found further contradictions between slavery and peace. One, even domestic slaves originated in Africa and war, and two, enforcing of slavery itself rested on violence and hence on aggressive force against the slaves. Ralph Sandiford, heartbroken at his defeat at the yearly meeting, soon died, but his suit was quickly taken up by his friend and fellow English businessman Benjamin Lay. Lay blasted Quaker slaveholders in his magnificently hard-hitting all slave keepers that keep the innocent in bondage, apostates pretending to lay claim to the pure and holy Christian religion. 1737. Lay denounced Quaker slaveholders as a parcel of hypocrites and deceivers. The Quaker ministers who held slaves especially raised his ire, for their hypocrisy set an example for all Quakers. Lay pointed out that slavery, just as in the case of murder, was a criminal assault on Christ's gospel of love. Lay not only went unheeded, but was forcibly ejected from Quaker meetings.
Into this atmosphere of repression and of general evasion of moral responsibility came the young man who would almost single-handedly free the Quaker slaves. John Woolman was a tailor, farmer, and shopkeeper in New Jersey, a colony containing many slaves. In 1742, as a young apprentice making out a bill of sale for a negress, Woolman realized with a shock the true nature of the pervasive slave system. He thereupon decided to devote his life to crusading for the abolition of slavery. Upon becoming a Quaker minister in 1743, Woolman went up and down the colonies, exhorting Quakers to take a principled stand against the institution of slavery. In his influential and beautifully written journal, 1757, emanating a spirit of Christian love, Woolman wrote of the slaves, These are a people by whose labor the other inhabitants are in a great measure supported. These are a people who have made no aggrievement to serve us and who have not forfeited their liberty. These are the souls for whom Christ died, and for our conduct towards them we must answer before that almighty being who is no respecter of persons. The great impact of John Woolman is eternal testimony to the effect that ideas and moral conscience can have upon the actions of men. For while many Quakers had a vested economic interest in slaves, this interest and its ally, natural inertia, could not prevail against the spiritual, moral principles proclaimed by the lone Quaker. By 1750, a young teacher in Philadelphia, the Quaker Huguenot Anthony Benazet, had joined wholeheartedly in the crusade. In 1754, Woolman published his influential Some Considerations on the Keeping of Negroes, denouncing slavery as a violation of man's natural rights. Woolman punctured the usual rationalization of slavery as being for the benefit of the slaves. Instead, slavery is precisely to enable the masters and their families to live in luxury off the exploited labor of their human property. Furthermore, slave-keeping corrupted and demoralized the slave owners themselves. It is not surprising that John Woolman, the man of principle, also stuck to the Quaker belief in peace during the French and Indian War, even attacking any war that might be waged against an unjust invasion. When a soldier was quartered upon Woolman against his will, he refused the payment that the government allowed him as compensation. Under Woolman's mighty influence, more and more Quakers took up the cause, such prominent Quakers as Israel Pemberton, Samuel Fothergill, and John Churchman came out for abolition and various monthly meetings in New Jersey and Pennsylvania condemned the purchase and keeping of slaves. The great climax of the abolitionist movement in the Quaker society came at the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting of 1758. While conservatives and slave owners insisted on the old formulas of only barring slave imports and enjoining kind treatment of the existing slaves, 
Woolman and his fellow radicals launched a principled moral attack on slavery itself. At the yearly meeting, it seemed as if the conservatives and the temporizers, with their pleas of wait until a way would be opened, were going to win. At this point, the great Woolman rose to remind the assembled Quakers once again of principle. Many slaves on this continent are oppressed, and their cries have entered into the ears of the Most High. It is not a time for delay. Should we now, through a respect to the private interest of some persons, neglect to do our duty in firmness and constancy, still waiting for some extraordinary means to bring about their deliverance, God may, by terrible things in righteousness, answer us. Woolman swept the day. The historic yearly meeting of 1758 called upon Quakers to free their slaves and, besides, to grant them a terminal allowance. Thus the Quakers took upon themselves the financial loss not only of freeing the slaves, but even of compensating them, to some extent, for their prior servitude. The meeting resolved that, excluding temporal considerations or views of self-interest, we may do unto others as we would they should do unto us which would induce such friends as have any slaves to set them at liberty, making a Christian provision according to their ages. Discipline was to be imposed upon Quakers who persisted in buying, selling, or keeping slaves, but in ways short of actual expulsion. Particularly important was the meeting's appointment of an energetic committee headed by Woolman, to persuade and help Quaker slave owners to put this policy, including the Christian provision of reparations, into effect. By 1774, all the willing Quakers in New Jersey and Pennsylvania had freed their slaves. In that year, disciplinary threats of expulsion were imposed for slave purchasing, holding, or selling, and as a result, all the Quakers had freed their slaves by 1780. In consequence, there was, by the end of the colonial period, an appreciable decline of slavery in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. More important, the example of the voluntary abolition of slavery by the Quakers held up a beacon light of freedom to all Americans. The action of 1758 at the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, by far the most important Quaker meeting in the colonies, provided an immediate inspiration to Quakers in the other colonies. Richard Smith, one of the few Quakers in Connecticut, had already announced the freeing of his own slave. Woolman's trip to New England in 1760 inspired the monthly meeting in South Kingston, Rhode Island, in the Narragansett area, where slavery was widespread, to outlaw slavery two years later on pain of expulsion. Boston, Lynn, and Salem Quakers moved to prohibit slaveries, but other areas proved far more resistant, especially Newport and New York City, which resisted pressure from upstate New York meetings. Maryland and Virginia Quakers split sharply on the issue. 
Gradually, all the Quaker meetings were moved around to the full abolitionist position, but this could only be done by their adoption of the great libertarian and rationalist doctrine of natural rights, increasingly sweeping the colonies. With the aid of natural right theory, the Quakers now realized that not only benevolent Christian morality, but also basic justice required freedom for every man. Justice in the very nature of man required freedom for all. John Woolman had already proclaimed that liberty was a natural right of all men equally. And now the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting of 1765, reaffirming its decree of seven years before, reasoned the necessity of abolition so that all Quakers might acquit themselves with justice and equity toward a people who by an unwarrantable custom had been unjustly deprived of the common privileges of mankind. And in New York yearly meeting of 1768, even while temporizing on abolition, conceded that Negroes as rational creatures are by nature born free. This appeal to justice raised Quaker arguments from concern about initial enslavement through war to the continuing enslavement of the Negroes. For now, the Quakers saw fully that aggression against the natural liberty of Negroes occurred not only at the time of their initial enslavement or importation, but all the time that they were kept in bondage. Gradualist arguments about preparing the Negroes for freedom had now also to be swept aside. This insight widened Quaker horizons from religious concern for their fellow slave-owning members to concern for slavery in the society at large. As the historian Sidney James puts it, if Negroes had been deprived of natural liberty not only when they had been forcibly transported from Africa, but every minute that they were held in bondage under whatever pretext, justice required that the God-given freedom be restored. In this light, a master conferred no boon when he liberated a slave. He gave belatedly what he had hitherto withheld, and simply ceased to detain a person who was and who always had been free. This idea soon pervaded official Quaker language and provided friends with an unfailing encouragement to fight slaveholding in the world at large, ending a wicked usurpation of control over a man's life was as clearly a public duty as saving him from drowning an obligation so positive as to relegate the spiritual or economic preparation of the slave for freedom to a position where it could not rightly control the decision to manumit or not. The Quakers were thus led to shift from their previous pessimistic view of unregenerate and sinful natural man to an optimistic view of man as possessing the natural and God-given liberty to choose the Christian and moral life for himself, 
Indeed, they saw more clearly that slavery and other such coercive restrictions on the natural liberty of the individual prevented him from using his liberty, and hence from fully adopting the moral inner light and from pursuing the proper path to his own happiness. So it was that the Quakers, always possessing a great individualist heritage, moved into close alignment with developing rationalist and libertarian thought in England and America. The old pessimistic emphasis on man's natural depravity had bred a passive and quiescent attitude in many Quakers. The plea of the conservative anti-abolitionist Quakers was not to disturb the society and to wait for God to act against any worldly evils. But the new rationalist libertarianism of the Enlightenment demonstrated that individual freedom was a good in itself and a necessary condition for leading a virtuous life. It showed that where man had been invading this freedom, man himself could now act to remove the invasion. Furthermore, they now saw that reason and justice need not balk at the weight of irrational and oppressive social custom. As James declares, reformers could proceed to restore natural liberty without waiting for inward transformations which would make the freed worthy of their freedom, or to combat social injustice without waiting for divine interference to correct it. Furthermore, convinced that natural rights existed apart from the will of the civil community, or even in the face of contrary laws, the Quaker reformers could use a right to liberty as grounds for defying a legal protection of slavery. Before long, all the Quaker meetings north and south had followed Philadelphia's lead and abolished slavery, finally enforcing the decree with threat of expulsion. By the late 1770s, in early 1780s, slavery among the Quakers in America had been voluntarily and totally abolished. Volume 2, Chapter 32 The Beginning of the Struggle Over American Bishops The Anglican Communion, even in those colonies where it served as an established church, lived under strictly local control. Ministers were appointed by local vestries and approved by the governor of the colony. The church in America thus remained under secular American and even local direction. It was not subject to more than the nominal control of the Bishop of London, nor could it be otherwise so long as the church was not represented by resident bishops in the American colony. The only pleas for the installation of Anglican bishops in America came not from the southern colonies, where the established Anglican clergy relished their independence and the laity their local control, but from the far weaker missionary clergy in the northern provinces. The first agitation for American bishops came from the Society for Propagating the Gospel, S.P.G. The Great English Missionary Society, founded in 1701, 
The SPG proved to be the greatest single force in extending the Anglican Communion in America, especially in the northern and middle colonies. Dr. Thomas Bray, founder of the SPG, was the first to launch the campaign in 1701, and the cause was soon taken up by the Reverend John Talbot, one of the leading missionaries in the society in the Middle Colonies. In 1705, 14 Anglican missionaries assembled at Burlington, New Jersey, and petitioned for a bishop. The SPG itself continued to head the agitation, and the campaign came to a climax in 1713, when petitions for bishops came in from New York and New England, and Queen Anne agreed to the proposal. This agreement is not surprising, as it fitted in admirably with Queen Anne's high Tory aim of exalting the power of throne and altar over her hapless subjects. The death of Queen Anne in 1714, however, followed by the accession to power of Sir Robert Walpole and the Whigs, shattered the plan for American bishops and dashed other high Tory hopes as well, thus ended the first campaign for an American Episcopate. The SPG now ended its organized agitation, but petitions from missionary ministers continued to come into London. At first, the agitation was rather desultory, but the lead was soon taken in 1723 by a group of Connecticut ministers newly converted from the Puritan faith and headed by the Reverend Samuel Johnson and Timothy Cutler. Johnson and Cutler mobilized the New England Anglican clergy to petition for bishops in 1725 and 1727. The dramatic conversion of Cutler, the rector of Yale College, the center of Orthodox Calvinist training in America, along with several Yale instructors, particularly rankled and alarmed the Puritan clergy of New England. Especially galling was Cutler's admission that he had been a secret Anglican even before assuming his post at Yale. An attempt was indeed made by the church to install a bishop not in New England but in Anglican Maryland, but the courts in Maryland, where the clergy were opposed and the proprietary brooked no such interference in its own control, quickly blocked the plan. The Reverend Mr. Johnson, in the course of his pleas to England, urged that an episcopate would be most useful in cementing the rule of the English crown over America and preventing any dangerous tendencies toward American independence. As Johnson trenchantly put it, it has always been a fact and is obvious in the nature of the thing that anti-episcopal are of course anti-monarchical principles, so that the danger of our effecting independence would naturally flow from the want of episcopacy, which would be the most effectual means that could be devised to secure a dependence on our mother country. Yet in England itself, and even in the SPG, interest in the scheme had all but ended with the death of Queen Anne. Its first revival came with a sermon before the Society by Bishop Thomas Secker in 1741. Secker took up the argument of Johnson, and his public address alarmed the New England dissenting clergy. 
In a reply, the liberal Massachusetts congregational minister, Andrew Elliott, expressed his alarm over an episcopate that would inevitably entail the dangers of an Anglican establishment in the northern colonies. Such dangers included a general tax to support the establishment, to be extracted from the pockets of the non-Anglican colonists. Bishops established in America would, in short, inevitably obtain the considerable temporal power and revenue that their counterparts enjoyed in England. In sum, an Anglican episcopate inevitably could not be a simply spiritual matter. It had grave political implications for American liberty. The drive for an American episcopate began in earnest with the accession of Thomas Sherlock to the bishopric of London in 1748. Pursuing his grand design for an American establishment intertwined with the English state and church, Sherlock immediately began to press the king for an American bishop. Sherlock was repeatedly turned down by the shrewd officials of the crown under pressure of the influential English dissenters. Particularly active in rejecting the proposal for Anglican bishops were the great Whig leaders, the Duke of Newcastle, Lord Hardwick, and Horatio Walpole. The liberal Horatio Walpole expressed the shrewd sentiments of the Whigs, by warning that such a far-reaching scheme would really provoke and alienate the American colonists, dissenters, and even Anglicans alike. Sherlock was joined in his agitation, however, by bishops Secker and Cutler, and Sherlock raised the problem to a new plane by deciding to employ virtual blackmail upon his American communicants for in an effort to force the Anglicans in America to demand a resident bishop, Secker virtually refused to exercise any of his jurisdiction over the church in America. Pursued by successive bishops of London, however, this policy only left Anglicans in the colonies with even less English control and supervision than they had experienced before. Furthermore, Secker's methods aroused the ire of Anglicans, especially in the South, and particularly alarmed the New England Puritans and other dissenters who saw the specter of an Anglican establishment from which so many of them had fled. As early as 1750, the liberal Reverend Jonathan Mayhew warned that people have no security against being unmercifully priest-ridden but by keeping all imperious bishops and other clergymen who love to lord it over God's heritage from getting their feet into the stirrup at all. Mayhew trenchantly warned that, in plain English, there seems to have been an impious bargain struck up betwixt the scepter and the surplus for enslaving both bodies and souls of men. The agitation over possible bishops in America died down during the distractions of the war with France, only to flame up again when the war was over. In addition to the specific problem of the bishops, 
general Anglican encroachments on religious liberty exerted a significant impact on politics and opinion in New York. That colony, where Anglicans were aiming at an establishment, found a great champion of religious liberty in William Livingston, of the leading landed family of New York. As a student at Yale, Livingston had been influenced by the English rationalist liberal writings of John Locke and the independent Whig, rather than by Calvinist orthodoxy. The independent Whig, written in the early 1720s, was the great arsenal of argument for religious liberty and against establishment, written by the English journalist John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon. In late 1752, Livingston and his friends launched the publication of a weekly paper, The Independent Reflector, dedicated to opposing establishment and consciously modeled after Trenchard and Gordon's independent Whig. The principal goal of the paper was opposing oppression and vindicating the liberty of man. Livingston stoutly affirmed that in the cause of the truth and liberty, he would defy all tyrants, civil or ecclesiastic, and specifically any Anglican domination over New York. Moreover, Livingston's libertarianism was by no means confined to defense against the Anglicans. He also boldly defended the Moravian Church against the attacks of his own Presbyterians. The lively, trenchant, independent reflector quickly won fame not only in New York but throughout the northern colonies and was ardently discussed in pulpits, coffee houses, and taverns. The independent reflector, drawing blood, stimulated an intense Anglican counterattack. But much of the Anglican rebuttal only furnished more material to alarm its critics. Thus, William Smith, inspired by the Anglican leader, the Reverend Samuel Johnson, blatantly declared, National establishment can diffuse through a country the full social advantages arising from religion. If, according to the reflector's scheme, all religions were equally favored by the civil power, none established, and every man left at liberty to preach and practice what he thought proper, what a scene of confusion would thence arise from such unbridled liberty of conscience. As to the political uses of national establishments, the statesman has always found it necessary for the purposes of government to raise some one denomination of religion above the rest. This favored denomination, by these means, becomes, as it were, the creature of the government, which is thus enabled to keep all in subjection. But let a government once give away the power of bestowing its own favors, and let all sects and persuasions be equally favored, equally independent, how shall they be influenced, or how ruled? Smith concluded by accusing the reflector of being un-British. This leveling notion of perfect Religious equality before the law was derived not from British liberty, but from the Frenchman Voltaire. In contrast, William Livingston declared that matters of religion have nothing to do with the interest of state. The civil power hath no jurisdiction over the sentiments 
or opinions of the subject. Anglican pressure, however, soon made a mockery of any freedom of the press in the colony. Livingston's printer, threatened with deprivation of the vital public printing contracts, succumbed to pressure and refused to continue printing the independent reflector. Printers in Boston and Philadelphia also refused to print the controversial paper, and it was forced to close in early 1754. But while the Anglican government managed to kill the reflector, the paper refused to die. Its name persisted, and bound copies and later reprints were eagerly sought. Furthermore, the public protest induced another New York paper that had closed its doors to anti-establishment opinion to open them again. And William Livingston continued with learning and wit to belabor his opposition in a watchtower column. The religious controversy also served to polarize New York politics, with the Delancey faction becoming a pro-Anglican party and the Livingston faction reflecting its Presbyterian leadership. Volume 2, Chapter 33, The Growth of Libertarian Thought We have touched several times, especially in dealing with religious doctrines and institutions, upon the growth of libertarian views in 18th century America. This extremely significant development was not a full-blown giant suddenly burst upon the European and American scenes. J. H. Hexter, in his brilliant Reappraisals in History, warns us of the dangerous temptation toward a linear view of history, a view adopted in different ways by Whig and Marxist alike. The linear view assumes a steady march from past to present. Hexter cites the concept of the rising middle classes. Historians, he points out, noted that the English middle classes were dominant in the 19th century and virtually non-existent in the Middle Ages. Hence, the linear assumption of a steady march upward by the middle classes century by century a picture which Hexter indicates is far from the truth. But the important point here is that history often moves not in a smoothly linear trend, but in varying patterns of rises and falls of trends shattered by contrary trends. The growth of libertarian thought in 18th century America was, to be sure, heavily influenced by preceding growth in England, the main source of cultural influence on its colonies. But the pattern was not so simple, for it must be remembered that parts of America itself had experienced entirely libertarian institutions in the 17th century. For example, Rhode Island, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. To a large extent, this libertarianism had been unarticulated. In short, the abundance of fertile virgin land in a vast territory enabled individualism to come to full flower in many areas. But only in such cases, important to be sure, as those of Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson, did practicing libertarianism 
receive theoretical articulation and groundwork. This does not mean that no theoretical rationale existed. Indeed, it exploded in a mighty surge during the height of the Puritan Revolution. Roger Williams and his friends among the libertarian wing of that revolution helped each other develop these doctrines. But the significant fact of the mid-17th century was the defeat of the revolution and the victory of the counter-revolution. In England, this victory can be pinpointed in Oliver Cromwell's shift rightward and his suppression of the levelers, perhaps the finest libertarian movement up to that time. The steady retreat of Roger Williams from libertarian principles and enthusiasm can be dated from the disheartening victory of this Cromwellian counter-revolution. A similar counter-revolution against liberalism occurred in other parts of Europe. In France, with the defeat of the Holy League in the late 16th century, and of the popular Frondeur movements in the 17th century. In Holland, with the victory of the Orange Party over the Republicans. Civil war and foreign wars prevented England from turning its attention to its American colonies until the end of the 17th century. When it finally did so, it used its power to crush libertarian reality where it existed in America. Thus, England imposed a counter-revolution on virtually libertarian conditions in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and reversed the liberal-tending Leislerian Revolution, which it had to force its way against what was in many ways the most reactionary colony of all, New York. Liberal-tending rebellions in the South, for example, Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia, were crushed, and reactionary policies entrenched or deepened. After the vigorous turmoil and turbulence of the late 17th century, when so many parts of America struggled in various ways toward freedom, a rather bleak uniformity was imposed on the colonies by England. The first half of the 18th century saw an increasing political stalemate between the contending forces, now generally consisting of crown and privileged oligarchy, as against the rest of the population. This period of quiescence was matched in the mother country, in institutions as well as in thought and opinion. In the first half of the 18th century, England settled down into a centrist Whig settlement. Radical liberal thought was more or less underground, expressed in thin trickles by lone independent thinkers. These liberals kept alive the torch of 17th century Republican liberalism. When the radical liberal movement burst forth once again as a political force in England in the later 18th century, it came not as a completely new phenomenon but as a renaissance of 17th-century radical models. In the first half of the 18th century, America was more eager to learn from British liberalism past and contemporary than were the English themselves. England was, for one thing, the major cultural and ideological influence in the colonies, 
and Americans were eager to learn. For another, America had the heritage of its virtual epoch of libertarian revolutions in the last half of the 17th century. It was a long time before England was able to clamp down on America. And furthermore, America was not saddled with the enormous encumbrances on liberty that faced the English liberals, a pervasive and oppressive feudal land system which had broken in America on the rock of vast new land, a drive for proprietary profit, and an American refusal to pay quit rents, an established church hierarchy, a large central state apparatus, and a thoroughly oligarchic polity. Americans suffered from these ailments to some degree, differing from one colony to the next, and such institutions as slavery, especially in the plantation south and quasi-feudal land holdings in the Hudson Valley, presented great problems, but not nearly to the extent experienced by Great Britain. Above all, the rapid breakdown of attempts at imposing a feudal land system threw open land and areas of American life to a mobility and opportunity that Europe could not yet experience. The far greater democracy in the bulk of the American colonies than in England was a reflection of this breakdown. If liberty was to be achieved in the Western world, it was clear by the 18th century that America would have to take the lead to achieve in practice the fruits of a theory generated in England. One basic influence on colonial American thought was the fact that two contrasting traditions emerged from its Protestant and Puritan heritage. One was the fanatical, theocratic, persecuting tradition which reached its apogee in Massachusetts Bay and in the Dutch Orange Party. The other was optimistic, individualist, libertarian, and even deistic, and was reflected in the levelers, and in such escapees from Massachusetts as Anne Hutchinson and Roger Williams, and later in Charles Chauncey and Jonathan Mayhew. Apart from ancient writers, three sources were the most frequently cited and quoted in 18th century America, especially in the first half of the century, Algernon Sidney, John Locke, and Trenchard and Gordon of Cato's letters. Each made a profound contribution to the growth and development of libertarian thought in America. Algernon Sidney was one of the leading theorists of the Republican movement in 17th century England, in particular the doctrines expounded in his posthumously published Discourses Concerning Government were stamped on men's minds by the circumstances of his martyrdom. Arrested in the early 1680s, Sidney was killed in late 1683 by the Crown and thus dramatized the Republican and Libertarian cause. Sidney's basic importance was his stress on the right of revolution. To Sidney, revolution and freedom were closely linked. Whenever people's liberties were threatened or invaded, 
they had the right, nay, the duty, to rebel. Everyone might legitimately slay a tyrant, and there is much justification for defending the rights of individuals against tyranny. Revolution to Sydney was not an evil, but the people's great weapon for the overthrow of tyranny and for exercising their rights to popular government. There was nothing sacred about governments, which, on the contrary, should be changed as required. The types of law necessary in a country were to be discerned by man's reason investigating the fundamental laws of man's nature. Against the arbitrary whim of the ruler, Sidney championed law as written reason and as defense of life, liberty, and property. If there be no other law in a kingdom than the will of a prince, there is no such thing as liberty. Property also is an appendage to liberty, and tis as impossible for a man to have a right to lands or goods if he has no liberty and enjoys his life only at the pleasure of another, as it is to enjoy either when he is deprived of them. Although Sidney urged popular government as against monarchy, he was no believer in the unlimited rights of Parliament. On the contrary, it was to be subordinated to the individual rights of the people. Power, he warned, inevitably corrupts, and every institutional power must be guarded against. To Sidney, government rested on a contract between government and governed. When government fails to perform its role in the service of the people, it deserves to be removed. Nor can a people give up their liberties permanently or be bound to government by the dead hand of the past. In his dying speech, Sidney proclaimed that God has left nations the liberty of setting up such governments as best please themselves. He thanked God that he had now become a witness to the truth and to the old cause of liberty against tyranny in an age which makes truth pass for treason. A liberal Republican and friend of Sir Henry Vane, the Massachusetts champion of Anne Hutchinson, Sidney had been unhappy with Cromwell's turn to tyranny and had spent the Republican years in retirement. He was then forced to spend the bulk of the Restoration years in exile until his execution. Sidney's great classical model was Brutus, and his stirring motto, Manus hec inimica tyrannis, this hand to tyrants ever sworn the foe, in the translation of John Quincy Adams. Algernon Sidney's widening impact on America during the 18th century influenced the great liberal Massachusetts congregational ministers, Andrew Elliott and Jonathan Mayhew. Eliot testified that this martyr to civil liberty first taught him just principles of government. 
Indeed, the defense of revolution by the martyred Sidney was far more inspiring to Americans than the defense by the timorous John Locke. Sidney's historical honor roll consisted of those who had helped their countrymen get rid of tyrants. Injustice, to Sidney, made a government illegal. Swords were given to men that none be slaves, but such as knew not how to use them, and the law that forbids injuries were of no use if no penalty might be inflicted on those who will not obey it. Concluded Sidney, let the danger be never so great. There is a possibility of safety whilst men have life, hands, arms, and courage to use them, but the people must certainly perish who tamely suffer themselves to be oppressed by the injustice, cruelty, and malice of an ill magistrate. The dying words of another contemporaneous martyr of the Stuarts, the Cromwellian Colonel Richard Rumbold, also served as inspiration to such revolutionary Americans as Thomas Jefferson. I am sure there was no man born with a saddle on his back, neither any booted and spurred to ride him. If liberty found its martyr in Algernon Sidney, it found its elaborated systematic defense in the essay concerning civil government of the noted philosopher John Locke. The essay, we now know, was written in the early 1680s, at about the same time as Sidney's discourses. It was, therefore, written when Locke, too, was a revolutionary plotter against Stuart rule, and not, as had been assumed, as a conservative ex post facto rationale for the glorious revolution of 1688. There were two strains in Locke's essay, the individualist and libertarian, and the conservative and majoritarian. And examples of caution and inconsistency are easy to find. But the individualist view is the core of the philosophic argument, while the majoritarian and status strain appears more in the later applied portions of the theory. We know, furthermore, that Locke was an extraordinarily secretive and timorous writer on political affairs, even for an age when criticism could and did lead to exile and death. Hence, it is not unreasonable to assume that the conservative strain in Locke was a camouflage for the radically libertarian core of his position. Certainly it was not difficult to concentrate on that core and make it the groundwork of a libertarian creed. And Locke's essay was particularly worthwhile in that it soared above the usual narrowly parochial concern of the day for time and place. From English liberty, ancient privileges, and the common law to a universal abstract political philosophy grounded on the nature of man. Locke began his analysis with the state of nature, not as a historical hypothesis, but as a logical construct, a world without government. To penetrate to the proper foundation of the state, 
in the state of nature, each man, as a natural fact, has complete ownership or property over his own person. These persons confront unused natural resources or land, and they are able to maintain and advance themselves by mixing their labor with the land. Through this mixing, the hitherto unowned and unused natural resources become the property of the individual mixer. The individual thereby acquires a property right not only in his own person, but also in the land that he has brought into use and transformed by his labor. Locke adopted the curious, theologically oriented view that the original unused land was given to mankind in common and was then taken out of this common stock by individual labor. Actually, in fact, original land, being unused, was therefore unowned by anyone, individual or communal. It should be mentioned that, contrary to some historians, Locke's labor theory of property has no relation to the labor theory of value of Karl Marx and other socialist authors. The individual, then, may keep this property, exchange it for the property of others, or bequeath it to his heirs. Macpherson has shown that Locke's state of nature includes a free market for exchange of property, including monetary exchanges, all of which is logically anterior to government. He has the natural right to the property and to defend it against invasion by others. The moral justification for government to Locke was to defend these rights of property. Should government fail to serve this function and itself become destructive of property rights, the people then have the right to revolt against such government and to replace it with one that will defend their rights. It is a misconception to accuse Locke of setting property rights above human rights, for the two were conjoined. Property rights included the right of the individual's property in his own person. Thus Locke, by the use of reason in investigating the laws of man's nature, adumbrated the doctrine of the natural rights of the individual to person and property, rights that are anterior to government and that government is duty-bound to defend on pain of a justified overthrow. Locke is clear that aggression and invasion of another's right can establish no just title to property or rule, and that this holds for great heads of states as well as for petty criminals. The injury and the crime is equal, whether committed by the wearer of a crown or some petty villain. The title of the offender and the number of his followers make no difference unless it be to aggravate it. The only difference is great robbers punish little ones to keep them in their obedience, 
but the great ones are rewarded with laurels and triumphs because they are too big for the weak hands of justice in this world and have the power in their own possession which should punish offenders. As to the legislature, the reason why men enter into society is the preservation of their property. And the end why they choose and authorize a legislature is that there may be laws made and rules set as guards and fences to the properties of all the members of the society. Whenever the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people or to reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, they put themselves into a state of war with the people who are thereupon absolved from any further obedience and are left to the common refuge which God hath provided for all men against force and violence. Locke's reply to the critics of his theory of revolution was trenchant. Those who oppose the right to revolution as turbulent and destructive may as well say upon the same ground that honest men may not oppose robbers or pirates, because this may occasion disorder or bloodshed. If any mischief come in such cases, it is not to be charged upon him who defends his own right, but on him who invades his neighbors. To the objection that his theory allowed for frequent revolution, Locke countered that such revolutions happen not upon every little mismanagement in public affairs, great mistakes in the ruling part, many wrong and inconvenient laws and all the slips of human frailty will be borne by the people without mutiny or murmur. But if a long train of abuses, prevarications, and artifices, all tending the same way, make the design visible to the people, tis not to be wondered that they should then rouse themselves. The third great influence on America, and perhaps the most widely cited source in the colonies, was the works of John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon, especially their Cato's letters. We have already noted the influence of the letters on the freedom of the press, as well as the strong influence of Trenchard and Gordon's contemporaneous independent Whig series, both written in the early 1720s. Trenchard and Gordon were part of a small group of Englishmen who during the 18th century kept alive the torch of liberal Republican principles. This group was variously called Commonwealthmen, Real Whigs, or True Whigs. The great significance of Cato's letters is that in them the wealthy John Trenchard and his young protege Thomas Gordon greatly radicalized the impact of Locke's libertarian creed. They did so by applying Lockean principles to the concrete nature and problems of government in a series of powerfully argued and hard-hitting essays that were often cited and reprinted and widely read throughout the American colonies. Cato's letters did more than merely restate Lockean doctrine, from the position that the people have the right to revolt against a government destructive of liberty, Cato proceeded to argue with great force that government is always and everywhere 
the potential or actual aggressor against the rights and liberties of the people. Liberty, the source of all the fruits of civilization and human happiness, is ever liable to suffer the aggressions and encroachments of government, of power, the source from which war, tyranny, and impoverishment ever flow. Power always stands ready to conspire against liberty, and the only salvation is for the public to keep government within strictly limited bounds and to be ever watchful, vigilant, and hostile to the inevitable tendencies of government power to encroach upon liberty. Expounding Lockean doctrine, Cato puts it thus, All men are born free. Liberty is a gift which they receive from God himself, nor can they alienate the same by consent though possibly they may forfeit it by crimes. The right of the magistrate arises only from the right of private men to defend themselves, to repel injuries, and to punish those who commit them, that right being conveyed by the society to their public representative, he can execute the same no further than the benefit and security of that society requires he should. When he exceeds his commission, his acts are as extrajudicial as are those of any private officer usurping an unlawful authority. That is, they are void, and every man is answerable for the wrong which he does. A power to do good can never become a warrant for doing evil. Liberty, Cato defined as the power which every man has over his own actions and his right to enjoy the fruit of his labor, art, and industry, as far as by it he hurts not the society or any members of it, by taking from any member or by hindering him from enjoying what he himself enjoys. The fruits of a man's honest industry are the just rewards of it ascertained to him by natural and eternal equity, as is his title to use them in the manner which he thinks fit. And thus, with the above limitations, every man is sole lord and arbiter of his own private actions and property. From liberty all other blessings flow. Indeed, liberty is the divine source of all human happiness. To possess in security the effects of our industry is the most powerful and reasonable incitement to be industrious and to be able to provide for our children and to leave them all that we have is the best motive to beget them. But where property is precarious, labor will languish. The privileges of thinking, saying, and doing what we please, and of growing as rich as we can without any other restriction, than that by all this we hurt not the public nor one another, are the glorious privileges of liberty, and its effects to live in freedom, plenty, and safety. Moreover, Cato made clear that the rights and liberties he was enunciating were individual 
and not those of the majority. The despotism of the majority can be as bad as the tyranny of one or a few. It is a mistaken notion in government that the interest of the majority is only to be consulted, since in society every man has a right to every man's assistance in the enjoyment and defense of his private property. Otherwise, the greater number may sell the lesser and divide their estates amongst themselves. And so, instead of a society where all peaceable men are protected, become a conspiracy of the many against a minority. With as much equity may one man wantonly dispose of all, and violence may be sanctified by mere power. But in this idol of liberty there is always and ever the threat of the encroachments and aggressions of power, of government. Only the checks put upon magistrates make nations free, and only the want of such checks makes them slaves. They are free where their magistrates are confined within certain bounds set them by the people, and they are slaves where the magistrates choose their own rules and follow their lust and humors than which a more dreadful curse can befall no people, and therefore most nations in the world are undone, and those nations only who bridle their governors do not wear chains. Once acquiring power, rulers will try their best to keep and extend it. We know by infinite examples and experience that men possessed of power rather than part with it, will do anything, even the worst and the blackest, to keep it. And scarce ever any man upon earth went out of it as long as he could carry everything his own way in it. This seems certain, that the good of the world or of their people was not one of their motives either for continuing in power or for quitting it. It is the nature of power to be ever encroaching and converting every extraordinary power granted at particular times and upon particular occasions into an ordinary power to be used at all times and when there is no occasion, nor does it ever part willingly with any advantage. If liberty, for Cato, is the source of human happiness, the tyranny of power is the source of vast human misery. Tyrants reduce mankind to the condition of brutes and make that reason which God gave them useless to them. They deprive them even of the blessings of nature, starve them in the midst of plenty, and frustrate the natural bounty of the earth to men, so that nature smiles in vain where tyranny frowns. The very hands of men given them by nature for their support are turned by tyrants into the instruments of their misery by being employed in vile drudgeries or destructive wars to gratify the lust and vanity of their execrable 
lords. Tyrants are supported by general ruin. They live by the destruction of mankind. And as fraud and villainy and every species of violence and cruelty are the props of their throne, so they measure their own happiness and security and strength by the misery and weakness of their people. That wealth which dispersed amongst their subjects and circulated in trade and commerce would employ, increase, and enrich them is barbarously robbed from the people and engrossed by these, their oppressors. Alas, power encroaches daily upon liberty with a success too evident, and the balance between them is almost lost. Tyranny has engrossed almost the whole earth, and striking at mankind root and branch makes the world a slaughterhouse and will certainly go on to destroy till it is either destroyed itself or, which is most likely, has left nothing else to destroy. The corruption and lust for power in human nature are the cause of the aggressive nature of power and therefore require eternal vigilance against power's encroachments. There has been always such a constant and certain fund of corruption and malignity in human nature that it has been rare to find that man whose views and happiness did not center in the gratification of his appetites and worst appetites his luxury, his pride, his avarice, and lust of power, and who considered any public trust reposed in him with any other view than as the means to satiate such unruly and dangerous desires. And this has been most eminently true of great men and those who aspired to dominion. They were first made great for the sake of the public, and afterwards at its expense. And if they had been content to have been moderate traders, mankind would have been still moderately happy. But their ambition and treason observing no degrees, there was no degree of vileness and misery which the poor people did not feel. The appetites, therefore, of men, especially of great men, are carefully to be observed and stayed, or else they will never stay themselves. The experience of every age convinces us that we must not judge of men by what they ought to do, but by what they will do. And all history affords but few instances of men trusted with great power without abusing it, when with security they could. Cato assured his readers that there was no danger that the public might exercise its right of revolution against tyrannical government too frequently or imprudently due to settled habits as well as the propaganda and power of government. The danger is quite the reverse. 
It is foolish to say that this doctrine can be mischievous to society, at least in any proportion to the wild ruin and fatal calamities which must befall and do befall the world when the contrary doctrine is maintained. For all bodies of men subsisting upon their own substance or upon the profits of their trade and industry find their account so much in ease and peace and have justly such terrible apprehensions of civil disorders which destroy everything that they enjoy, that they always bear a thousand injuries before they return one and stand under the burdens as long as they can bear them. What with the force of education and the reverence which people are taught and have been always used to pay to princes, what with the perpetual harangues of flatterers, the gaudy pageantry and outside of power, and its gilded ensigns always glittering in their eyes, what with the execution of the laws in the sole power of the prince, what with all the regular magistrates, pompous guards and standing troops, with the fortified towns, the artillery, and all the magazines of war at his disposal. Besides large revenues and multitudes of followers and dependents to support and abet all that he does, obedience to authority is so well secured that it is wild to imagine that any number of men formidable enough to disturb a settled state can unite together and hope to overturn it till the public grievances are so enormous, the oppression so great, and the disaffection so universal that there can be no question remaining whether their calamities to be real or imaginary and whether the magistrate has protected or endeavored to destroy his people. The American colonist eagerly imbibed from Trenchard and Gordon not only the Lockean doctrine of individual liberty and of the right of revolution against government, in what Professor Bernard Balin has justly called a superbly readable form, but also, and even more important, the dichotomy between liberty and power and the ever-constant threat to the crucial liberties of the people by the eternal incursions and encroachment of governmental tyranny. Even more concretely, Trenchard and Gordon were not afraid to point to the corruption and the increasing power of government and its bureaucracy in the relatively free England of their day. It was a warning that the American colonists were eagerly to take to heart. Libertarian English views were also brought to America with a dramatic burst by the great liberal Massachusetts minister, Jonathan Mayhew. We have seen how this deist and Unitarian studied Locke at Harvard and was later to laud the influence upon him of Locke and Algernon Sidney. In early 1750, Mayhew delivered his most celebrated political sermon, significantly as a centennial celebration of the execution of Charles I, a discourse concerning unlimited submission 
and non-resistance to the higher powers. This sermon, which has been called the warning gun of the American Revolution, was the first expression in 18th century America of the sacred right of resistance to tyrannical government. Reason, said Mayhew, dictates the usefulness of obedience to government for social protection. But when government becomes oppressive, when it robs and ruins the public, then they immediately cease to be the ordinance and ministers of God, and no more deserve that glorious character than common pirates and highwaymen. Rulers, continued Mayhew, have no authority from God to do mischief, and citizens have the right to disobey unlawful authority, and in cases of very great and general oppression, to vindicate their natural and legal rights, to break the yoke of tyranny, and free themselves and posterity from inglorious servitude and ruin. Following Locke and Cato, Mayhew pointed out that there was little danger of revolution for trivial causes, for mankind in general have a disposition to be submissive and passive and tame under government. Mayhew also stressed every man's right and duty of private judgment, basing this in turn on the nature of man, his capacity for reason and freedom of will to choose his course of action, and as criteria for choice the individual had available to him knowledge of truth and rightness rooted eternally in the nature of things. The 1744 pamphlet of the Reverend Elisha Williams of Massachusetts, The Essential Rights and Liberties, was also frankly Lockean throughout. Writes Williams, As reason tells us, all are born thus naturally equal, that is, with an equal right to their persons, so also with an equal right to their preservation. And every man having a property in his own person, the labor of his body, and the work of his hands are properly his own, to which no one has right but himself. It will therefore follow that when he removes anything out of the state that nature has provided and left it in, he has his labor with it, and joined something to it that is his own, and thereby makes it his property. Thus every man, having a natural right to or being proprietor of his own person and his own actions and labor, which we call property. It certainly follows that no man can have a right to the person or property of another, and if every man has a right to his person and property, he has also a right to defend them, and so has a right of punishing all insults upon his person and property. Consequently, a law violating natural and constitutional rights is no true law and requires no obedience.
The natural right of private judgment was also upheld by the Reverend William Rand of Massachusetts in 1757 and by the Reverend Joseph Fish of Connecticut three years later. During this period, many of the New Light ministers, under pressure of establishment persecution in several colonies, began to move towards a libertarian position. Alicia Williams was a New Light, the Reverend Samuel Davies, leader of the Southern Newside Presbyterian, declared in 1751 that people had a legal as well as natural right to follow their own judgment and to gauge governmental authority against the great principles of natural justice. Davies' focus, of course, was on religious aspects of liberty. Princeton, the training ground of the New Lights, soon developed as a libertarian center. Davies, president of Princeton from 1759 to 1761, lauded the English Puritan Revolution and exhorted his listeners to fight, if need be, for their liberties. His predecessor, the Reverend Aaron Burr, was noted as a great friend to liberty, both civil and religious in state and church. Separates, new lights in Massachusetts and Connecticut who insisted on clear-cut separation from the state establishment, petitioned extensively for religious liberty and exemption from church taxes, even though the petitions were almost always spurned by the government. Daniel Hovey, of Mansfield was imprisoned in 1747 for refusing to pay the church tax and petitioned for relief on the ground that liberty of conscience was the unalienable right of every rational creature. The separates of Canterbury went beyond this to include the right of liberty and property. In their petition of 1749, they asserted that God's law strictly limited the functions of government to defense of everyone in the free enjoyment and improvement of life, liberty, and property from the force, violence, and fraud of others, their different opinions in ecclesiastical affairs notwithstanding. The Canterbury separates also insisted on the natural right of parishioners to dissent and to separate from them, a welcome consistency for that or indeed for any era. Another leading libertarian petition came in 1743-44 from Exeter, Massachusetts. The petition asked, Is not liberty equally every man's right? The Exeter separates asserted the right of private judgment, the right to separate and the right to be free of taxes for a religious establishment. And though it was rejected, they petitioned again eleven years later. While England was the great fountainhead of intellectual influence in 18th century America, France also was important, even in the first half of the century, more so than has been generally believed. By far the most widely read French writer in the colonies was the great French liberal and deist Francois Voltaire. Despite the enormous prejudice in America against Roman Catholicism and against France, 
Voltaire was able to make his way as a representative of deist and optimist thought, and especially as an avowed disciple of John Locke. For liberalism in 18th century France was a heritage of 17th century liberalism in England, and especially of John Locke. The young Voltaire spent three years of exile in England in the late 1720s, and there became a firm advocate of religious liberty and of freedom of speech and press, and of Locke as their philosophical groundwork. Voltaire's libertarian views were therefore English by inspiration and in content. Voltaire conveyed this liberalism to France with his Philosophical Letters on the English, published in English in 1733 and then in French in 1734. In the letters, he spread the Lockean message to the continent. He also praised the Quakers for their condemnation of war. His English exile also influenced Voltaire to write modern European history. His popular History of Charles XII was published so that people could be cured of the folly of conquest. It is the curious belief of many writers that whereas English liberalism was moderate, pragmatic, and cautious, French liberalism was destructive, absolutist, and revolutionary. The truth is almost the reverse. Liberalism emerged as a coherent doctrine and as a full and powerful force in 17th century England, and a thoroughgoing revolutionary force at that. French liberalism in the following century was frankly taken from England, albeit at a time when English liberal thought had been all but stifled by the Whig settlement. But French liberals despaired of the odds of fomenting revolution against the might of French feudalism and royal absolutism, which were far more rigidly fastened upon France than upon England. The 18th century French liberals therefore remained content with the futile cause of urging liberty upon the royal power as a free gift to the people, a vain hope. When in history has a ruling elite voluntarily surrendered its power and rule as a free gift, unpressured by severe and persistent opposition from below. Part 3 Relations with Britain Volume 2, Chapter 34 Assembly versus Governor We have so far been discussing events and conditions in the American colonies that have been essentially domestic, occurring within a specific colony or within the colonies as a whole. Now we turn to relations and problems that were essentially foreign, relations with the home country and, as part of the British Empire, other countries, especially their possessions on the American continent. While a hard and fast line cannot be drawn between domestic and overseas, or internal and external relations of an imperial appendage, we can still delineate such domestic developments as the growth of liberal thought, even though heavily influenced from abroad, as against such directly imperial relations 
as assembly versus royal governor, mercantilist regulations, or such foreign affairs as war against New France. By the first half of the 18th century, the internal political institutions of the various colonies had reached an uneasy overall quasi-stability, within which a tug of war for power raged between an appointed royal governor and council on the one hand and an elected assembly on the other. The governor had an absolute veto over acts of the legislature, and the council was appointed by the crown on recommendation of the governor. The notable exception was Massachusetts, where the council was elected by the assembly. The governor and council not only constituted the upper legislative body, with the governor as the supreme executive of the colony, but also constituted the supreme judicial agency, creating and appointing the lower courts. Furthermore, governors, as designated vice-admirals, also established vice-admiralty courts to try Navigation Act violations. Appeals, confined to major cases, could only be taken from judicial decisions of governor and council to the supreme organ of the crown, under the king, the Privy Council. Above and beyond the governors, of course, was the crown, which could disallow the acts of colonial legislatures. The Crown also appointed customs officials to collect customs revenue and naval officers to enforce the Navigation Acts. While never in command of naval forces, the governors of New York, South Carolina, and Georgia commanded regular troops stationed on the frontier. As controllers of the public domain, the governors also had authority to make grants of land to whom they pleased. The assemblies, however, were not without formidable resources of their own. Their major resource was that sine qua non of government, money. Only the assemblies could levy taxes and appropriate funds for the government, including such crucial items as governors' salaries. Also, the assembly's consent was needed for any positive legislation in the colonies. In addition, the assembly established the common law courts with their critical guarantee of the right to trial by jury, that is, by the people rather than by royal officials. The picture was not very different in the proprietary colonies, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Maryland, where the proprietary took on the chief executive role, appointing the governor, trying to collect quit rents, and so forth, under the overall watchful eye of the crown. Only the chartered colonies, Connecticut and Rhode Island, which elected their own governors, presented a different picture, and even this virtual independence was subject to the overall regulations of the crown. Throughout the colonies, the tug of war of royal governor and council versus the elected assembly had by the middle of the 18th century resulted in marked dominance by the assembly. In each of the colonies, the critical money power of the assembly over the governor helped the colony establish a virtual de facto control over the executive and hence a virtual independence by mid-century. 
One important reason for the emergent triumph of the colonial assemblies, as will be seen below, was the deliberate failure of the British government to enforce the numerous mercantile restrictions over the colonies throughout most of the first half of the 18th century. But this still does not solve the puzzle of the increasingly feeble executive power in the respective colonies. In his brilliant work, The Origins of American Politics, Professor Bernard Balin posed the question as follows. How is it that, in Britain, where the Parliament was theoretically absolute, the King and his ministers were in practice able to dominate a supine Parliament, whereas in the American colonies, where the governor was theoretically dominant, he invariably lost out to assembly rule. Why was the executive able to dominate in the home country, but not in the colonies? This disparity, Balin pointed out, is particularly puzzling because a. the colonial governors had the right of absolute veto over legislation, whereas the king had no veto over acts of parliament, b. the governors had the legal right to delay or dissolve the legislatures, whereas the king had lost that power in Britain, and c. the governors constituted the supreme judicial power in the colonies while the crown had been forced to accept independent judges in Britain. How, then, the accretion of power to the executive in Britain, accompanied by its decline in the colonies? Balin answered that the crucial difference between the two was that English libertarians of the day denounced as corruption the ability of the crown and its ministers to buy up, to put it bluntly, the will of Parliament. In Britain, the patronage at the control of the crown was enormous, enabling the ministers to purchase parliamentary support. As Balin points out, in Britain, some boroughs, 25 or 30, were owned outright by the government, in the sense that a majority of their electorates were office holders who could be dismissed if they opposed the government. In others, the election of members favorable to the government could be assured by the proper application of electioneering funds. Beyond this, control of the House was assured by the distribution of the Crown patronage available to any administration and by the management of the corps of placement that resulted. In the middle of the 18th century, about 200 of the 558 members of the House of Commons held Crown places of one sort or another, and another 30 or 40 were more loosely tied to government by awards of profitable contracts. Of those who held places, 40 at least held offices intimately involved in the government and were absolutely reliable. The other 160 held a variety of sinecures, household offices, pensions, and military posts, which brought them well within the grasp of the administration, but yet required constant solicitation and management. A fluctuating number of other members were bound to the government less directly, particularly by the gift to their nominees 
of one or more of the 8,000 excise offices available. Balin concludes that for executive dominance of the legislature, several preconditions had to exist, notably the existence of an abundance of patronage in places and a strictly limited franchise. For the larger the voting population, the greater the government's difficulty in controlling elections. England, with a mass of patronage at the disposal of the crown, its severely limited franchise, and a plethora of rotten and pocket boroughs represented in Parliament, had these conditions in abundance in the 18th century. But, Balin points out, these preconditions for executive control and manipulation of the legislature were conspicuous by their absence in the American colonies. While the governors began with limited yet extensive patronage powers, they were systematically stripped of them by royal prescription and, most importantly, by the alert and continuing pressure of the assemblies, which won for themselves ever-increasing powers of appointing executive and judicial officials. The assemblies did so under the guidance of Cato's letters and other expressions of libertarian hostility to the deeply corrupting powers of executive patronage. The assemblies, in contrast to the parliament, were moved to assert themselves to obtain such powers by virtue of the far greater representation and the far more extensive franchise in the colonies than in the mother country. There were no rotten or pocket boroughs in the colonies, and representation far more accurately proceeded proportionately to the growth and dispersion of population. Whereas the common 40-shilling land ownership qualification for voting proved highly restrictive in Britain, it turned out to be highly permissive in the colonies. Usually, from 50 to 75 percent of the adult male white population in the colonies was eligible to vote. Additional relative advantages enjoyed by the colonial legislatures were the early growth of express and rigorous instructions by the towns and counties to their representatives, binding them to the will of the voters, a practice which scarcely existed in England. The impermanence of the tenure of the governors, in contrast to the lengthy tenure of the leading assemblymen, and the ability of the colonies to go over the heads of the governors to the authorities in Britain. Adding to the virtual independence by mid-century of the colonies and their assemblies was the determination of the British government not to enforce the myriad of mercantilist regulations passed by Parliament, controlling and restricting the trade and industry of the colonies. Volume 2, Chapter 35 Mercantilist Restrictions the fundamental attitude of England toward its colonies was one of imperial domination, regulation, and exploitation for the benefit of the merchants and manufacturers of the imperial center. The basic mercantilist structure was built up by the Navigation Acts during the 17th century. 
even before Britain was in a position to attempt to enforce these regulations. The aim was to benefit English trade and to supply the home country with raw materials, but always for the enhancement of the English merchant or manufacturer. The means was a growing network of restrictions and prohibitions to be enforced by the arm of the state. The Navigation Acts had begun with the Cromwellian Protectorate as the Puritan Revolution began to be transformed into the Counter-Revolution and eventually into a not very jolting restoration of the Stuarts. The first Acts of 1650-51 prohibited the export of colonial and non-European products to Britain in ships not owned or largely manned by Englishmen or English colonists, and prohibited the export of European goods to the colonies in non-English ships that did not come from the producing country. The major aim of the Acts was to crush the efficient and flourishing Dutch carrying trade, which provided unwelcome competition for English shippers. The Navigation Act of 1660 greatly broadened the navigation laws by prohibiting in colonial trade all non-English or non-American ships manned by crews less than 75% English. An early edition also insisted that the ships must be English-built. Furthermore, the Act erected a category of enumerated articles, the most important commodities in the colonial trade, which Americans could sell only to England or to another English colony. Thus, other European countries could not bid against English purchasers or English shippers. Tobacco was the major commodity in the enumerated list, which also included sugar and indigo. The next Navigation Act, the Staple Act of 1663, assured a monopoly of colonial trade to English merchants by prohibiting any import of European goods into the colonies that did not pass through England and pay English duties and were not carried on English-built ships. There were a few specified exemptions. The extra tax also constituted a subsidy to English manufacturers in the colonial market by artificially burdening their foreign competitors. From the beginning, the Crown had great difficulty in enforcing these acts, and the American colonists happily participated in the ancient English tradition of extensive smuggling. The later blocks of the Navigation Act structure consisted of attempts to counteract these evasions and enforce the regulations. The Plantation Duty Act of 1673 tried to crack down on the practice of one colony shipping tobacco to another, for instance Virginia to Maryland or North Carolina to Boston, the second colony then freely re-exporting the staple to Europe. The new act provided that the colony must pay the English import duty on all shipments of enumerated goods from one colony to another and also prohibited their re-export. 
The Act also provided for colonial royal customs collectors, of whom the redoubtable Edward Randolph was an outstanding early example. The Climatic Navigation Act came in 1696. It provided for tightened enforcement of previous acts, including giving customs officials the right of forcible entry in search for violations and the creation of vice-admiralty courts without jury trials for violators, thus trying to circumvent the tendency of American juries not to convict smugglers. Furthermore, in 1705, the list of enumerated articles was lengthened to include rice, molasses, timber, and naval stores, plus many other items. Copper and fur were added in 1722 to supervise the workings of the imperial structure and to administer the colonies, the Crown established several important agencies. The continuing operating head was the Board of Trade, newly revivified in 1696 with eight paid and active members and allied to the English merchants. During its first twenty years, the Board pursued an energetic course, but by the early 1720s it had succumbed to the happy and deliberate indolence of the Walpole administration in England. In 1714, Queen Anne, a high Tory possessed of reactionary instincts, died and was succeeded to the throne by George I. With King George, the Whigs came securely to power, and in 1722, Robert Walpole entered upon a long tenure as the king's chief minister. Walpole, moderately liberal and pacific, headed a centrist Whig oligarchy. Walpole wanted only to govern in peace and quiet, to keep government meddling low-key, and to let natural social forces bring prosperity to England. He was wise enough to know that an inactive and sluggish and therefore harmless government implied an active and thriving citizenry. Under Walpole, not only did the Board of Trade become quiet and inactive, but also the once powerful Privy Council became an innocuous and virtually honorary body. The colonies were governed by one of Britain's two secretaries of state, the Secretary of State for the Southern Department. His foreign duties included not only all the colonies, but France and Southern Europe as well. Under Walpole's rule, the American colonies found to their delight that the numerous mercantile regulations, prohibitions, and dictates were simply not being enforced. One reason was Walpole's happy instincts for letting men be free to administer their own affairs, as well as his insight that colonial trade needed to be let alone rather than regulated and restrained. Another reason was the heavy burdens laid upon the Secretary of State. The third was Walpole's inspired choice for Secretary of State for the South. This was young Thomas Holes Pelham, Duke of Newcastle. Willing and eager to leave the colonies alone so long as he could control the patronage of his office, Newcastle pursued a policy of 
what was later happily conceptualized by Edmund Burke as salutary neglect. Under Newcastle, delighted Americans found that the onerous regulations, restrictions, and charges upon them were simply not being attended to. Newcastle brought the activist of the British Colonial Administration to despair as messages piled up on his desk, unread and unheeded. Newcastle has too often been written off as a dolt by historians. Better would be the explanation that he was close to the moderately liberal Whig intellectuals of St. John's College, Cambridge, where Master John Newcomb kept alive a tradition of civil liberty and of Locke and Newton. Newcomb's nephew, Bishop Samuel Squire, also an historian and educated at St. John's, became Newcastle's chaplain and private secretary. Particularly beloved in the colonies was John Lord Monson, president of the Board of Trade in the late 1740s, who magnificently refused even to submit colonial business to higher authorities or to make any recommendations whatever on colonial affairs. Apart from the Navigation Acts, other imperial restrictions on the colonies were designed to cripple any threatened growth in manufactures that might compete successfully with English firms. As woolen factories began to develop in New England and on Long Island in effective competition with English woolens, England passed the Wool Act in 1699, viciously prohibiting any exportation of raw wool or of finished woolens to any other colony or to England. Woolen goods in this period constituted the largest single item, over one-half, of British exports to the American colonies, and the British manufacturers were anxious to shore up their position. Although it is easier to enforce restrictions on manufacturing than on the more mobile commerce, and although the Wool Act blighted the development of American woolens, the industry was still able to grow. In 1702, the Board of Trade grumbled about English wool workers being enticed to America to work at the more efficient and therefore higher-paying woolen firms there. During the War of the Spanish Succession, a shortage in the available supply of English cloth led Americans to manufacture their own woolens, especially in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. To escape the provisions of the Wool Act, the colonists often drove their sheep to and from the place of woolen manufacture, since carrying the wool itself out of a colony had been outlawed. In 1732, Parliament, under pressure of marginal and inefficient felt hat makers in London, moved to crush nascent hat manufacturers in the northern colonies. The Hat Act, 1. Prohibited the export of hats from one colony to another. 2. Restricted the people allowed to make hats to those who had been apprenticed for seven years. 3. Limited the number of apprentices in each hat firm to two and four prohibited Negro apprentices. Fortunately, the act was only sporadically enforced. 
In fact, Martin Bladen of the Board of Trade ranted that the colonies were running into all sorts of manufactures, which must be stopped. Bladen went so far as to propose that people acquitted of violations in colonial courts be retried in England, but fortunately, this extreme suggestion was not followed. During the same year, Parliament outlawed the export of hops from the colonies to Ireland, in reaction to American hops competing successfully with the English in the Irish market. Before this, in 1722, beaver skins, furs, and copper had been placed on the enumerated list, thereby at least partially crippling the New York fur trade, over a third of which exports had been to the European continent. In 1736, four years after the Hat Act, Parliament struck savagely at the growing colonial manufacture of canvas, sailcloth, decreeing that all future ships built in the colonies must be constructed with sails of British-made cloth only. The Iron Act of 1750 was a compromise between two groups of English manufacturers. Each seeking a conflicting set of special privileges, the iron industry, second only to the woolen industry in importance to the English economy, was divided into two groups: the iron masters, who smelted pig and bar iron from iron ore, and the finished iron manufacturers, who transformed pig and bar iron into nails, machinery, and so forth. The economic interest of the two groups in public policy clashed squarely. The iron masters were alarmed at the rapid emergence of bar iron production in the northern colonies after 1735, and with bitterness they called for prohibitive tariffs on the importation of pig iron and even the total suppression of the American iron industry. In this demand, they were joined by English iron mine owners and by forest owners who sold charcoal as fuel in the iron smelting process. On the other side were the finished iron producers, who wanted to encourage American bar and pig iron production by admitting its products duty free, but to prohibit finished iron manufacturing in the colonies. They were joined by the English shipowners, who wanted to encourage the two-way transatlantic traffic of pig iron for finished products. Finally, the latter group triumphed completely with the Iron Act of 1750. The Act admitted colonial pig and bar iron duty-free, but prohibited any increase in finished iron manufacturing, including slitting mills to make nails. Plating mills to make sheet iron, or steel furnaces to make steel. Fortunately, the Iron Act too was not very rigorously enforced. The iron industry continued to grow in the colonies. The urban finishing mills, as well as the rural plantation blast furnaces for smelting ore into pig iron, and forges for converting pig into bar iron. The colonists, moreover, continued to finish most of their own bar iron. Ironworks were built in every colony but Georgia. 
The heaviest concentrations soon emerged in Pennsylvania around the Philadelphia area. However, the largest plants, each a large-scale investment of $250,000 worth of Principia Works in Maryland and the works of Peter Hazenclever in New Jersey, the bulk of which was blast furnaces and forges for pig and bar iron. By the eve of the American Revolution, American production of pig and bar iron had exceeded the output of all of Great Britain. The British government, as early as the 17th century, had placed great importance on trees for masts for the Royal Navy. Although Britain acted to suppress competing colonial manufacturers, it wished to stimulate supplies for the Navy. For this purpose, it coercively diverted colonial timber to the production of masts and other naval stores. The main conflict centered around this question. Who should gain the use and the profit of the larger trees suitable for naval stores, the individual settlers or the Royal Navy? The Royal Navy first struck a blow in the imposed Massachusetts Charter of 1691, which decreed the reservation to the crown of all trees of 24 inches or larger in diameter when situated on the public domain. The charter provision, however, was not enforced. One of the main problems in trying to force American, particularly New Hampshire, timber into naval stores was that such use was uneconomic. Northern European naval stores were cheaper and of considerably higher quality, and the colonists had better and more profitable uses for their timber. A network of subsidies and prohibitions was therefore imposed. The New England merchants, for example, refused to produce naval stores unless the Admiralty granted them the privilege of the advance guarantee of a fixed price, a fixed quantity, and a long-term contract. In 1705, the Naval Stores Act, accordingly, one, extended the prohibition on private cutting to pitched pines and tar trees on the public domain, and to trees with 12-inch diameters or more, but the diameter was measured from higher up than the Massachusetts Charter, located in any of the northern colonies. Two, placed naval stores on the enumerated list, and three, granted generous bounties for the exporting of naval stores to England, including pitch, tar, rosin, turpentine, hemp, masts, and other timber. Thus the carrot was combined with the stick. Cutting of the bigger trees, moreover, could be done only under special royal license. To ensure enforcement of the restrictions and to encourage naval stores production, the English merchants had the Board of Trade send John Bridger to the colonies. Concentrating on the New Hampshire coast, Bridger was still unable to enforce the restrictions. What is more, the Massachusetts General Court refused to follow the lead of New Hampshire in reaffirming the restrictive clauses of the Massachusetts Charter. Consequently, Parliament passed the White Pine Act of 1711, extending those provisions of the Charter to New England, New York, 
and New Jersey. Moreover, the White Pine Act of 1722 prohibited cutting without royal license any white pine trees that were publicly or privately owned, and growing outside township limits in New England, New York, or New Jersey. The restrictions still proved unenforceable. As Bridger began to get convictions of woodsmen committing violations, the neighbors of the offenders refused to buy their condemned property at auctions, and therefore the government could not collect its fines. Furthermore, Bridger's zeal was cooled by woodsmen threatening to shoot him if they caught him interfering with their livelihood. The sturdy New Hampshire frontiersmen, dependent on timber cutting for their livelihood, averred that the king has no wood and that they will cut what and where they please. Indeed, the regulations could not be enforced, even though further restrictions were imposed on the cutting of pine trees. In 1729, cutting any pine on public lands, even within township bounds, required a license, and any cutting on private lands that had become private since 1690 of trees over 24 inches in diameter was prohibited without a license. Furthermore, in 1722, exclusive jurisdiction over the timber laws was turned over to the royally appointed and juryless vice-admiralty courts. Trying to enforce the tightened restrictions was the tyrannical Scot David Dunbar, Surveyor General of the King's Woods and Lieutenant Governor of New Hampshire. But Dunbar was checked not only by the decided lack of enthusiasm of Governor Jonathan Belcher, but also by magnificent countersuits filed by the timber cutters for their defense of their property against the surveyor. The countersuits, moreover, were tried in the anti-timber law civil courts of New England. In reaction, Dunbar began to seize and destroy the timber and equipment of the illegal loggers. In 1734, a pitched battle broke out near Exeter, New Hampshire. Dunbar and his men found a party of illegal woodsmen and seized their cut timber. The infuriated woodsmen struck back, and Dunbar's men were beaten up and Dunbar himself endangered. The unsympathetic New Hampshire Council refused Dunbar's request for military support. The New England courts were understandably inclined to regard the surveyor's new power to reserve private trees for the Royal Navy as an invasive trespass against private property. Particularly galling to the colonist was the reservation of all pine trees to the crown, except for privately owned ones within township limits. Even Dunbar tried to permit the cutting of smaller pines unsuitable for ship mast, but he was sharply overruled by the Crown. When an employee of the naval subcontractor and merchant Samuel Waldo cut marked timber on private land for sale to the Navy, he was arrested for trespassing and fined by the justices of the peace. Waldo employed the British placeman William Shirley 
Advocate General of the Admiralty Court, and surely won a not unsurprisingly favorable decision for the royal prerogative in the Privy Council. The case of Frost v. Leighton, 1730. Still, Governor Belcher, sympathetic to the private timberland owners and merchants, refused to enforce the onerous laws. In 1744, the new governor, William Shirley, who had intrigued to oust Belcher in league with naval contracting interests, capped his renewed drive for enforcement by putting through the Massachusetts legislature an extension of the reservation of large pine trees to all forest, private and public. Furthermore, Colonel William Pepperell, one of the great leaders in Maine timber, had changed from an opponent to supporter of the timber bill after having acquired close family connections with Samuel Waldo. He had received some of Waldo's naval subcontracts for timber. The upshot of the restrictions was unfortunate for the Crown. Its decrees could not prevent a large-scale destruction of the royal woods, while at the same time they permanently enraged the northern woodsmen. Indeed, the result of arbitrarily reserving the trees to the Crown meant that private persons could not own a body of trees, and therefore that the individual colonists were forced to cut down the trees as quickly as possible. Since a colonist was forcibly prevented from owning the standing trees themselves, but could only use the cut lumber, this meant that the trees were in a de facto state of no ownership, and it was to no one's economic interest to keep any of them standing. On the contrary, it was to each man's interest to cut the trees and thus bring them into private use before his neighbor could beat him to it. The consequences of the various parts of British policy can be seen in New Hampshire, a main center for massed trees for the Navy. Royal licensing to allow cutting of the large white pine trees was reserved for those persons who also had massed contracts from the Navy. In New Hampshire, this meant the powerful Wentworth family. The Wentworths had, in the first place, a virtual monopoly of the naval mast contracts. They were also habitually the appointed surveyor generals, the rulers of the royal woods, and the governors of New Hampshire. Thus, Benning Wentworth and his nephew John Wentworth, each in his time, combined all of these offices. By mid-century, the Wentworths were greatly helped in securing the contracts by powerful connections in England, including the Marquis of Rockingham. Governor Benning Wentworth, Royal New Hampshire's first governor independent of Massachusetts, did not, however, prove to be an efficient enforcer of the royal timber regulations. For twenty years after his appointment as surveyor of the King's Woods, Wentworth, secure in his naval contracts, happily bothered little with enforcement, and complaints of his laxity by his deputy surveyor came to the Board of Trade. Wentworth made two sporadic attempts at enforcement in these two decades. In 1753, Wentworth told his zealous deputy Daniel Blake to seize all cut white pine lumber in his native Connecticut, whether on public or private land, in the township or out. 
When Governor Roger Wolcott of Connecticut protested this high-handed act in vain, the people of Connecticut decided to resort to effective direct action. Blake was rudely thrown into a pond, which experience served to discourage any further enforcement efforts. Wentworth's other enforcement attempt turned out just as badly. In 1758, Wentworth seized 1,500 white pine logs in New Hampshire and nearly 2,000 in Massachusetts. But the confiscated logs were in each instance repossessed or destroyed by the angry citizens. In Massachusetts, the logs were either retaken by the public or floated down to sea. In New Hampshire, the populace burned down a sawmill at which Wentworth was busily converting the captured pine logs into boards of lumber. Nor were the substantial bounties able to create a flourishing naval stores industry in the northern colonies, as had been their design. We've already seen the fiasco of the Palatine experiment, when the Crown shipped hapless Palatine German farmers to up-country New York in a vain attempt to produce naval stores. When the bounties lapsed in 1724, the naval stores industry in the North collapsed, whereupon the bounties were resumed on a reduced scale in 1729. Only the South, particularly South Carolina, was able to develop a thriving naval stores industry, even under the impetus of a bounty. The most important restrictive act of the first half of the 18th century was the Molasses Act of 1733. Since the mid-17th century, trade with the West Indies had become vital to the northern colonies. Lacking the great staples of the South with their ready English market, for example, tobacco, rice, the North could buy English manufacturers only by selling grain and provisions to the West Indies in exchange for sugar and its molasses derivative. The North could not sell its products to England to a large extent because the English Corn Laws served to exclude northern wheat and imports of salted food were prohibited for the benefit of English producers. Boston became the great center of triangular trade with the West Indies. New England merchants exchanged fish and lumber for sugar and molasses, and then traded the latter to England in exchange for English manufacturers. After 1715, this triangular arrangement was further refined. The North, Newport, Boston, New York, began heavily participating in the slave trade. Northern ships would acquire Negro slaves in West Africa, transport the slaves to the West Indies, where they were in heavy demand, and then exchange them for sugar and molasses. The molasses would be processed into rum in New England distilleries, and the rum carried to West Africa to pay for the slaves. By 1750, in fact, there were 63 distilleries in Massachusetts and 30 in Rhode Island. And by 1771, American slave ships reached a capacity of fully one-fourth of England's mighty slave fleet. 
Before 1700, the northern colonists had conducted their trade with the British West Indies. But after that date, production on these islands became less efficient and more costly. Burdened by old, exhausted soil and inefficient absentee plantations, the British West Indies planters found themselves outproduced and outcompeted at every turn by the other West Indian islands, especially the French islands of Guadeloupe, Martinique, and San Domingo. The French West Indies raised sugar at lower cost on newer and more fertile soil, and their management was far more efficient. Thwarted in the voluntary competition of the marketplace, the British planters turned to the coercive arm of the state to try to shackle the burgeoning American-French West Indies trade. The British West Indian planters, led by the sugar planters of Barbados, organized a powerful lobby in London centered in the Jamaica Coffee House and agitated for prohibition of the French West Indies trade. In this, they were allied to the London Association of Sugar Bakers. Finally, after several years of successful agitation in the House of Commons, the planters obtained passage in both houses of Parliament of the Molasses Act of 1733. The Molasses Act levied prohibitively high duties on any foreign sugar, molasses, or rum imported into the English colonies. The northern colonies protested bitterly that the subsequent great increase in the price of sugar and molasses and the lowered price of their own staples in the narrow markets of the English West Indies would be their ruination. How indeed could the northerners purchase English manufacturers, as England and its manufacturers desired, if they could earn no purchasing power, if colonial manufacturing and the vital trade with the French West Indies were to be banned? The Molasses Act would certainly have dealt a grave blow to the economy of the northern colonies. But there was one great saving grace— no British regulation was more cheerfully evaded and less adequately enforced. The Walpoles were willing to appease the powerful West Indies planters by passing the Molasses Act, but they were not willing to wreck the colonial economy by enforcing it, a typically charming Walpole compromise. In 1739, the British Sugar Act threw another bone to the planters for their disappointment at the failure to enforce the Molasses Act. The planters were now allowed to ship their sugar directly to southern Europe without going through English ports. In all sugar sales to Europe, the planters were freed from paying English duties. This concession was gained over the fierce protest of the planters' erstwhile ally, the United Company of Grocers and Sugar Bakers, which wanted to continue forcing the planters to sell their sugar to it. Three years later, the planters gained another wise concession, permission to carry sugar in non-British-built ships. This gain was made over the expected bitter complaints of the English shipbuilding industry. Volume 2, Chapter 36, 
King George's War. The emergence of French colonial trade in the first quarter of the 18th century, spurred by liberal economic policies instituted by the French premier, Cardinal Fleury, provoked desires by its less efficient competitors to crush the trade by force. This was true not only of French West Indian sugar, but also of the New France fur trade, which by the late 1720s was out-competing the English colonies in the supply of beaver. It was true also of French fishing in the north, which was more efficient than English fishing, even after France had lost Newfoundland and Nova Scotia to England at the Peace of Utrecht. A typical reaction was that of Governor William Shirley of Massachusetts, who repeatedly proposed to end the competition by seizing French Canada by force. But standing athwart all rising pressures for renewed aggression against France was the great Walpole, who brought to his long rule an overriding love of peace and opposition to foreign meddling and aggression. Robert Walpole indeed brought to the Whig Party a policy of consistent liberalism, of quiet, minimal government, of low budgets and taxes, of little intervention at home coupled with peace, quiet and minimal government meddling abroad. He thus not only kept Britain at peace for a generation, but also brought to the Whig Party an internally consistent liberal program. From that time on, the Whig tradition remained one of liberalism, and included such leaders of peace and neutrality as Walpole, the Pelhams, the Rockingham Whigs, and Charles James Fox. It was fortunate for Walpole that in the same way that he was able to resist opposition charges of dishonor, appeasement, and sell-out to France, so his French ally and counterpart, Cardinal Fleury, was able to pursue a steadfast policy of peace despite opposition charges of appeasement and sell-out to Great Britain. England had attacked France in two costly wars, in King William's War and Queen Anne's War, which had ended with the Peace of Utrecht in 1713. Now Walpole resolved that the peace would remain unbroken. The French, despite their losses in Canada at the Peace of Utrecht, were able to construct a mighty defensive fort at Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island to guard against further English aggression against Quebec. In a far greater feat, they explored and began to develop the Mississippi and the Ohio Valleys. New Orleans was founded by the French in 1718, and the fur trade developed in the Ohio Valley and defensive forts built there. France not only had survived the English attempt to throw her out of the New World, but was able to expand its settlements and outcompete its rivals. The professional patriots, the warmongers, and francophobes were looking for any excuse for aggression, and they thought they had found their opportunity in the War of the Polish Succession, which broke out in Europe in the 1730s. Walpole, seeing no English interest involved, stood out alone for peace, even against King George II, 
John Carteret, and other opposition leaders in the House of Commons. Resisting the war pressure successfully, Walpole proudly told Queen Caroline in 1734, Madam, there are 50,000 men slain this year in Europe, and not one Englishman. The war party was unable to prevail in the war of the Polish succession, though it did drag Britain into war with Spain amidst whipped-up hysteria over Captain Jenkins' ear. For the war party, such an opportunity to grab Spanish territory was even as welcome as a war with France. Effective in leading the war hawks in the commons was the fiery and maniacal orator William Pitt. The War of Jenkins' Ear was a classic example of the use of patriotic myth to whip up popular hysteria fomented for other goals. In 1731, Captain Robert Jenkins returned from the Caribbean with a harrowing tale that Spanish officers, in searching his ship, had cut off his ear. This tale was taken up by the war crowd seven years later, even though Jenkins' ear was apparently intact, and used by the pro-war press to foment aggression against Spain. The actual mainspring of the aggressive war against Spain had nothing to do with national honor or Captain Jenkins. It stemmed instead from long-standing maneuvers by leading London merchants to acquire a monopoly of the West Indian slave trade. In 1663, Charles II had granted the Royal African Company the exclusive monopoly of carrying slaves from Africa to the English colonies, as well as the exclusive right to own land in Africa. After waging a successful war against a competing Dutch company to gain a monopoly of the slave trade, the Royal African Company after 1680 specialized in slave exports to New Spain. The Spanish government sold to private firms the coveted privilege of the Asiento, the exclusive monopoly of supplying Spanish colonies with slaves. And the Royal African Company was able to become a favorite subcontractor of the Spanish Asientists. Its main trade was with the new Spanish ports, Cartagena on the mainland, Havana and Portobello on the Isthmus of Panama. In 1698, the complaints of the English planters over a shortage of slaves led the British government to cancel Royal African's monopoly and to throw open the English slave trade to other groups. The Asiento was one of the main reasons for England's precipitation of the War of the Spanish Succession, known in America as Queen Anne's War, against France and Spain in 1701, for Philip V, the new king of Spain in 1700, was a grandson of the French king Louis XIV, and he promptly awarded the coveted Asiento to the French Guinea Company, an act that led powerful English merchants interested in the slave trade to support an English war upon the two countries. At the Peace of Utrecht, the British financiers achieved what they wanted— for Spain was forced to grant Britain 
a 30-year asiento for the slave trade to the Spanish colonies. The British government granted the asiento monopoly to the newly formed South Sea Company, which promptly used its privilege as a base for general trade with the Spanish West Indies, indeed as a base for a vast amount of illegal trade as well. The South Sea Company was an organization dominated by the leading West Indian merchants and planters. They were led by Alderman William Beckford, the wealthiest planter and an absentee landlord in London, and they supported the imperialist opposition to the Pacific Walpole. How the Spanish government no more welcomed evasion of its mercantilist regulations than did any other government. It was the attempt of the Spanish colonial coast guard to stop and search British ships in Spanish territorial waters that precipitated England's going to war, despite England's previous recognition of Spain's exclusive right of trade with its own colony. The Jenkins ear hoax was fostered by British merchants to gull the country into going to war in order to swell their profits in the illegal trade with the Spanish colonies. The interested merchants allied to the jingoists were led in commons by William Pitt, the main political protege of Beckford, and his boy patriots. These war hawks could not this time be denied, even though Walpole was able to negotiate a compromise agreement with Spain in the Convention of El Pardo in 1739. Walpole's lone resistance to the war drive was eloquent, noting the Spanish treaty right of search in its own waters against illegal trade, he warned that the warmongers insist that our ships ought never to be searched wherever they are to be found, and let them be ever so near to the Spanish coast. Pray, sir, what is the plain English of this but that the trade to the Spanish West Indies ought to be open to every interloper of ours? Yet the facts of the case, the Convention of El Pardo, and Walpole's stubborn eloquence could not this time prevail, and George II declared war against Spain in October 1739. A new wave of deadly European wars had thus begun. Walpole, hearing the bells ring in celebration, prophetically warned, They are ringing their bells. They will be ringing their hands soon. As we have seen, Georgia quickly used the war as an excuse for an attack on St. Augustine, but the most fateful result was the widening of the conflict to France as well. Even though forced to go to war, Walpole tried to keep the fighting as limited as possible. In this effort, he was joined by the powerful British West Indian sugar planters. The planters only wanted to cripple Spanish trade, they emphatically did not want a conquest of French or Spanish colonial territory that would open up the latter's products to English colonial markets. Prospects for limiting the war, however, were ruined in 1740 by the outbreak of the entirely separate War of the Austrian Succession. The Pacific Walpole was finally ousted in 1742, and the king forced the Duke of Newcastle to bring into the cabinet the war hawk Lord Carteret, 
who rushed in to try to mount an all-out war against France, which erupted in 1744 and which became known in America as King George's War. The war dragged on in costly and inconclusive fashion until peace was made at the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle in 1748. Restoring the state of affairs of the status quo antebellum, including reconfirmation of the Spanish Asiento to the South Sea Company. The most important event of King George's War in the colonies and the most fateful of future consequences was the expedition that conquered the fortress of Louisbourg from the French. From his appointment to the governorship of Massachusetts in 1741, William Shirley had been zealous in preparation and expeditions for a war. On assuming his post, Shirley quickly and happily built up a patronage machine, and the build-up was created out of increasing war and military expenditures. Provision contracts for favored merchants, recruiting fees, and naval expenditures lined the coffers of Shirley and his friends. And, as governments have eternally found before and since, the cry of defense proved to be a superb patriotic cloak for these nest-feathering operations. Previous conflicts were forgotten as contractors and subcontractors scrambled to win places on the war gravy train, as Professor Schutz, a most favorable biographer of Shirley, writes, defense activities raised a political tide in Shirley's favor. Speculators, contractors, and merchants prospered, and their profits attached them to the new administration. The new defense policy won the support of many of Belcher's allies. Lesser men, in turn, looked to the contractors. A chain of favors spread war business to a large number of people. The powerful merchant Thomas Hancock, a former opponent of Shirley's, had been bought out by being tied into a firm receiving virtually half of the war contract business in Massachusetts. The old alliance with the merchant Samuel Waldo was further cemented by Governor Shirley himself being made a junior partner in Waldo's enterprises. After France and England went to war in Europe in earnest, in 1744, Shirley determined to escalate the war to the colonies and to capture the great fortress of Louisbourg. In this plan, Shirley was backed enthusiastically by the Duke of Bedford, the new First Lord of the Admiralty, and a leading imperialist and expansionist. Driven by patriotism, the desire to crush efficient French fur and fishing competition, and the lure of greater war contracts, Shirley pressed his plan. But the general court balked at the difficulty and the great expense. Soon, however, in early 1745, the legislature, steered by William Pepperell, the great timber merchant, lent its approval. Pepperell was promptly appointed commander-in-chief of the expedition, and the choice colonelcies and contracts were handed out to Shirley's key friends. Shirley's sons-in-law, Eliakim Hutchinson and William Bolin, 
were put in charge of recruiting and provisioning. Waldo was made a brigadier general and his son a commissary, and Pepperell's son-in-law was appointed a contractor. A large issue of paper currency was voted to provide the necessary funds. If Shirley and his friends had never had it so good, the same was scarcely true for the people of Massachusetts. Shirley hoped to raise three thousand men for the expedition, but when enough seamen did not volunteer, the kidnapping policy of impressment was used to fill the quotas. The impressments caused riots in several towns and protests at town meetings. Here, indeed, was a harbinger of ominous things to come for the crown and its relations with the people of Massachusetts. The expedition finally got underway at the end of March, 1745. Impressments continued as 1,000 more men were sought and bitterness increased among the public. All qualms were stilled, however, by the burst of popular enthusiasm for the capture of Louisbourg in mid-June. Dreaming of and asking for more favors and a baronetcy, as well as his grandiose projects for the conquest of Canada, Shirley ladled out huge contracts to Hancock and his other friends for the maintenance and reconstruction of Louisbourg. Victory, however, soon proved to have troubles of its own in store for the conquerors. Newcastle and the Prime Minister, his brother, Henry Pelham, were instinctive liberals and had always been reluctant to pursue the war with France. They were now increasingly appalled at the high cost and length of the war. Their major aim was to conclude peace as quickly and as gracefully as possible. Their main task was subtly to scuttle their own war effort, and in particular to stem the rise of patrioteering hysteria in England over the unexpected capture of Louisbourg, the kind of hysteria that called for all-out conquest of Canada, and that led the First Lord of the Admiralty to swear that he would hang the man who dared to surrender Louisbourg. Pelham and Newcastle were now afraid more of the English war crowd than of the French. Another such victory as Louisbourg would be disaster indeed. Hence they began a subtle process of disengagement from the war and therefore from further conquest. As a part of this process of pacification, William Shirley received slight reward for his victorious campaign, obtaining a colonelcy, but not the coveted title of baronet. The post of colonel, however, with its correlative patronage, was lucrative enough, and Shirley and Pepperell spent a happy time in Louisbourg, parceling out all the new patronage and war contracts, including captaincies to two of Shirley's sons. Such friends, relatives, and fellow booty sharers as Robert Hale, Bolin, Hutchinson, Robert Ockmoody, Benjamin Coleman, Hancock, and Paul Dudley were cut in for their share. As always, Samuel Waldo profited handsomely, his son becoming captain and in charge of supply for his regiment, and his stepbrother and Pepperell's son-in-law, Nathaniel Sparhawk, placed in charge of selling French war loot 
in Boston. But in the meanwhile, the loot of the lower-ranking heroes was not as abundant. At Louisburg, supplies were low, sickness high, and the troops restive. And through the stormy winter, Shirley found it difficult to supply the unfortunate garrison. Furthermore, the American volunteers found themselves after the victory under the command of British naval officers who had played a decidedly minor role in the triumph. The colonial soldiers had enlisted only for the length of a summer campaign, but now found to their outrage that British officers forced them to remain in Louisbourg for the entire miserable winter. The troops threatened to mutiny, and only the personal visit of Shirley in the fall, promising speedier payment and discharges in the spring, quieted the incipient rebellion. By the sobering spring of 1746, the people of Massachusetts began to learn some of the cost of their famous victory. By the end of the winter, fully nine hundred men, one-third of the victorious New England soldiery, had died at Louisbourg. This bitter pill was aggravated by the conduct of the returning British fleet. Many maltreated British seamen took the opportunity of being in Boston to jump ship and the British officers aroused hostility by rounding up and killing two of their sailors, as well as press-ganging American seamen to replace the deserters. Assemblymen from Boston and other seaport towns reflected popular wrath against Eliakim Hutchinson, one of Shirley's favorites who had been a leading contractor of supplies to Louisbourg and was in charge of procuring seamen in the colony. In the 1747 election, the Massachusetts Assembly removed Hutchinson from the council and tried its best to have him dismissed from his judicial and military post. Shirley, however, remained undaunted and pressed on the plan for a massive attack on Quebec, the key to Canada. Pelham at first used a French offer of peace to veto such aggression, But Newcastle and Pelham were soon forced to agree in order to appease the war-minded at home. However, resistance to the heavy taxes needed for the campaign grew rapidly in the Massachusetts legislature. Again, a heavily inflationary issue of paper money was put through. Voluntary enlistment dried up from the dread example of Louisbourg, but Shirley quickly drafted a frontier garrison and other colonies supplied men. New York furnished 1,600 and Connecticut 1,000. The promised British troops never arrived, thus ending the prospective expedition, and unhappy soldiers and sailors began to desert en masse in the summer of 1746. When constables tried to arrest the deserters, They were assaulted by the local populace, and frontier posts, stripped by Shirley for the epic expedition, were overrun by the French and their Indian allies. Shirley was still fanatically eager to press the attack in December, even without British aid, but was overruled by the good prudence of his associates and other New England governors. 
Finally, Shirley's dream of a great 1747 expedition was destroyed by Newcastle's firm cancelling of all British plans for the attack. Shirley would have pressed on regardless, but neither the other colonies nor Massachusetts would go along. There was method in the madness of Shirley's persistent and almost frenzied zeal for more and bigger wars. His ties of friendship and political alliance were held together only by the tenuous band of continuing mutual profit. The end or even the slackening of war meant lower government spending, diminished war contracts, lower patronage, slackened inflation, and tighter credit. And almost immediately, Shirley's plundering friends, the Waldos, Hancocks, and Kilbys, grew sullen and restive. By November 17, 1747, the British fleet was ready to sail out of Boston for Jamaica. It still faced the problem of replacing its numerous deserters. A massive British press gang swooped down upon the British docks, seized almost fifty laborers, and dragged them to the ships. An angry Boston crowd of several hundred quickly gathered and began looking for British officers. The sheriff and his deputies were severely beaten. The mob captured several British officers as hostages for the impressed Americans and then marched on Governor Shirley himself, who was harboring several other officers. The mob denounced Shirley for supporting the impressment. For a while, Shirley was able to cow the crowd into releasing a few officers, but then the mob regained its courage and began to attack the governor's house. A deputy sheriff was beaten and put into the stocks. The mob shifted their attack to the council room, and Shirley was particularly disturbed to find that the local militia refused to obey orders to assemble and put down the riot. The mob's courage finally faltered, however, in attacking the council and governor himself. But they did burn an oil barge, and they still held several British officers. Shirley finally found it best to flee to the safety of the island fortress of Castle William. The British naval commander, Charles Knowles, reacted as a true military man, threatening to shell Boston until his men were released. But the wiser Shirley finally prevailed upon him to agree to the mob's demands and release the impressed colonist. The rioting was over, and the rebellious citizens of Boston had won their vital point. Governor Shirley, considerably shaken, termed the riots an insurrection. The assembly had given him no trouble, but he railed against various democratic town meetings and especially against the mobbish, factious spirit of Boston. Shirley complained that Boston was being run by the lower orders, poverty and a low status in life being common charges to hurl against one's political enemies. The successful riot had brought home their power to the people of Boston and brought to a head the mounting opposition to the Shirley regime. After the riot, the opposition became far more vocal than before. 
the Boston Independent Advertiser, led a determined attack on Knowles and on Shirley's war policies, including the inflation. Dr. William Douglas, the great hard-money economic theorist, denounced Knowles as a tyrant and a monster of wickedness. Shirley, smarting under the criticism of the independent advertiser, asked the general court to censure the paper. The subservient council agreed, but the assembly rejected the proposal overwhelmingly. Governor Shirley, longing for the good old days of all-out war, again projected a great intercolonial expedition for 1748, this time against the French fort of Crown Point at Lake Champlain. But Massachusetts had issued an enormous amount of paper money in the three years of war, and the money was already depreciating rapidly. Tax monies were pledged far in advance for redemption of the paper. Shirley realized that the neighboring colonies would have to join the expedition, and he proposed quotas of aid from each colony. But the other governors, even in New York, which bordered on Crown Point, summoned no enthusiasm for the scheme. Furthermore, peace was nearing at last in Europe under the clever guidance of the Pelhams, and once more Shirley's grandiose vision of aggression and conquest had to be abandoned. In the meanwhile, sensing the approaching end of their joint bonanza, the faithful Waldo began to loot with might and main, deducting perquisites from the soldiers' meager pay for deigning to supply them with arms and clothing. Waldo also pocketed the assets of dead soldiers and sold their muskets. At Shirley's request for an accounting, Waldo flatly and indignantly refused. Shirley, fearful of breaking with the machine of Waldo's friends and relatives that had been his political support, did nothing. But Waldo broke with Shirley for his slackening of enthusiasm for the former's speculations. At the same time, another disappointed contractor, James Allen, made himself a leading spokesman in the lower house on the impressment issue. Feeling in Boston and the seaport towns was continuing high. To all of this, a special bitterness was added in Massachusetts when England handed Louisbourg back to France in the Treaty of Aix la Chapelle. To the colonists, this seemed the final betrayal of American blood and tears by the mother country. The people of Boston and Massachusetts had still more important grievances against the government. The threat of impressment especially affected New England seamen because their terms at sea were far shorter than those of the English sailors, who were used to very long voyages. The threat of impressment induced a considerable emigration of sailors from Boston to Newport. Even more damaging were the extremely heavy losses suffered by the cream of Massachusetts' labor force in King George's War. Boston's and Massachusetts' manpower suffered very heavy losses during the war. At sea, in Louisbourg, on numerous expeditions in the West Indies, one estimate holds that 20% of Boston's manpower was killed in three years of King George's War. This monstrous decimation 
coupled with high taxes levied for public relief to widows, emigration, and the after-effects of inflation, greatly depressed the economy of Boston, the only American city failing to expand in the years following, until 1760. During the wars of the 1740s, a half-hearted attempt was made by the Crown to enforce the trade regulations on the Americans, particularly prohibitions on trading with the enemy. After the war, Admiral Knowles complained to the newly energetic Board of Trade that Newcastle had ignored his complaints of colonial trading with the enemy and that he had to proceed on his own to enforce the law. The military mind could not appreciate the mutual benefits of free exchange, even with a so-called enemy. But the colonial merchants did appreciate these benefits and happily continued the trade. Boston, New York, and Philadelphia were important centers of this commerce, but the great emporium of trading with the enemy was Newport, where the deputy governor, William Ellery, allowed ships to clear the port without troublesome inspection. One method of evasion was through neutral Dutch middlemen in such West Indian territories as Suriname and St. Eustatius. Another was direct trade under cover of fake prisoner exchanges. Ships would be legally authorized under official flags of truce to exchange prisoners at the French West Indies. But apart from the few token prisoners, trade was happily carried on by these ships. Flags of truce were purchased from colonial governors, and a market in these flags flourished in the colonies. By 1748, then, the American colonies, prospering under the liberal Walpole-Newcastle policy of salutary neglect, stood as almost self-governing colonies, in fact, though scarcely in name. In each colony, the lower house or assembly took the lead in this self-government with increasing effect. Although Robert Walpole had been ousted as Prime Minister in 1742, his policy of salutary neglect was substantially continued by Newcastle and his brother, Henry Pelham, who succeeded as Prime Minister the following year. But in the absence of the political might of Walpole, the shades of night were beginning to close on the relations between Britain and the American colonies. Newcastle, while still powerful in the government, was succeeded in the post of Secretary of State for the South by the aggressive imperialist John Russell, the Duke of Bedford. But Bedford could do little harm in the colonies so long as the liberal Lord Monson continued as President of the Board of Trade. The death of Monson in 1748, coinciding with the end of the war in Europe, gave Bedford his chance to try to move toward an end of salutary neglect and to end the flourishing smuggling in the American trade. Newcastle attempted to replace Monson by the latter's brother-in-law, the Duke of Leeds, who, in Newcastle's words, needed some office which required little attendance and less application. Bedford, however, managed to overrule Newcastle and to install at the Board of Trade his follower, George Dunk, the Earl of Halifax. 
Halifax now set about in a determined attempt to bring the American colonies to heel. For several years, the Board of Trade pressured the higher authorities with a series of reports deploring the lack of enforcement of the mercantilist regulations in the colonies and calling for the replacement of salutary neglect by enforcement of the laws. Failing to convince Pelham and Newcastle to change their ways, Halifax tried a power play to have himself appointed to a new post that he proposed, a separate Secretary of State for the colonies. He failed to achieve this goal, but did manage to obtain, as SOP, slightly enlarged powers over the colonies for the Board of Trade in 1752. Promptly, the Board began a persistent campaign to require the colonial governors to obey its instructions and to try to wrest from the assemblies a permanent revenue for the royal governors and their administration. The Board of Trade could do little on its own, however, particularly in the face of determined opposition by the colonial assemblies. In 1756, the outbreak of a new war with France forced Halifax to suspend his imperial activities for the duration. At that point, imperial control over the colonies was scarcely greater than eight years before when Halifax had begun his efforts. But this very failure set the stage for a new and far greater push for restoration of control over the colonies when the war was over, a push inspired by increasing fears by the non-liberal forces in Britain that colonial independence had nearly gotten out of hand. One example of the failure of Halifax to crack down on smuggling in the colonies was the case of the Philadelphia firm of William Allen and Company, which had become prominent in the smuggling trade from the French West Indies and was thus able to undersell the legitimate importers. By a happy arrangement, the royal collector of customs, whose task it was to enforce the laws, was Abraham Taylor who happened to be a member of the Allen firm. Taylor's pursuit of the policy of salutary neglect is hardly surprising. Volume 2, Chapter 37 Early Phases of the French and Indian War The Treaty of aix la chapelle left unresolved the main force for war in European relations. The insensate desire of the English war party for imperial expansion and aggression the powerful war party was headed by the Duke of Cumberland, the favorite son of King George II, a military leader who had well earned the title Butcher in suppressing the Jacobite Rebellion in Scotland in 1745, Cumberland's protege, Henry Fox, the Duke of Bedford at the powerful post of Secretary of State for the Southern Department, and, above all, William Pitt. The half-insane Pitt was the prototype of a modern politician. Possessed of a charismatic personality, Pitt's oratory could sway the masses for ever more grandiose war programs. Yet there was method in his madness. Pitt was consistently the spokesman for the imperial clique of London merchants and financiers. Underneath the cloud of Patrioteering verbiage that could mobilize the masses, a hard core of vested economic interest was being effectively pursued. 
While King George's War was still underway, Pitt was vainly urging upon the cautious Newcastle an expansion of the war to conquer French Canada. In 1746, Pitt was agreeing with the leading New Hampshire fish merchant, William Vaughan, on the goal of conquest. In the same year, he had his ally, the Duke of Bedford, submit a memorandum to Newcastle, pressing for the seizure of Canada. Among the reasons mentioned was the smashing of the French trade and sources of supply. But heading the list was the British seizure of the entire North American fur and fish trade, in which the French colonies were outcompeting the English. The peace treaty ended these schemes temporarily, but the agitation of the war party continued unabated. The war party was able to strengthen its command of the key cabinet post. Bedford had moved up from the Admiralty to the crucial post of Secretary of State for the South. His protege, the Earl of Sandwich, assumed his former post, while, as we have seen, his other protege, the Earl of Halifax, came in as President of the Board of Trade. William Shirley was selected by Bedford to sabotage the boundary negotiations with France over Nova Scotia and other colonial areas, and thus to keep the war pot brewing. Pelham managed to oust Bedford and Sandwich from office in 1751 and to horrify the war party by slashing army and naval appropriations and pursuing a Pacific policy. Halifax, however, at the Board of Trade, not only aggrandized his power over colonial affairs, but also pressed his desire for aggression against New France. Finally, the death of the Prime Minister, Henry Pelham, in early 1754, eliminated the great leader of the peace forces. Although he succeeded his brother as Prime Minister, Newcastle, isolated and surrounded by the war party, was pushed into another and far more grandiose war against France. Caught in a war drive that he opposed, Newcastle decided that the Cumberland Fox clique, which wanted a limited war against France, concentrated on the continent of Europe, was far less dangerous than the Pitt-Bedford warmongers for unlimited aggression against all the French colonies. Newcastle, therefore, threw in with the former group, and Henry Fox was brought into the cabinet as Secretary of War and then as Secretary of State. All the previous intercolonial wars had begun in Europe and were then reflected in the colonies. But the French and Indian War between Britain and France began in the colonies and only later was extended to Europe as the Seven Years' War, while the war in Europe lasted from 1756 to 1763, the war in America broke out, albeit unofficially, in late 1753 and was virtually over by 1760. The French had heroically explored the Mississippi and Ohio valleys and had settled them as efficient fur traders with the Indians. With a population throughout their extensive territory of no more than 75,000, the French faced an aggressive and powerful set of English colonies containing a million and a half persons, and despite this overwhelmingly superior population, 
ever subject to hysteria over the supposed menace of New France. Moreover, behind the colonies was a British government directing the royal colonial governors and increasingly in the hands of an extremely aggressive war party, frankly dedicated to the total conquest of New France and the reduction of France and French trading competition to second-class status. The final conflict between British America and New France was precipitated not so much by these general forces as by an Anglo-Virginian attempt at a huge land grab. English settlements had now reached the Appalachian Mountains. Beyond stretched New French territory, tempting opportunity not only for ousting French fur traders, but also for land speculation. Virginia, in particular, began to press its wild and grandiose land claims based on its original charter of 1609 and ignoring all the developments since. According to this questionable thesis, the Virginia government was the rightful sovereign of everything not only west but northwest of the Appalachians to the Pacific, a claim which directly interfered, of course, with Pennsylvania's own notion of its proper territorial area. The first attempted Virginia grab of French land in the Ohio Valley came in 1743, when Colonel James Patton and his partners asked Virginia for a grant of 200,000 acres on the New River. At that time, before King George's War had begun, the Virginia government refused the request, on the wise ground that such an aggressive act might precipitate war with France. The advent of war ended Virginia's scruples, however. Helped by an Indian conference at Lancaster in mid-1744, at which the Iroquois signed away the right to the Ohio lands. The fact that the Iroquois' only connection with this land was their highly dubious assertion of overlordship made no difference. A flimsy legitimacy provided by pliant Iroquois over land they had nothing to do with was now cast over the British claims. In 1745, the Virginia government gave the first of its munificent grants of French territory. On the same day, it gave away three huge land grants. One was of 100,000 acres on the Greenbrier River across the Alleghenies to the Greenbrier Company. The company was headed by the leading Virginia oligarch John Robinson, president of the Virginia Council, and included John Robinson, Jr., Speaker of the House of Burgesses, and William Beverly. A second gift granted 100,000 acres to the old patent group, this time on the Ohio and New Rivers. A third grant of 50,000 acres on the Greenbrier River was made to Henry Downs and Associates. All this was ominous enough to the French, but at least these moves were made in the heat of conflict. The truly ominous and critical land-grab attempt was launched immediately after the war, with the grant of a vast amount of Ohio land to the newly formed Ohio Company. 
The Ohio Company had its roots in the monstrous-sized land grant of over five million acres given to Lord Culpepper in the Northern Neck and later inherited by Lord Fairfax. An early manager of the Fairfax Fife was Robert King Carter, who was able to use his position to amass a very large amount of land and to gain a dominant position in the Virginia planter oligarchy. Early in the 18th century, Fairfax replaced Carter by young Thomas Lee, who in turn used his position to amass a landed fortune. He was also aided in this task by marrying a Ludwell heiress and thus adding the prominent Ludwell estates. Losing his post in 1747, Lee, a member of the Virginia Council, decided to organize the Ohio Company as a speculative group for land settlement and proceeded to pressure the government for the subsidy of a huge land grant at the forks of the Ohio River. To form the Ohio Company, Lee gathered around him a significant group. Many of them were residents and neighbors of the Fairfax Fife, including George Fairfax and the Washington family, especially Lawrence and Augustine Washington. Marylanders among the organizers included the frontier trader Thomas Cresop. Lee and eleven others formed the Ohio Company in 1747 and quickly petitioned the governor and council for a grant of 200,000 acres of land near the forks of the Ohio River. But Governor Gooch was not enthusiastic about the aggressiveness of the land grants, and the powerful speaker John Robinson, himself a rival land speculator and a determined opponent of the company, was able to secure rejection of the Ohio Company request. Undaunted, Lee and the others went over the Virginia governor's head to appeal the decision to the Crown. To petition and put pressure on London, Lee secured the services of a prominent Quaker merchant, John Hanbury. In the spring of 1749, not long after Lee had assumed the post of president of the council, the Crown directed Virginia to grant the 200,000 acres. In the summer, the governor and council made the grant, conditioned on a hundred families settling there within seven years and on the company's building a fort near the Forks. As soon as the conditions were met, the company would take up an adjoining 300,000 acres on the same terms. Quit-rent payments to the Crown were waived for ten years, and after that would only have to be made for land actually under cultivation. The conditions of the Ohio Company grant had two fateful consequences. One, the fact of official British sanction alerted the French to the likelihood of dangerous encroachment on their territory. And two, a direct aggressive challenge was thereby laid down to the French. It was clearly high time for the French to act. By the time the grant to the Ohio Company was made, Lee had converted the company all the more into a personal fief. George Fairfax and others had dropped out, while friends and relatives such as Richard Lee, Philip Ludwell Lee, and George Mason were added 
as was the powerful Duke of Bedford in reward for his services in securing the grant. The outgoing Governor Gooch, for his part, tried to offset the exclusive privilege of the grant by handing out huge chunks of Ohio territory on the same day to several other groups of land speculators. John Taylor secured a renewal of the 100,000-acre patent grant. Bernard Moore and others received 100,000 acres on the New River. Peyton Randolph and others 400,000 acres on the New William Winston, Jr., 50,000 acres east of the Ohio River, and the Loyal Company received the staggering total of 800,000 acres along the southern Virginia frontier. All in all, nearly 1,500,000 acres were blithely granted away by Virginia in one day in 1749. The Loyal Company and the other grantees were not required to colonize or to build forts. The Loyal Company was a coalition of speculators headed by John Lewis of the Shenandoah Valley clique, Edmund Pendleton, a protege of the Robinsons, and an Albemarle group, including Peter Jefferson and Dr. Thomas Walker. The Loyal Company collaborated closely with the Greenbrier Company of John Robinson's. In the meanwhile, Thomas Lee became acting governor of Virginia in 1749-50, to 50, succeeding Gooch. After Lee's death in late 1750, the newly appointed governor of Virginia, Robert Dinwiddie, had become, not accidentally, a member of the Ohio Company. Dinwiddie incidentally, had gotten his start in the British bureaucracy as a virulent hatchet man for Lord Carteret, engaged in prosecuting and ousting firm adherents of Walpole from the royal bureaucracy. Dinwiddie was now a protege of the formidable Duke of Bedford. Soon the company was expanded to include the Mercers, Robert Carter, George Washington, and Governor Arthur Dobbs, of North Carolina. From the time of the Grants in 1749, much of Virginia politics may be explained by the emergence of two powerful factions of speculators in Ohio land. The Ohio Company clique of the Lees, Washingtons, Carters, Mercers, and Masons, and the loyal Greenbrier Company coalition of the Robinsons, Pendletons, Jeffersons, and others. As we have indicated, the Ohio Company, with its British success, its grip on the governorship, and its duty to build a fort on the forks of the Ohio, was the more alarming speculative group. To the fur traders and politicians of Pennsylvania, to the Indians of the Ohio Valley, and, not least of all, to the French. The French, for their part, reacted to the threat of Anglo-Virginian aggression in the Ohio Valley with efficiency and dispatch. The French effectively warned the native Indians that the Ohio Company meant to clear and settle, and therefore to oust the Indians rather than to trade with them. The French launched a campaign to oust the English traders from the Ohio Valley, where they had been permitted to operate freely. 
A string of forts was built by the French throughout the region during 1753. Marquis Duquesne, governor-general of New France, urged over a thousand men to build a series of defensive forts in the Ohio Valley, including forts Presque Isle on Lake Erie and Le Bouff and Venango on French Creek. Governor Dinwiddie, in his turn, reacted to French defensive measures by desperate appeals to fellow governors, and especially to the Crown, to take appropriate offensive action to outweigh the French moves. Finally, in August 1753, the Crown, under pressure also of the war party at home, took the fateful decision that was to lead to an all-out conflict with France. The English government threw down the gauntlet of aggression. It instructed all the American governors to repel a French invasion of what was arrogantly proclaimed the king's domain in the Ohio Valley, specifically referring to any interference with the construction of forts. Governor Dinwiddie was flatly ordered to consider any French forts as ipso facto acts of aggression upon supposed Virginia territory. And the Ohio Company's plan to build a fort on the Ohio was officially encouraged. Dinwiddie was authorized, if necessary, to drive French forces from his territory by force of arms. The die was cast. Dinwiddie now had official sanction for the aims of his Ohio Company. Dinwiddie's first step was to send young Major George Washington, a partner in the Ohio Company, to Fort LeBeouf with an ultimatum to the French troops to quit the Ohio Valley. When Washington returned with what should have been the expected refusal, Dinwiddie prepared eagerly for war. William Trent, agent of the Ohio Company, was made a captain by Dinwiddie and sent with a troop of armed men to build a fort at the forks of the Ohio and to repel the French. Washington, promoted to lieutenant colonel, was ordered to raise a hundred men and to join him. The governor also sent messages to all the other colonies urging them to join the fight and to the Indian tribes, inviting them to make war upon the French. Dinwiddie tried to call up the militia, but the sturdy citizens of Virginia proved highly resistant to the draft. They generally refused to leave their families and homes for remote imperial aims. The council noted that the draft was to be used only for fighting within Virginia, and that the Ohio Valley was only dubiously within the Old Dominion. Calling a special session in February 1754, Dinwiddie managed to convince the House of Burgesses to appropriate 10,000 pounds for the invasion, but he was forced to accept a committee of Burgesses to supervise the expenditure of the money. Dinwiddie, however, had to abandon calling up the drafted militia and desperately tried to encourage enlistments by proclaiming the reservation of 200,000 acres of Ohio land for free gifts free of quit-rent, for fifteen years to volunteers for the war. The Virginians, incidentally, not only refused to be conscripted for the war, 
they also strongly resisted conscription of their goods and supplies by the military, as Colonel Washington soon found to his dismay. If the Virginians themselves balked at squandering lives and properties for the invasive war for the Ohio, the citizens of the other colonies proved even more recalcitrant, despite the urging of their royal governors. The New York Assembly tardily questioned the assumption that the Ohio Valley was British territory, and the Quaker-run Assembly of Pennsylvania did much the same. Both refused to call up their militia. The Maryland Assembly also saw no invasion of British colonial territory in the French occupation of the Ohio. The New Jersey Assembly refused aid as well. Isaac Norris, the Pennsylvania Quaker leader, summed up much of colonial opinion when he noted, The Ohio Company are endeavoring to engage all the colonies under the sanction of the king's command to defend their lands upon that river. Only North Carolina voted substantial funds and planned to enlist a military troop. The grandiose plans of Dinwiddie and the Ohio Company were rudely shattered when on April 17, 1754, Trent's little band, at work on constructing the fort at the forks of the Ohio, surrendered to a formidable French force of 1,000 men under Claude-Pierre Picardy de Contrecourt. The French commander magnanimously allowed Trent's men to return to Virginia with all their possessions, and then rapidly proceeded to build the formidable Fort Duquesne at the same site. Colonel Washington marched rashly into the valley, and, after wandering around in some confusion, was, on July 3rd, quickly smashed at his Fort Necessity by a French force more than double his own. Once again, the French allowed Washington and his troops to leave the valley and return to Virginia. The English aggressors had been totally routed and English troops ousted from the entire Ohio Valley. The British government had sent several companies of regulars to aid in the war. One company from South Carolina had been in the fray with Washington, but had deeply angered the Virginians by refusing to obey their orders or to cooperate in the necessary labors of the expedition, thereby causing friction between Virginia and the British. The other aid arrived later and only added to the burdens of Virginia. Two companies of regulars from New York arrived without supplies. A regiment of colonials came from North Carolina, only to find that no one had money to pay them or had the necessary supplies. The harassed North Carolinians mutinied, and mass desertions followed during July and August, finally forcing Virginia to disband the regiment officially. Governor James Glenn of South Carolina trenchantly criticized Virginia's meddling in the Ohio Valley, as well as British claims to the territory. Virginia troop morale was understandably very low, and desertions continued unremittingly. Only Maryland sent a company of men. One might rationally suppose that Governor Dinwiddie would be properly chastened 
by these defeats and forget about the whole Ohio adventure. But not Dinwiddie. Like all hardliners everywhere, he was resolved to fight to the last life and bit of property of everyone else. In a frenzy, Dinwiddie sought at every hand to push war to the uttermost. The British government, he urged to send more troops and supplies, and boldly recommended a parliamentary poll tax upon the entire American continent to finance the campaign. This would have involved the dangerous and highly provocative scrapping of the crucial principle that no colony could be taxed without the consent of its elected assembly. At home, Dinwiddie actually ordered Colonel Washington to reinvade Ohio less than a month after his rout, but fortunately a delay in raising funds by the House of Burgesses led him to cancel this scheme. In the fall, the lower house agreed to appropriate 20,000 pounds for the war and to levy an onerous poll tax to raise the money. The house refused to draft militia for fighting outside Virginia, but did agree to conscript all vagrants and to force them to fight for Virginian glory. Dinwiddie had still not given up the idea of a winter campaign to recapture Fort Duquesne, but the lack of interest by the other colonies finally forced him to abandon the plan. Meanwhile, in late 1753, the New York government decided to call a joint conference of the northern colonies with the Iroquois and other Indian tribes for the following June at Albany. As one of many conferences with the Iroquois and their followers, the idea was to try to mobilize the Indians for a general assault on French possessions in the Ohio Valley. It was the ineffable imperialist and warmonger Governor Shirley of Massachusetts who seized the occasion to try to unite the colonies into a league or confederation. Only when united under one central government could the full resources of the American colonies be mobilized by the crown for an all-out assault on New France. The old imperialist dream of the dominion of New England was now to be revived and extended to all the British colonies. The delegates to the Albany Congress were in the main appointed by the governors and largely taken from the counselors of their respective colonies. The Indian Conference was supposed to be the only problem on the agenda. But under cover of these proceedings, the delegates were persuaded by Benjamin Franklin, a delegate from Pennsylvania, to seize the occasion to propose a central government to rule over all the colonies and thus prosecute a far broader and more intensified war against the French. Franklin did this even though unauthorized to do so by Pennsylvania. This plan of union largely Franklin's, as approved by the delegates in July, urged the British Parliament to impose over all the colonies a central supergovernment, whose executive would be appointed by the Crown and whose legislature would consist of a grand council chosen by the respective colonial assemblies. Executive salaries were to be provided by the Crown, thus bypassing the salary troubles that the royal governors had all had 
with the colonial assemblies, and thus freeing the executive power from the checks and limits imposed on it by the representatives of the American public. Of particular significance was the taxing power to be given to the president and the council and to be appropriated for the functions of the general government. The Albany plan, however, was a total dud. The independent and liberty-loving colonist had had enough trouble with royal prerogative embodied in the executive and judicial powers of the individual colonies. They had no desire for another super-government to add still another and greater engine of oppression. Rhode Island and Connecticut, now happily free of all royal officials, were especially vehement in opposition. The Connecticut delegates refused to sign the plan, and the Connecticut Assembly attacked it bitterly, denouncing it as against the rights and privileges of Englishmen. The Rhode Island legislature could not forgive its delegate, Stephen Hopkins, for signing the proposal. A large majority of the Boston town meeting voted against the plan, Dr. William Clark perceptively denouncing it to Franklin himself as a scheme for destroying the liberties and privileges of every British subject upon the continent. In general, the respective colonies took no notice of the plan. Even Governor Shirley opposed it bitterly, not, of course, because the central government would be too powerful, but because for Shirley it would be far too weak. In particular, the provision for an elected legislature was to Shirley viciously democratic and destructive of the royal prerogative. Shirley urged that Parliament tax the colonies and that the central legislature be all appointed by the Crown. Governor Morris of Pennsylvania also scented a dangerous republicanism in the plan, as well as the destruction of Crown authority. He also insisted that a union of colonies must permit absolute dictation over the army by the supergovernment. Discussion in England of the plan and of the whole problem of imperial relations with the colonies was cast aside by the immediate crisis of the rout of Washington at Fort Necessity. Franklin's desperate gamble on the Albany plan stemmed from his fear that Virginia, with its vague and grandiose charter claims, would be able to conquer and keep control of the Ohio Valley land. Pennsylvania's Quaker Assembly would prevent that colony from contesting the spoils, but a central supergovernment over the colonies would suffer from no such limits or scruples. Hence Franklin's provision in the Albany plan that the supergovernment have the power to abrogate existing colonial claims to the western lands and to create their new governments and land grants. After it was obvious that the Albany plan would fail, Franklin unsuccessfully tried again, this time to forestall Virginia by creating two new colonies in the upper Ohio Valley. In this plan, Franklin was joined by two of his associates at the Albany Congress, Sir William Johnson and Thomas Pownall, secretary to the governor of New York and brother of the influential John Pownall, secretary of the Board of Trade. With Henry Fox, now War Secretary, 
and Henry Pelham dead, the English war party had been considerably strengthened, and Cumberland, Fox, Halifax, and Pitt managed partly to push and partly to circumvent Newcastle, and to induce Britain to agree to send two regiments of regulars to America under General Edward Braddock as commander-in-chief of the English forces on the continent. Britain was now committed even more heavily to aggressive war against New France. Braddock's instructions were to capture the critical French forts south of the St. Lawrence, and Henry Fox trumpeted these aims in the press in order to provoke the French into a general war. In that way, Fox and Cumberland expected to use a conquest of the Ohio Valley and limited aggression against Canada as the back door to war against France on the continent of Europe. But France, instead, proposed an armistice, which war-intoxicated England indignantly refused. In English plans, everything was neatly blocked out. General Braddock would launch the main effort from Virginia and recapture Fort Duquesne. At the same time, Governor Shirley and Sir William Johnson would capture the key French forts of Niagara and St. Frederick, Crown Point, at the southern tip of Lake Champlain. Also at the same time, Admiral Boscawen was to patrol the Atlantic coast and intercept any French reinforcements for America. At a conference on April 14, 1755, Braddock and the leading royal governors hammered out their joint plan of campaign. The tidy plans blew up very quickly. First, the French fleet, bearing reinforcements, was able to slip by the British ambush. But the biggest blow was the fate of Braddock's expedition. Armed with 2,500 men, mainly British and the rest largely Virginians, Braddock set out in early June for Fort Duquesne. From the beginning, the Braddock expedition seemed ill-omened. As usual, such colonial assemblies as Pennsylvania and Maryland balked at voting for any substantial aid funds. Indeed, Dinwiddie, incensed at the colonist indifference and their persistence in mutually satisfactory trading with the enemy, called on Britain to tax the colonies and to ban all exports from America. The first error of the expedition itself was the decision to march from Virginia, a far more difficult and rugged path to Duquesne than from Pennsylvania. But Virginia was favored not only as a reliable royal colony, not plagued by Quakers or a proprietary, but also as a means of furthering the interest of the Ohio Company. Next, the lack of enthusiasm for the war by the American public was revealed in their indifference to supplying the troops. Braddock was moved to denounce the frontier populace of Virginia and Maryland in no uncertain terms. Only Benjamin Franklin, eager to serve the aggressive British war effort, was able to gull and wheedle the German farmers into providing supplies to the Braddock forces. Arriving near Fort Duquesne on July 9, the mighty Braddock army was set upon by a French and Indian force of little more than 800 and was promptly cut to ribbons. General Braddock was killed in the fray, 
and the demoralized British, under the command of Colonel Thomas Dunbar, fled back as fast as they could across the Alleghenies, destroying large amounts of provisions in order to speed their way. Dunbar did not stop until he had taken the army all the way to the snug safety of Philadelphia. Governor Dinwiddie, still indomitably eager for others to fight to the last man, again urged another early attack on Fort Duquesne, but Dunbar had had enough. Once again, the British drive for conquest had been thoroughly crushed by the French. Dinwiddie's war frenzy, however, was again redoubled. Bitterly denouncing Dunbar's retreat to safety, Dinwiddie was tireless in his efforts to continue and escalate the conflict. He had just succeeded in pressuring and cajoling the Virginia Assembly into appropriating 10,000 pounds for the war. Now he reconvened the assembly, which proved eager to pour good money after bad, and granted another forty thousand pounds to be raised by an annual poll tax of one shilling. He also called up the Virginia militia, which he placed at the frontier under Colonel Washington's command. But the liberty-loving people of Virginia showed no disposition whatever to give up their lives for the sacred cause of grabbing the Ohio land from the French. Nonviolent resistance greatly slowed the rate of conscription as well as the fighting elan of the troops. Washington complained long and loud of the laziness and indifference of the militia officers, especially of the recruiting officers themselves, who preferred carousal to enforcing conscription. Of particular significance is Washington's report on the libertarian spirit of the militia and their dyed-in-the-wool resistance to the draft. If we talk of obliging men to serve their country, Washington lamented, we are sure to hear a fellow mumble over the words liberty and property a thousand times. Liberty and property were indeed increasingly becoming the watchwords of the era, and the colonial application was being made not only to the distant French, but especially to their governments at home. In Pennsylvania, as we have seen, the assembly was stampeded after Braddock's defeat into passing a militia law. However, Quakers were exempted from the draft, and the militia was formed as a people's army with the officers democratically elected by the men of each company. In this democratic arrangement, the regimental officers were in turn chosen by the elected officers of the company. And finally, in a creatively libertarian provision, no officer or private in the Pennsylvania militia was to be subject to any articles of war unless he personally declared his consent to them in the presence of a judge. Virginia continued to confront the reluctance of the people to have their bodies or their goods confiscated for purposes of war. Colonel Washington grumbled that Virginians should be so tenacious of liberty, and threatened to resign his command if a tougher militia law were not passed. Furthermore, the people persisted inordinately in harboring and aiding deserters from the militia, and in refusing to contribute supplies to the army. As Washington complained, 
In all things I meet with the greatest opposition. No orders are obeyed, but what a party of soldiers or my own drawn sword enforces. Without this, a single horse for the most urgent occasion cannot be had. To such a pitch has the insolence of the people arrived. In the fall of 1755, a tighter militia act was passed in Virginia, punishing those who aided deserters and rewarding informers who had helped round them up. Still, collection of the militia proceeded very slowly. The death of Braddock left the veteran warmonger and imperialist William Shirley in charge of the English forces in America. Governor Shirley was as impossible to discourage as Dinwiddie, the only difference being Shirley's greater interest in the northern frontier with Canada than in the Ohio Valley. Shirley managed to whip New England and New York into providing 3,600 men for the march on Fort St. Frederick. But the William Johnson expedition in the fall of 1755 bogged down because of a lack of supplies and because of the increasing restiveness of the soldiers, who were able to keep the usual tyranny of an army at a minimum by electing their own officers. The expedition, finally, had to be abandoned. Shirley, in the meanwhile, was able to mobilize about 1,500 men for his own campaign to seize Fort Niagara. But this, too, had to be abandoned. Indeed, the only British victory during 1755 was the capture of Fort Boisjour in New Brunswick, then part of Nova Scotia. And this victory led to problems with the American colonials. During King George's War, Britain had forced Massachusetts soldiers to remain in Louisbourg beyond their terms of enlistment. To forestall a repetition of this disaster, Massachusetts forced the British to issue certificates to the soldiers guaranteeing discharge at the end of their enlistment. The British were hardly content to leave matters like that, however, during the Nova Scotia campaign, they subjected the Americans to special harassment to induce them to enlist in British regiments. This treatment infuriated both the American troops, who began to desert en masse, and the Massachusetts House, which demanded that the men be sent home. Volume 2, Chapter 38, The Persecution of the Acadians Thus the British, during 1755, went down on many fronts to ignominy and crushing defeat. However, the British took advantage of their lone victory in Nova Scotia to exert their power over the hapless French citizens of British Acadia. Frustrated by their lack of victory over French arms, they presumably decided to levy barbaric vengeance on helpless and peaceful French citizens in their midst. Acadia had first been settled by Frenchmen in 1605, but was sacked and destroyed by Virginia's Captain Argall in 1613. French settlement regained Acadia during the 17th century, but it was seized from France along with Newfoundland at the Peace of Utrecht, ending Queen Anne's War in 1713. A treaty provided that the French population of Acadia would have liberty for at least a year to emigrate from Nova Scotia with their property, presumably to nearby Cape Breton Island, which remained in the hands of France. 
The treaty also provided that Acadians choosing to remain would, upon taking an oath of allegiance to Britain, enjoy complete religious liberty. Many Acadians applied for permission to leave as promised by the treaty, but the British authorities preemptorily refused. Colonel Samuel Vetch, governor of Nova Scotia, had financial interest in the island and urged the Board of Trade not to permit its labor force to leave. The Acadians were prohibited from using British-owned vessels to leave. When the desperate Acadians began to build their own small boats to sail to Cape Breton, the new governor, Francis Nicholson, brutally confiscated the boats and prevented them from departing. By that time, the supposed year of grace for the Acadians was over, and they were from then on prohibited from leaving the island. Since the year was up, the British presumed to prohibit Acadian emigration with complete self-righteousness. After this British display of bad faith capped by hypocrisy, the Acadians naturally, though courageously, refused to take an oath of allegiance to the new King George I. In 1720, the new governor of Nova Scotia, Richard Phillips, ordered the Acadians to take the oath in four months or leave the island, but taking with them no more than two sheep per family. When the despairing Acadians, deprived of all boats, tried to leave by cutting a road to nearby Cape Breton by land, Phillips forced them to stop. He too did not want to lose the benefits of Acadian labor, that is, forced labor, since the Acadians were forced to stay on this alien-run island. During the same year, Phillips sent Lieutenant Governor Paul Mascarene to London. Mascarene converted the Board of Trade to a diabolic plan. Eventually, the Acadians should all be coercively expelled from the island. Where they were too much under the influence of wicked French priests, but this should not be done until the French could work to build up and complete English fortifications on the island. The Acadians, meanwhile, were neither allowed to leave the country nor permitted to settle down as full citizens. Instead, they were forced to supply the needs of the British troops and to strengthen the fortifications of their British masters. Despite these provocations, the Acadians remained peaceful. In 1726, Lieutenant Governor Lawrence Armstrong, a tough hardliner, forced a public oath of allegiance on the Acadians of Annapolis, Port Royal, capital of Nova Scotia. The following year, however, the issue arose again with the ascension to the throne of George II. Armstrong sent naval troops to enforce a loyalty oath on the Acadians, but the persecuted Frenchmen continued to refuse. At least they would not lend their public sanction to their own tormentors. The day was saved for the heroic Acadians by Ensign Robert Roth, who, on his own initiative, promised the Acadians freedom of religion, exemption from the draft, and freedom to leave the island. In return for these rights, the Acadians took the oath of allegiance. Governor Armstrong, of course, angrily refused to ratify these unwarrantable concessions, which had already been promised them at the Peace of Utrecht. 
Having gained the public oath, however, Armstrong vaguely and grudgingly promised the Acadians the liberties of English subjects. The Acadians of Annapolis had not yet taken the oath. When ordered to do so by the governing council, the leading men in Annapolis resolved instead to follow the other Acadians in taking the oath only under the wrath conditions. The council called this action insolent and defiant, and arrested the four leading Acadian deputies for contempt and disrespect to the king. Lieutenant Governor Armstrong then announced that the four prisoners had been guilty of several enormous crimes in assembling the inhabitants in a riotous manner, contrary to the orders of the government, and in framing a rebellious paper. Three of the prisoners were promptly clamped into prison. In consideration for his advanced age, Armstrong graciously allowed the fourth, Abraham Borg, to leave Acadia, of course without any of his property. The rest of the people of Annapolis were punished by being prohibited from fishing on any British coast. To cap his crimes, Armstrong pillaged the church of Abbey Bresley and forced the priest to flee. For a blissful interlude, Governor Phillips returned to the peninsula, permitting Bresley to return home and promised the Acadians religious freedom. In response, the grateful Acadians of Annapolis and the rest of Nova Scotia took the oath of allegiance. Soon, however, Armstrong was in charge again. He promptly violated the British promises. He began by expelling two French missionaries and then insisted on requiring his approval of all priests in the province and on barring all priests immigrating from Quebec in French Canada. During King George's War, the Acadians, despite three decades of betrayal and oppression, remained strictly neutral in the war between England and their homeland. When the English captured the French fortress in Louisbourg in 1746, they promptly deported all the French citizens to France. The worried Acadians were reassured by Governor William Shirley, but Shirley omitted any pledge of religious freedom and indicted several Canadians for high treason against Great Britain. After the war ended in 1748, Great Britain embarked on a new phase of its program for Nova Scotia. It decided to settle Englishmen on the peninsula, as yet inhabited only by French settlers and British soldiers. In that way, military benefits would accrue for the expected future war with France, and a population and labor force would be available to replace the Acadians, who by that time might be expelled. Several thousand English colonists were settled in this way. The new governor, Edward Cornwallis, on instructions from the Crown, embarked on a new policy of repression of the Acadians. He was instructed to force another oath of allegiance and to permit Acadians to leave, but never with any of their property. They could not, for example, sell their lands and leave with any of the proceeds. Cornwallis also prohibited the Acadians from trading with the French or from accepting religious jurisdiction from Quebec. Further, he embarked on determined efforts to force Protestantism upon the devoutly Roman Catholic populace. Acadian exemption from the draft was removed, 
No priest was permitted in the province without a license from the governor, and another loyalty oath was insisted upon on pain of confiscation of Acadian land. One thousand Acadians reacted by protesting their faithful service as subjects of the crown and proposed instead to renew their oath on the old conditions granted them by Governor Phillips. Cornwallis, in turn, bitterly denounced Phillips for not doing his duty. Unable to win renewal of the Phillips conditions, the Acadians in the spring of 1750 decided to leave Nova Scotia. The Board of Trade, however, decided that the time was not yet ripe, as the French might entice them to Cape Breton and use them in the next war. Cornwallis, therefore, patrolled Nova Scotia to keep the Acadians as prisoners on the peninsula. Many of the desperate Acadians, however, managed to slip through the patrols, aided by the French and the missionaries. Eight hundred Acadians managed to reach French Prince Edward Island during 1750. Cornwallis hastily built more forts to prevent more Acadians from leaving. A peaceful and happy lull ensued, however, during 1752-53. Under the governorship of Peregrine Hobson, the Acadians enjoyed religious liberty and were permitted to take the oath under the old conditions. The peace was not to last long. The active imperialist and hardliner Charles Lawrence soon became acting governor. Lawrence regarded the Acadians as part and parcel of the French enemy and treated them accordingly. In August 1754, Lawrence denounced the obstinacy, treachery, and ingratitude of the incendiary French priest. The evil Arcadians, he thundered, persisted in trading with the French and with the Indians. What is more, here was an ominous warning indeed, they possessed the best and largest tracts of land in this province, not surprisingly, since the French had settled these lands. Underneath the mock surprise were the words of a man getting ready to loot the hard-earned property of others. Lawrence warned the Acadians of expulsion should they not take an unconditional oath. Lawrence then proceeded to prohibit all export of corn from the province. The order served to prohibit the sale of corn to the French and Indians, and thus to force a sale at a far lower price to the British town of Halifax in Nova Scotia. The next step in the English exploitation of the labor of the French Acadians was the order by Lawrence to bring in wood to the British fort. The Acadians protested that their oath of allegiance did not require them to supply wood to the fort. The British reply to this eminently reasonable claim was to denounce the evil influence of Abbe Dowden over the minds of the Acadians and to hold the Abbe and five of the Acadians in Halifax. The Abbe protested that the people are free and should be contracted with for firewood and not be treated as slaves. The Council of Nova Scotia's reply was to reprimand the protesters and order the Acadians to bring in wood under pain of death. Abbe Dowden, in the meanwhile, was expelled from the province, and the hapless Acadians agreed to comply with the forced labor decree. Of all the British campaigns during 1755, 
The only successful attack was, we have seen, the capture of Fort Beausjour and the consequent reduction of the New Brunswick area. Naively, the Acadians took at face value the English claim that their hostility stemmed from worry over the Acadians as potentially subversive allies of the French. With the French threat greatly reduced, the poor Acadians actually believed that the English would ease their oppression. Accordingly, they requested Lawrence that they once again be allowed use of their canoes for fishing, and that they again be allowed to bear arms for hunting and general self-defense. Lawrence denounced the petition as impertinent and insolent, and ordered once again an unconditional loyalty oath for all Acadians. In fact, he ordered the deputies who had presented the petition to take the full oath on the spot. They, of course, insisted on the old conditions. Not only did Lawrence and his council insist on the immediate oath, but they also informed the deputies that once anyone refused to take the oath, he would not be allowed another chance and would be summarily expelled from Nova Scotia. When the frightened deputies then offered to take the oath, they were informed that this act would now be coerced and therefore not sincere. Hence, they could not have even this chance. Incredibly, the deputies were then promptly arrested and branded popish recusants and subjects of France. It was now clear that for the British on Nova Scotia, the reduction of the French power in the area, combined with the continued state of war, provided an excellent opportunity for the final solution of the Acadian problem, without further worry about the Acadians becoming a war threat by joining the French. Lieutenant Governor Lawrence and his council now moved to the climactic stroke, an order for the expulsion of every Acadian from Nova Scotia soil. The order was issued illegally, without authority from Britain or from the absent Governor Hobson, but with a pliant legal opinion handed down by Chief Justice Jonathan Belcher, Jr. The grand genocidal design for eradication of the Acadians from the land they had built was now underway. By a ruse, the Acadian men were assembled together and were then suddenly denounced as rebels by the authorities and taken prisoner without warning. All the land, the cattle, and the corn of the Acadian people were confiscated by the crown. Only ready cash and furniture could be removed from the province. All the Acadian villages and many farms and homes were burned and destroyed by the British troops, who also used every possible method to flush out any Acadians hiding in the woods. In Posequid, the British troops arrogantly courted themselves in a Roman Catholic church and took the precaution of ordering the Acadians to furnish them with provisions before rounding them up. To ensure submission, the young male prisoners were coercively separated from their families. The massive expulsion of the Acadians began in early October 1755, and ship after ship 
separating families and friends, conveyed the unfortunates to all parts of the hemisphere. Shortly after the expulsion began, Lawrence received the king's order not to molest the Acadian. Reasoning as the typical bureaucrat, Lawrence rationalized his disobeying the king's order. Once begun, even if in error, the expulsion process could not be reversed. By the end of the year, over 6,000 Acadians were deported and their property confiscated or destroyed. A remnant remained hiding in the woods. Some of the ships were decimated by smallpox. The Acadians were shipped to Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut, with Lawrence instructing their governors to dispose of the refugees in such a way as to prevent them from remaining together as a people. In some of the colonies, the younger Acadians were conscripted as indentured servants for a few months. Typical of the cold treatment of the Acadians in the American colonies was that of South Carolina, where about a third of the Acadians were sent. They were immediately thrown into custody. Soon after, they were compulsorily dispersed, quotas being sent to all of the parishes of the colony. Finally, they were given permission to go where they wished, the bulk of them deciding to migrate to French Canada. Pennsylvania's treatment of the hapless refugees was particularly ill-natured and was capped by bitter attacks by Pennsylvania's Governor Robert Hunter Morris and New Jersey's Governor Jonathan Belcher, father of Nova Scotia's pliable Chief Justice. Morris and Belcher raised the alarm about an imminent, giant, subversive Roman Catholic conspiracy in the colony's midst an unholy potential alliance of Acadians, Irish, and German Catholics. All these groups were attacked by the governors as rebels and traitors. Besides, the colonies had too many strangers already. Only the generosity of the Quakers made the lot of the coercively dispersed Acadians at all tolerable. New York led in seizing Acadian youth and forcing them into the bondage of indentured service. All the men were placed under arrest and dispersed by quota among the various districts in the province. Massachusetts received over 1,000 Acadians, many filtering down through the wilderness from Nova Scotia. A tract of land was set aside for Acadians in Worcester, but when many began to move to Boston, the city's selectmen expelled them to the outlying districts. Virginia expelled all of its Acadians, most of whom moved to French Louisiana. Some Acadians who had left voluntarily for New Brunswick made the mistake of asking for readmission to Acadia. Granted the permission, they were promptly placed in vassalage in Nova Scotia or deported to France and England. Also unfortunate were the 1,500 who ended up in supposedly hospitable Quebec. There, however, they were treated cruelly, robbed of their remaining possessions by the French commander, and allowed virtually no food. Many died from smallpox. After the British conquered Quebec later in the war, many Acadians were seized and shipped as defeated prisoners of war to Halifax, 
where they were forced to work on the roads. Only in Maryland, where Catholics were not unknown monsters, were the Acadians treated with courtesy and kindness in the Americas. They were voluntarily housed in private homes and were able to find work and build homes in Baltimore. Many Acadians had voluntarily emigrated to Prince Edward Island, and by 1755, 4,000 former Acadians had settled there. Upon the final British capture of Louisbourg and Prince Edward, the British deported them all to France, two of the ships sinking with 700 Acadians aboard. A few of the Acadians managed to hide successfully in the woods of Nova Scotia, and there they teamed up with dissident Indians to wage guerrilla war upon their tormentors. Two hundred of them were rounded up by January 1756 and shipped to South Carolina. The prisoners managed to take over the ship and sailed to Canada, where they became privateers for the French. After the war in America was over, however, the British captured this community and carried off the inhabitants as prisoners to Halifax. Charles Lawrence's defiance of the king's order not to expel the Acadians went unpunished. Shortly afterward, war between England and France broke out officially, and Lawrence only seemed to be a premature patriot. The tragedy of the poor Acadians was not over, even with the end of the war in America in 1760. By 1761, Jonathan Belcher, Jr., now lieutenant governor of Nova Scotia, professed to miss the Acadians. Who could now repair the dikes? Yet when Acadians began to drift back to Nova Scotia, their very presence changed Belcher's mind, and he and the council expelled them once again. Unfortunately, they were deported to Massachusetts, which refused to receive the five shiploads of Acadians and sent them back again. Volume 2, Chapter 39, Total War By the end of 1755, then, the first phase of the French and Indian War had ended. British and Virginian attacks on Fort Duquesne had been smashed, as indeed had all the aggressive expeditions against the French except the campaign against Fort Beausjour in New Brunswick, a victory followed by the expulsion of the entire peaceful French population of Nova Scotia. Despite determined and continued efforts by the French to preserve the peace, war between England and France officially broke out in the spring of 1756. A new phase of the war had begun. England and France were now formally embarked on the Seven Years' War, waged in Europe and in the overseas colonies in the East and the West. In America, Governor Shirley, in command of the English forces, concentrated on the northern frontier with New France in New York. The two main areas of conflict were on Lake Ontario in the West and the Lake George-Lake Champlain area north of Albany. But Shirley had his troubles at the two English western forts of Oswego and Ontario, which were racked by disease 
lack of provisions, lack of money for soldiers' pay, and near mutiny and mass desertions. Under Shirley, supplies to the forts had bogged down. Graft abounded in connection with the Army's contracts, especially in the circle of Shirley's friends. On the other side, the best new asset was the brilliant new commander in New France, the Marquis de Montcalm. In a sparkling maneuver, Montcalm captured and destroyed Fort Ontario and Fort Oswego in mid-August 1756. The British had now been driven from the entire Lake Ontario region, and this success now induced many Iroquois, as well as other western Indian tribes, to join the French side. At about the same time, Shirley was replaced as commander of American forces by the Earl of Loudoun, who soon sent Shirley packing out of the country in disgrace. The Earl, however, did little better than Shirley. During the 1757 summer campaign, while the Earl was mobilizing a huge force of 15,000 men for an assault on Louisbourg, an assault that he had to abandon, Montcalm swept down and captured and destroyed Fort William Henry, the English stronghold at the southern tip of Lake George. Loudon had his troubles on the American home front as well. New Yorkers, particularly in New York City and Albany, strenuously objected to Loudon's compulsory quartering of English troops in their private homes. The Pennsylvania Militia Bill was finally driven through, but the New Jersey Assembly sturdily refused Loudon's demand that it draft 1,000 men for the war effort. New Jersey was a colony with heavy Quaker influence, and it was not, and would not, be part of the theater of war. Thus, self-interest, pacifist philosophy, and a natural instinct for liberty all combined to resist a draft. Instead, New Jersey offered a handsome bounty for voluntary enlistments. Quaker justices of the peace, indeed, used their position to persuade recruits not to join up and even imprisoned them on fictitious charges until their military outfits had gone. Desertions from the army were frequent and generally went unpunished. In 1756 and 1757, the French having repulsed the attacks of the English under the great generalship of Montcalm, were able to take the initiative and to win signal victories on Lake Ontario and on the upper New York frontier. In the meanwhile, a grave and fateful turn of affairs was underway in Britain itself. With the war, especially in America, going badly, England again faced the choice of retreating, or redoubling its efforts. It chose Charisma and William Pitt, the half-crazed arch warmonger of them all. In malevolent contrast to his confreres, Pitt was the harbinger of a modern war leader. Other European statesmen were content to fight for limited objectives and to indulge in an unedifying but at least a not fatally destructive jockeying over the balance of power. But Pitt, in his appetite for power, plunder, and imperial glory, was satisfied with nothing less than total victory pursued by total mobilization and an all-out drive to crush the enemy 
without quarter. His particular interest for many years had been the eradication of New France. Backed by the London merchants and financiers eager for conquest and plunder, and by the English masses swayed by his imperialistic demagogy, Pitt rode to power in late 1756. After some faltering in early 1757, Pitt finally agreed to add Cumberland's desire to pursue the war in Europe to his own plans for colonial conquest. Pitt was then firmly ensconced as virtually absolute war dictator by July 1757. A chastened Newcastle stayed to lend his important support as prime minister. From the time that Pitt and his unlimited war took hold, the doom of New France was strategically inevitable. Already critically short of provisions, the French in America were soon faced with an overwhelming and ever-increasing disadvantage in men and resources. All Montcalm could do, which he did superbly, was to hold on as long as he could and hope for peace to be made in Europe. At the end of 1757, Loudon was succeeded as commander-in-chief by General James Abercrombie, and Pitt proceeded to mobilize overwhelming numbers against the French. The British were to pay for arms and ammunition and partially pay the expenses of the colonial troops. Even so, during the summer campaign of 1758, the French won their last great victory. Led by Abercrombie, a huge force of over 6,000 regulars and 9,000 American troops marched on Fort Carillon, Ticonderoga the French bastion at the southern tip of Lake Champlain. On July 8, the French met this giant force with only slightly more than 3,000 men, but again cut the English force to ribbons. The event was greatly aided by the stupid generalship of Abercrombie, who repeatedly hurled his unfortunate troops into volleys of frontal fire. So large was the British force, however, that this proved but a temporary setback to their plans. In complete command of the sea, a British fleet of 40 ships carrying a land force of over 10,000 men, the vast bulk of them British regulars, and a sea force of at least as many, meanwhile laid siege to Louisbourg. The French defenders, scarcely 6,000 strong, were soon forced to capitulate. The British celebrated their victory by expelling the entire French population from Cape Breton Island. Shortly afterward, at the end of August, Colonel John Bradstreet, commanding a force of over 3,000, found little trouble in swamping a fort Frontenac guarded by a hundred men. The loss of this key French fort on the northern side of Lake Ontario cut communications between Canada and the Ohio Valley. General Abercrombie was promptly removed from overall command and succeeded by General Jeffrey Amherst, the victor at Louisbourg. The obvious next step was the recapture of Fort Duquesne and thus of the Ohio Valley. Paving the way for this was an agreement with the Delaware and Shawnee Indians who had been conducting raids on the Pennsylvania frontier. 
cheated of their lands by the walking purchase, these Indians had been further scandalized by the Albany Convention Treaty of 1754. In this treaty, the Iroquois, vaguely and tenuously overlords of the Ohio Valley tribes, were easily persuaded to sign away to the British all the Ohio Valley lands, which were utterly remote from their control or genuine concern. Finally, under the influence of Israel Pemberton and the Quakers, Pennsylvania concluded a peace agreement with the Indians in October 1758, relinquishing Pennsylvania's entire claim to the Ohio lands west of the Alleghenies. The road was now paved for General John Forbes's expedition against Fort Duquesne with a force of about 6,000 men, the majority colonial militia. Again, the French defenders were hopelessly outnumbered, having no more than 1,000 men. Even though the Virginia route to Duquesne had already been built by Braddock, Forbes decided to hew a new road from Pennsylvania. The issue could not be in doubt, however, and at the end of November, the retreating French destroyed Fort Duquesne. The fort was soon rebuilt by the British and fittingly renamed Fort Pitt. With all the main French positions west and east captured, except for Fort Niagara, and enjoying absolute command of the sea, the British at the start of 1759 were in a firm position to strike into the Canadian heartland. Montcalm, commanding about 10,000 men and low on provisions, confronted the prospect of opposing five times that number, and knew that he could only concentrate his forces in the heartland and hope for a general peace. He was, however, beset by troubles, both from a governor who had no conception of the danger and dreamed absurdly of retaking Lake Ontario and even Fort Pitt, and from a corrupt and venal status bureaucracy in Canada. The first tasks of the British in 1759 were to capture Fort Niagara and the Lake Champlain forts of Carillon and St. Frederick, after which the assault on Canada itself could be mounted. General John Prideaux, with several thousand men, laid siege to less than 500 at Fort Niagara. Despite a series of blunders that included the accidental killing of Prideaux by British shells, sheer British numbers overwhelmed the fort at the end of July. Furthermore, a poorly organized French relief party of nearly 1,500 was captured and destroyed. The West was firmly in British hands. In the meanwhile, Amherst advanced with about 12,000 men, approximately half British and half provincials, against only 2,500 French at Fort Carillon. The French could only blow up Fort Carillon and then Fort St. Frederick and retreat northward. By the end of July, the British had thus cleared all the outposts south of Canada and were ready for the climactic blow. In fact, the British probably could have finished the war swiftly if Hammers had had the tenacity to march north from Lake Champlain and capture Montreal. Instead, Amherst wasted a great deal of precious time building elaborate forts at Crown Point and Ticonderoga, 
which were irrelevant both to the current war and to the future frontier. After this, Amherst dwaddled until the onset of winter suspended operations. While Montreal was to remain as the major British effort of the following year, the climactic battle of the war was achieved in the capture of Quebec, the goal of so many British expeditions since the 17th century. In June 1759, a force of about 9,000 under young General James Wolfe launched an amphibious campaign up the St. Lawrence. The huge fleet under Vice Admiral Charles Saunders included 170 ships carrying some 18,000 seamen. A hard-line militarist and imperialist, Wolfe had nothing but the utmost contempt for Americans, French, or Indians, and he wantonly destroyed and devastated the French settlements as he went. After three months of aimless and futile siege, Wolfe finally assented to the plan of his brigadiers. With a force of 3,500 men, he executed a surprise maneuver to ascend to the Plains of Abraham near Quebec, where he routed the slightly smaller force of Montcalm's. Quebec's surrender was a matter of a few days. By the middle of September, the seat of French power in the New World had fallen. Despite the loss of Quebec and of the great Montcalm, who had also fallen at the Plains of Abraham, the amazing French fought on. The new French commander, the Chevalier de la Ville Lorraine, even administered a drubbing to the British forces the following spring. The British, too, had a new commander, General James Murray, for Wolfe had also been killed at the Plains of Abraham. The French indeed might well have recaptured Quebec, but once again numbers prevailed, and a British relief party turned to the tide. Finally, three forces converged on Montreal, Murray from Quebec, Amherst up the St. Lawrence from Lake Ontario, and Colonel William Haviland up the Richelieu River from Lake Champlain. Montreal finally fell on September 8, 1760, the British had succeeded in conquering all of Canada. The war with the French, so far as America was concerned, was over. Volume 2, Chapter 40, The American Colonies and the War During the French and Indian War, Americans continued the great tradition of trading with the enemy, and even more readily than before. As in King George's War, Newport took the lead. Other vital centers were New York and Philadelphia. The individualistic Rhode Islanders angrily turned Governor Stephen Hopkins out of office for embroiling Rhode Island in a foreign war between England and France. Rhode Island blithely disregarded the embargo against trade with the enemy and redoubled its commerce with France. Rhode Island's ships also functioned as one of the major sources of supply for French Canada during the war. In the fall of 1757, William Pitt was told that the Rhode Islanders are a lawless set of smugglers who continually supply the enemy with what provisions they want. The Crown ordered royal governors to embargo exports of food and to break up the extensive traffic with the West Indies, 
but shippers again resorted to flags of truce and trade through neutral ports in the West Indies. Monte Cristi, in Spanish Hispaniola, proved to be a particularly popular intermediary port. The flags of truce device particularly irritated the British, and the lucrative sale of this privilege, with the prisoners' names left blank, was indulged in by Governors William Denny of Pennsylvania and Francis Bernard of New Jersey. French prisoners for token exchanges under the flags were rare and therefore at a premium, and merchants in Philadelphia and New York paid high prices for these prisoners to Newport privateers. The peak of this trade came in 1759, for in the following year, with the end of the war with New France, the Royal Navy was able to turn its attention to this trade and virtually suppress it. However, in the words of Professor Breidenball, privateering and trade with the enemy might have their ups and downs, but then, as now, government contracts seem to entail little risk and to pay off handsomely particularly feeding at the trough of government war contracts, were specifically privileged merchants of New York and Pennsylvania. Two firms of London merchants were especially influential in handing out British war contracts to their favorite American correspondents. Thus, the highly influential London firm of John Tomlinson and John Hanbury, who was deeply involved in the Ohio Company, received a huge war contract. The firm designated Charles Apthorpe and Company its Boston representative and Colonel William Bayard its representative in New York. In addition, the powerful London merchant Moses Franks arranged for his relatives and friends, David Franks of Philadelphia and Jacob Franks, John Watts and the powerful Oliver Delancey of New York, to be made government agents. New York, furthermore, was made the concentration point for the British forces and the general storehouse of arms and ammunition, thus permitting many merchants to amass fortunes as subcontractors if they enjoyed the proper family connections. By 1761, however, all the great ports in America were suffering badly from the severe dislocation of trade wrought by the war. Smuggling and trading with the enemy were not the only forms of American resistance to British dictation during the French and Indian War. During the French Wars of the 1740s, Boston had been the center of violent resistance to conscription for the war effort, an effort that decimated the Massachusetts male population. During the French and Indian War, Massachusetts continued as the most active center of resistance to conscription and of widespread desertion, often en masse, from the militia. Thomas Pownall took over as governor of Massachusetts in early 1757 and cracked down bitterly on Massachusetts' liberties. He sent troops outside Massachusetts without assembly permission, threatened to punish justices of the peace who did not enforce the laws against desertion, hitherto interpreted with salutary neglect, and threatened Boston with military occupation if the Assembly did not agree to the arrival and quartering of British troops. In November, English recruiting officers appeared in Boston, and the Assembly and the Boston magistrates forbade any recruiting 
or any quartering of troops in the town. Pownall vetoed these actions as violations of the royal prerogative, especially in emergencies. The magistrates then countered by detaining recruiting officers in order to investigate them as potential carriers of disease. When Pownall tried to frighten the Massachusetts Assembly with the French threat, it cogently replied that the real threat was the English army and that if that army marched on Massachusetts, as their commander-in-chief Lord Loudon was threatening, Massachusetts would resist the troops by force. The legislature insisted on the natural rights of the people of Massachusetts to defend which they would resist to the last breath a cruel invading army. Lord Loudon was threatening to send his army from Long Island, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania to compel the quartering of troops in Boston. In exasperation, Lord Loudon wrote to Governor Pownall in December 1757, They, the Massachusetts Assembly, attempt to take away the king's undoubted prerogative. They attempt to take away an act of the British Parliament. They attempt to make it impossible for the king either to keep troops in North America or to march them through his own dominion. The Massachusetts legislature finally agreed to permit the quartering of troops, but formally insisted that this quartering come under its own authority and not that of England or its governor. So few citizens of Massachusetts volunteered for the 1758 campaign that Governor Pownall resorted to the hated device of conscription. Resentment among the people was intensified by such British recruiting methods as dragging drunken men into the army. The people erupted angrily in a series of riots, attacking and beating up recruiting squads, all of which required the British to retain a large troop in Massachusetts to crush an imminent rebellion. The Massachusetts draftees then resorted to the silent but effective nonviolent resistance of mass desertions, refusal to obey the hated officers, and going on sick call. Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson was appointed to round up deserters, and hundreds were betrayed by the government's network of paid informers. The people's resentment and resistance were intensified by the economic depression in Massachusetts caused by high taxes for the war effort. Following the disastrous Ticonderoga campaign in 1758, the English General James Wolfe wrote in vehemence and despair that the Americans are in general the dirtiest, most contemptible cowardly dogs that you can conceive. There is no depending upon them in action. They desert by battalions, officers and all. Other officials and observers remarked wonderingly of the individualistic spirit of the militiamen. Almost every man, his own master and a general. With the militia officers democratically elected by their men, the notion of liberty so generally prevails that they are impatient under all kinds of superiority and authority. Moreover, the Americans added a new concept to the age-old European peasant and yeoman practice of desertion, the assassination of officers who would not cooperate. 
Even in the following years of English victory, the Massachusetts militia continued its resistance. In 1759, it refused to remain at Lake Champlain for the winter, mutinied against its officers, and returned home. The following year, the Massachusetts militia refused to go from Nova Scotia to Quebec and mutinied again. General Jeffrey Amherst had high-handedly decided in late 1759 to keep the Massachusetts troops in Nova Scotia over the winter of 1759-60, despite the fact that their terms of enlistment had expired. The men unanimously announced their refusal to serve any longer and wrote to the commander demanding that they be sent home. The Americans were all placed under guard thereafter. The British decided to shoot the mutinous colonist, but bloodshed was averted at the last minute when the Massachusetts General Court extended the terms of enlistment to six months and sweetened the pill with an extra bonus of four pounds per soldier. By spring, however, the men in the general court remained firm. The troops unanimously decided to leave, and the general court refused to extend their terms in the army. So anxious were the Massachusetts soldiers to leave to go home that a party of them commandeered a ship and set sail for home. It was wholly in vain that Amherst demanded British-style discipline for these rebellious, democratically-governed militiamen. Large numbers of deserting sailors, furthermore, left to join the merchant marine for large-scale smuggling and trade with the enemy. New York City was a lively center for deserting sailors, and New York merchants systematically hid the sailors from the British troops. The British compelled their return in 1757 by threatening to conduct a deliberately brutal and thorough house-to-house search and to treat New York as a conquered city. British troops were quartered upon New York against the vehement opposition of the citizens they were supposedly protecting. In Philadelphia, pacifist mobs repeatedly attacked recruiting officers and even lynched one in February 1756. In general, continuing conflict raged between English commanders who wanted complete control over the colonial militia and the assemblies, which insisted on definite limitations on militia service. American disaffection with the war effort was particularly marked after 1756, when the limited campaign to grab Ohio lands was succeeded by full-scale war against French Canada. If Americans, during the Seven Years' War, pursued a policy of trading with the enemy, the British bitterly alienated the other countries of Europe by repudiating all the cherished principles of international law on the sea that had been worked out over the past century. The developed and agreed-upon principle of international law was that neutral ships were entitled to trade with a warring country without molestation by any belligerent. Free ships make free goods, unless the goods were actual armaments. After finally agreeing to the civilized principle of international law in the late 17th century, England now returned to the piratical practice of attacking neutral ships trading with France and of stopping and searching neutral ships on the high seas.
England had long been the major opponent of rational international law and of the great libertarian concept of freedom of the seas, which formed an integral part of that law. Neutrals' rights were corollary of that concept, as was the doctrine that no nation could claim ownership or sovereignty of the seas, that, in fact, the citizens of any nation could use the open seas to trade, travel, or fish where they would. During the 16th century, Queen Elizabeth had not accepted the grandiose claims of the mystic astrologer Dr. John Dee of England's claim to ownership of the surrounding seas. After all, England was then engaged in asserting freedom of the seas against the presumed Spanish and Portuguese monopolies of the newly discovered oceans. But after the accession of the Stuarts, Spain was no longer a grave threat to the seas, and England's overriding maritime interest was to destroy the highly efficient and competitive Dutch shipping. Very early in his reign, James I claimed ownership of the surrounding seas and the fish therein, and Charles I arrogantly claimed sovereignty over the entire North Sea. In opposition to the Stuart pretensions, the great Dutch father of international law, the liberal Hugo Grotius, laid down the principle of freedom of the seas in his Mare Liberum in 1609 and integrated the principle into the natural law structure of international law in his definitive treatise of 1625, De Jure Belli Grotius was able to build upon the 16th century writings of the great liberal Spanish jurist and scholastics Francis Alfonso de Castro, Ferdinand Vaquez Benchaia, and Francisco Suarez who flourished even in a time when the Spanish interest was in proclaiming its sovereignty of the seas. Grotius's libertarian view of freedom of the seas could expect to meet stern opposition in many countries, but the greatest opposition was in England, where the Stuarts mobilized scholars in their defense. The lean opponents of Grotius and celebrants of governmental and especially English sovereignty over the seas were the Scott professor William Wellwood, 1613, the Italian-born Oxford Regius Professor, Albericus Gentilis, 1613, who proclaimed absolute English ownership of the Atlantic as far west as America, Sir John Burroughs, Royal Bureaucrat, 1633, and John Selden, 1635. England continued its grandiose claims during the 17th century, but with its shipping ever more extensive by the end of the century, it began to consent to be bound by international law on the high seas. England had also been the major opponent of neutral rights in time of war, and the Dutch their major advocate. However, in the Treaty of 1674 with Holland, England finally agreed to the vital rule of free ships, free goods, in protection of neutral shipping, a principle that France and Spain had at least formally ratified two decades before. But now, on the opening of the Seven Years' War, England arrogantly informed the Dutch and other neutrals that any of their ships trading with France would be treated as enemy vessels. Under a specious, newly coined rule, 
outlawing neutral shipping that the enemy had permitted in its ports in time of peace. Chief theoretician of this British reversion to official piracy was the Tory Jacobite Charles Jenkinson. Britain's arrogant attacks on neutral shipping and violations of international law during the Seven Years' War alienated all the neutral countries of Europe, who soon raised a cry to return to freedom of the seas. Particularly harassed was the highly efficient Dutch shipping, and fellow sufferers from British policy were Spain, Portugal, Sweden, Russia, Naples, Tuscany, Genoa, and Sardinia. Volume 2, Chapter 41 Concluding Peace Although the conflict in America was ended by 1760, the war between Britain and France continued to rage elsewhere. India, the West Indies, where England captured Guadeloupe, and Europe. Through it all, England was driven by the mania of William Pitt for the total crushing of the French enemy. By the end of 1759, Guadeloupe had been conquered and New France all but vanquished. Coupled with England's commanding position, however, was the burden of high taxes and of a mounting national debt. Increasingly appalled at the long and terribly costly war, Newcastle and the Whigs concluded that it was high time to make peace. Newcastle's cry was typical. I wish to God I could see my way through this mountain of expense. Flip war was now began to rage in Great Britain, sponsored by and reflecting the positions of the contending parties. The imperialist war crowd led by Pitt, his brother-in-law George Grenville, the Duke of Bedford and the young Prince of Wales, and his high Tory adviser, the Earl of Butte, panicked at any hint of peace and demanded the retention of every British conquest especially of Canada. Some imperialist pamphlets went so far as to urge the conquest of French Louisiana. In the last analysis, however, the imperialists were willing to concede Guadeloupe in order to keep Canada. Even Pitt's instincts for keeping any and all conquest were tempered by the fact that his main political and financial supporter was Alderman William Beckford, Beckford, leader of the London merchants and financiers, was one of the richest men in the British Empire, an absentee sugar planter of the West Indies. He opposed incorporating the fertile and efficient French sugar plantations into the empire and thus into its extensive markets. Furthermore, Pitt himself had strong family connections with West Indies planters. To counter the imperialist propaganda, the Newcastle Peace Forces enlisted the services of William Burke, secretary of the newly conquered Guadeloupe. Burke rose to the occasion with a trenchant and popular pamphlet published in January 1760. Burke recalled the original war aim as stated in November 1754, the limited conquest of the upper Ohio Valley east of the Wabash. He suggested a return to these limited war aims, the retention of only Guadeloupe and the upper Ohio Valley, and the return of Canada to France. In this way, proper limits would be established to English conquest, and peace could be concluded quickly and amicably. Several other Whig pamphlets joined Burke in asking for the return of Canada, one of which was also printed in Boston. 
The imperialist counterattacked with another flood of pamphlets in February and March, insisting on keeping Canada and hence implicitly on continuing the war indefinitely. The major imperialist reply was the influential pamphlet by Benjamin Franklin and Richard Jackson, The Interest of Great Britain Considered, published in the spring of 1760 and reprinted that year in Boston and Philadelphia. Franklin, agent of the Pennsylvania legislature in England, was a friend of Bedford, Halifax, and Pitt, but his closest associates were among the high Tory clique, whose leading luminaries were Lord Bute and the Prince of Wales. All shared the goal of increased centralized royal control over the American colonies, and Franklin also aimed at royal replacement of proprietary government in Pennsylvania. As the pamphlet war began to brew at the turn of 1760, Franklin had written to his close friend Lord Kames of his gushing enthusiasm for a grandiose British empire. As a Briton, I have long been of opinion that the foundations of the future grandeur and stability of the British empire lie in America. Kames, the head of the high Tory Scottish faction that was always and ever subservient to the crown and the royal prerogative, commissioned Franklin to write his major imperialist pamphlet. In this work, Franklin held out to the British the usual imperialist visions of being a huge naval power and of vast markets for British manufacturers in a British Canada. Himself heavily engaged in speculation in Western land, Franklin trumpeted the virtues of cheap virgin land to the British Empire. Grateful for Franklin's allegiance, the Tories were soon to make his son, William, a baronet and a governor of New Jersey, while Oxford University, the intellectual center of the Tories, granted Franklin an honorary degree. Newcastle and the Whigs had been able in late 1759 to force the reluctant Pitt into peace negotiations with France. By early 1760, England and France were very close to agreement on a mild peace that would have returned the bulk of Canada and Guadeloupe to French hands, while ceding the upper Ohio Valley and Nova Scotia to England, and demolishing the French fort at Louisbourg. But Pitt was able to sabotage the negotiations and to break them off by April on the flimsy excuse that the British ally Prussia was not sufficiently protected in the peace terms, a particularly phony ruse because Prussia itself ardently favored the quick peace. Pitt and the industrialist greatly needed an issue to prevent peace from breaking out, they found it in the series of aggressions and depredations they were conducting against neutral Spain. Spanish shipping was plundered on the high seas along with ships of other European neutrals, and Spaniards were illegally deprived by the British of their legal fishing rights in Newfoundland waters. But Pitt arrogantly refused to respect Spain's rights in fishing or in shipping, Furthermore, in direct violation of an agreement concluded by Newcastle six years earlier, Pitt refused to limit the aggressions of British loggers in Honduras. Spain had agreed to grant some permission to Englishmen to cut logs in Honduras, 
The English log cutters promptly began to violate Spanish goodwill by building forts and claiming sovereignty over the whole region for England. Events took a fateful turn in the fall of 1760. The French surrendered Canada in September, and in the following month King George II died and was succeeded by the Prince of Wales as George III. Since George II had been an ardent supporter of Pitt's imperialist schemes, Newcastle and his chief follower, the Earl of Hardwick, as well as their fellow Whigs, saw in both events an opportunity to resume negotiations for peace. The Whigs reopened the debate on the peace terms in November in a highly influential pamphlet by the wealthy merchant Israel Maudwit, Considerations on the Present German War. Maudwit advocated the old Whig policy of returning Canada while retaining Guadeloupe and the other sugar islands. He also boldly recommended a return to the old Walpole-Pelham policy of ceasing to meddle or intervene in the affairs of Europe, or to whip up conflicts against France. Moderate showed that such a course would be far kinder to England's Prussian ally. The new king promptly added to his cabinet his chief adviser, the Earl of Bute, and Bute brought in other Tories associated with the royal faction. The ultimate aims of Bute and King George on the one hand and Pitt on the other were quite similar, the absolute destruction of the Whig Party and its legacy of liberalism, and the aggrandizement of royal control over Parliament and country. Both factions also agreed on the major imperial war aim of retaining Canada, since both had been nurtured in the visionary imperial dreams of the old Beckfordite opposition to Walpole. Here they were joined, of course, by the other imperialist factions, such as those of Bedford and of George Grenville. All these doctrinal positions could join in a systematic policy of high Toryism, aggrandizement of strong royal power at home and throughout the empire. Hence, these Tory-minded factions could also readily agree on other programs of the old anti-Walpole opposition, on the ending of salutary neglect, on the rigorous enforcement of trade regulations over the colonies, and on a strong central government over America, perhaps to be headed by the pliable Benjamin Franklin. The imperialists lost little time in mounting a heavy counterattack of pamphlets against Maudwit and the Whigs, the major rebuttal, Reasons in Support of the War in Germany, was published in January 1761 by Robert Wood, one of Pitt's chief aides. But the real author behind the scenes was thought to be Pitt himself. Also joining in the pressure to keep Canada was the alderman Sir William Baker, a leading military contractor and merchant in the American trade, in which he was closely associated with the leading American contractors Delancey and Watts. By the spring of 1761, the French declared their willingness to yield far more than called for by the moderate Whig demands. They would cede to Britain, Canada, the Ohio Valley, and even Guadeloupe, provided that France could retain her precious fishing rights in Canadian and Newfoundland waters, with Louisbourg to protect them, 
But the fishing rights were precisely what Pitt was most eager to gain, one of his prime objects in the war being an English monopoly of Canadian fishing and the crushing of efficient French competition. Pitt delighted in pouring cold water on the Whigs, who were overjoyed at the French peace offer. He would, he savagely assured them, fight for another half-dozen years to control Canada and its fishing. Alderman Baker now returned to the attack, urging not only the retention of Canada and a monopoly of its fisheries, but also the seizure of French Louisiana. By the end of June, a new division had emerged in the cabinet. King George, Butte, Pitt, and Pitt's faithful brother-in-law, Earl Temple, united on a minimum of peace terms, the Ohio Valley, Canada, Louisburg, and the fishing monopoly. The Whigs, Newcastle, and Hardwick were, surprisingly, now joined by Bedford and John Carteret, who realized that France would fight to the death for her fishing rights. In reply to the generous French peace offer, Pitt, bolstered by his wide support, fired an ultimatum. Surrender Canada, Louisbourg, the fisheries, and French conquest in Germany in return for keeping Guadeloupe. Furthermore, none of Spain's grievances against England was to be satisfied, and Pitt disdainfully broke off all negotiations with Spain. Its ships plundered, its fishing rights banned, and its Honduran territory seized by contemptuous Britain, Spain grew desperate and sought aid from France. Both Spain and France grew still more anxious at a new, highly touted scheme of Butte and George Grenville, Pitt's brother-in-law, to conquer French Louisiana, a scheme that led to the transfer of General Amherst forces from Canada to Charleston, South Carolina, in the spring of 1761. Butte and Grenville were heavily influenced in behalf of this plan by a manuscript of Henry McCullough, a British official in North Carolina. McCullough, an active speculator in Trans-Carolina lands, had for years hawked a French threat to America and advocated a strong, centralized government over the colonies. Now McCullough called for a grab of Louisiana and its valued lands and furs. A debate now ensued on the meaning of what had been included in the surrender of Canada at Montreal. Pitt insisted that Canada also included all of Louisiana east of the Mississippi. France, however, pointed out that the surrender did not include the Illinois-Wabash area in the southeast. Thus, Pitt, too, had escalated English demands by claiming all of eastern Louisiana from the French. To appease Pitt's paranoia, France had refrained from forming an alliance with Spain, but now the two harassed countries began to draw together. It was clear that Pitt would only issue outrageous demands rather than negotiate for peace. In desperation, France and Spain agreed in late August that the latter would enter the war should England permit or prolong the conflict. The maniacal Pitt Scenting plots now broke off negotiations after France had again refused to accept his ultimatum. Pitt carried the day by threatening to resign if peace negotiations continued. 
Britain now faced the problem of Spain's entry into the war. Open were two courses. One, to resume peace negotiations, which would keep Spain out of the war. Two, now demanded by Pitt, to launch aggressive war upon Spain. Indeed, Pitt, in mid-September 1761, urged an all-out surprise attack on the Spanish fleet, a violation of international law that would further alienate all European powers from Great Britain. In all of his recent aggressive designs, Pitt had been able to carry the day over Bedford and the Whigs by maintaining the support of the Earl of Butte. But now Butte, while favoring aggression against Spain, disagreed on the timing. He wished to wait and prepare the public and first end the war on the continent of Europe. Backed by King George, Butte refused to bow to Pitt's threats to resign if Spain were not attacked. Pitt and Earl Temple were therefore allowed to resign on October 2nd. Britain's fanatical war leader was now out of power, but William Pitt was hardly in disgrace. It was Butte's intention to reinstate Pitt, in a less powerful post, of course, as soon as he had managed to make war upon Spain. Then their common aim to aggrandize the royal prerogative and to destroy the liberal Whig party could proceed undisturbed. In the meanwhile, as a token of his esteem, Butte lavished peerages and pensions on Pitt and his family. He also pursued a subtle form of Pittite policy without the great man's personal participation. England was to have Pittism without Pitt. It is impossible to penetrate the tangled thicket of British politics in the 18th century without grasping the crucial and fateful role played by William Pitt, soon to be made the first Earl of Chatham. From the time that he emerged on the political scene in the late 1730s, Pitt was the decisive force in destroying the Whig equilibrium that had been established by Robert Walpole in the early decades of the century. The liberal Whig principles of peace, low taxes, and minimal government, supported by merchants and masses as against statist Tory prerogative, were shattered almost single-handedly by Pitt. Pitt was able to win over for the Tory objectives of imperial aggression and the royal prerogative both the masses and the leading merchants and financiers. The former were carried away by chauvinist demagogy and war hysteria induced by Pitt's charismatic oratory. The latter were joyous at the advantages to be reaped by imperial plunder and the privileges of monopoly. In this way, Pitt was able to shatter the great Whig coalition of merchant and populace to involve England in two long, costly, impoverishing wars and thus to pave the way for an active Tory monarch like George III, to impose his rule both at home and abroad. The half-crazed man on the white horse, welding effective demagogy to special interest, William Pitt was the spearhead of the British counter-revolution. George III's predecessors had not been particularly concerned with exerting the royal prerogative. William III and the first two Georges were largely concerned with continental politics. 
and the last two with their Hanoverian home. The Georges indeed generally spend at least half of each year in their beloved Hanover. But George III was determined to play a direct and decisive role in government. He was inspired to break the Whigs and to exercise his dominance by his teacher, Lord Bute. Bute, in turn, was influenced in this goal by the Tory political philosopher, Lord Bolingbroke, and his idea of the Patriot King, smashing all political parties independent of his will and ruling the nation without check or limit. Bute, in turn, was influenced in this goal by the Tory political philosopher Lord Bolingbroke and his idea of the Patriot King, smashing all political parties independent of his will and ruling the nation without check or limit. With Pitt out of the cabinet, his brother-in-law, George Grenville, who remained in the cabinet, became leader of the House of Commons. Grenville's brother-in-law, the Earl of Ergmont, became Secretary of State for the Southern Department. The great political struggle now centered on the projected war against Spain, with Bute preparing for it and Newcastle opposed and calling for a quick general peace. In plotting a war against Spain, Bute was more than fully backed by Grenville and Ergmont, while Newcastle was supported by the Whigs and by Bedford. With Pitt out of the cabinet, his brother-in-law, George Grenville, who remained in the cabinet, became leader of the House of Commons. Grenville's brother-in-law, the Earl of Egremont, became Secretary of State for the Southern Department. The great political struggle now centered on the projected war against Spain, with Bute preparing for it and Newcastle opposed and calling for a quick general peace. In plotting a war against Spain, Bute was more than fully backed by Grenville and Egremont, while Newcastle was supported by the Whigs and by Bedford. To force Spain into war, Egremont, buttressed by Bute and Grenville, sent a series of arrogant and insulting ultimatums to Spain in the fall of 1761. Spain was ordered to agree to the forfeit of its violated rights, to the lack of any satisfaction of its grievances, and to renounce any use of force in protecting her rights, else England would go to war with Spain in retaliation for its silent aggression. Newcastle, Bedford, and the Whigs tried desperately to launch negotiations and avert war, but England simply fell upon Spain in January 1762, despite opposition to the last by Newcastle, Hardwick, and Bedford. In the meanwhile, Pitt's acceptance of handsome pensions and perquisites had vastly alienated his support among the masses, who had thought him their champion and had valued his much-paraded honesty and incorruptibility. To divert the attention of the masses from the mud on his halo, Pitt and Temple used Alderman Beckford's warmongering newspaper, The Monitor, to urge aggression and all-out war on France and Spain, and for keeping Canada and its fishing rights, a campaign that served to push Pitt's successors more forcefully into the attack on Spain. The Spanish problem precipitated another pamphlet war toward the end of 1761. Israel, Mauduit, now an agent of the Massachusetts Assembly, again called for peace and for keeping Guadeloupe rather than Canada. 
On the other hand, Butte's agent, Charles Jenkinson, and Grenville's agent, Alexander Wedderburn, launched a newspaper and pamphlet campaign for attacking Spain and keeping Canada, and included hints of attempts to conquer Louisiana and perhaps continue on to Cuba and the silver mines of Mexico. Newcastle was horrified at Grenville's plans to seize Spanish America. I see things every day worse and worse. This itch after expeditions will exhaust our treasure. What will become of this poor country? God only knows. I never saw this nation so near its ruin as at present. Peace is the only remedy. At the end of February, the English conquered the French West Indian sugar island of Martinique, and this acquisition again spurred discussion of peace terms. The French were all the more eager to yield Canada, but not its fishing rights, provided that the West Indies were restored. But the British war leaders, Grenville and Agramont, insisted on Louisiana as well. Finally, at the end of May, Newcastle, isolated in the cabinet and seeing the war expand, resigned his post as prime minister. His fellow Whigs, Hardwick and Devonshire, resigning as well. In contrast to Pitt, Newcastle refused a placatory pension from the Crown. Butte had at last achieved his aim of ousting Newcastle. Butte, Grenville, and their friends now advanced in their official post. The Whigs were now completely out of the government for the first time in forty years. The French were now willing to cede eastern Louisiana, east of the Mississippi, in return for the West Indian Islands. But the English leaders had the war bit in their teeth. Grenville, Egremont, Carteret, and even Bedford were insisting on all of Louisiana. Oddly, Butte was now leaning toward the French peace terms. Bereft of allies in concluding peace, Butte began to long for the return of the Whigs. But the Whigs were too out of sympathy with the whole policy of conquest to come to his aid. In August, the British conquered Havana, and the war crowd's appetite was whetted still more. Bedford and Halifax called for Florida, and Grenville looked to the conquest of all of Spanish America. Butte, however, was now determined on peace, and brought the pliable Henry Fox to leadership of the House of Commons in order to drive through a peace treaty. In return, Fox would be given a peerage. At the same time, Egremont and Grenville were downgraded in the cabinet. Butte and Bedford finally managed to conclude a preliminary peace on November 3rd. England would receive Canada, Louisbourg, and all of North America east of the Mississippi, including Florida, as well as three of the minor West Indian islands. France retained Guadeloupe and Martinique, as well as its precious fishing rights off Canada and Newfoundland, and it transferred New Orleans and western Louisiana to Spain in compensation for the Spanish loss of Florida. Cuba was returned to Spain, but Spain lost its fishing rights in exchange for the liquidation of English forts in Honduras. Fox skillfully drove the peace terms through commons in December, and the final peace treaty was signed in Paris in February 1763. 
the long war with France was finally over, and France was now completely removed from the North American continent. As peace finally drew near, British politics centered all the more insistently on the peace terms. In 1757, Parliament, by an oversight, had failed to continue the high tax on newspapers that it had deliberately imposed in 1711 to prevent the growth of a popular, hence an opposition, press. As a result, the press was able to grow and be supported by a wide circulation. The ouster of Newcastle and the Whigs led the Bute Ministry, represented by Wedderburn, to establish the Briton as its mouthpiece at the end of May 1762. Earl Temple, as a counter, set up the oppositionist North Britain in early June, edited by a long-time follower of his, John Wilkes. Wilkes, a country squire hailing from a nonconformist merchant family, was high sheriff of Buckinghamshire. Pitt opposed the new venture as too inflammatory. To Pitt, all such political writing would be productive of mischief. Wilkes' audacity in editing the North Briton only confirmed Pitt's hostility. Even Wilkes's friend and backer, Temple, was generally cool to his bold policy. Temple peppered Wilkes with criticism and advice to temper his opposition, to eschew personal attacks, in short, to sail with the new current and partake of the court favor. By mid-October, Temple was writing harshly to his sister, the future wife of Pitt, Mr. Pitt and I disapprove of this paper war and the daily abominations which are published, though because Wilkes professes himself a friend of mine, I am ever represented infamously as a patron of what I disapprove and wish I could have put an end to. But Wilkes, on the other hand, quickly drew the support of Newcastle and the Whigs, since Wilkes ardently championed the opposition cause. As the peace treaty became imminent, two contrasting groups made clear their opposition. The Whigs, who continued to oppose the terms of undue conquest in North America, and Pitt, who opposed peace per se as too soft on the French. The most important Whig statement was a new edition of William Burke's Examination of the Commercial Principles. Again, calling for yielding Canada and the North American lands and to retain the Sugar Islands. Also influential was the similar Letter to the City of London by George Heathcote, M.P., a radical Whig or Commonwealth man. Temple's papers, taking a continued pit or Whig tone in opposition to the peace terms, drew down the wrath of the government which prepared a general warrant in early November against both the Monitor and the North Britain. In a February 1763 issue of the North Britain, which took essentially the Newcastle Whig line on the peace treaty, John Wilkes had denounced the ceding of the Sugar Islands in the West Indies instead of the vast, expensively maintained tracts in Canada and Florida. Henry Fox's shrewd management of the peace treaty, however, made this suppression unnecessary, and the general warrant remained unused. William Pitt, in his speech on the treaty, raved and ranted of the absolute necessity of the destruction of France, 
and for that purpose of retaining the fishing monopoly. By placing his opposition in these war-mad terms, Pitt drove many of the Whigs into lukewarm support of the treaty. At the end of December, in the massacre of the Pelham Innocents, Fox engineered the ouster of all the Whigs holding public office for daring to oppose the peace terms. Newcastle had always been friendly to opposition expressed by popular mobs, and he now spurred a vigorous Whig opposition to the increasingly Tory rule. John Wilkes wrote enthusiastically in the North Britain of December 25 that every friend of liberty and of revolution principles had been dismissed, and they must from now on depend on the people. In a six-part critique of Toryism and Tory rule, Wilkes thundered that the Tory faction is triumphant, and the most slavish doctrine of passive obedience and non-resistance is preached up by every pamphleteer and insisted upon by an all-grasping minister. The Whig party was now at a fateful crossroads, it either had to go into vigorous liberal opposition to the administration or, in effect, had to abandon all of its Whig principles and crawl back into government office. The Whig party was now at a fateful crossroads. It either had to go into vigorous liberal opposition to the administration or, in effect, had to abandon all of its Whig principles and crawl back into government office. The Whigs polarized. Hardwick, the York family, and Newcastle's nephew Charles Townshend, along with other conservatives, refused to form a vigorous opposition, whereas the more radical and principled Whigs, especially the Whig youth, headed by the Marquis of Rockingham, formed an opposition club with the rather worried blessing of the aging Newcastle. But the reconstituted Whig club suffered gravely from the lack of a strong leader in the House of Commons. For its part, the administration felt it necessary to push aggressive expansion and rule in the new American lands in order to justify its own peace terms. Volume 2, Chapter 42 Administering the Conquest with peace finally concluded and the French ousted from North America, the poor, hapless Acadian refugees in Massachusetts, totaling some 900, began the dangerous and difficult trek back to their beloved Acadia. Many died along the way, but the rest settled again in Acadia. Of course, there was no thought of returning to them their old lands and property. In the final irony, the Acadians who had been sent to France remained as unwanted refugees, pushed from pillar to post for twenty years by the government. On taking control of Florida from Spain, Britain divided it into two provinces, East Florida, centering in St. Augustine, and West Florida, with headquarters at Pensacola. To East Florida, the British sent, as governor, Major Francis Ogilvie, who made no attempt to conceal his complete contempt for Spaniards and Roman Catholics. So grim was the impact of Ogilvie that of the 3,000 Spanish inhabitants of St. Augustine, all but five persons decided to emigrate to Cuba. 
One of the notable events of British East Florida was the founding of the colony of New Smyrna, 30 miles north of Cape Canaveral on the Atlantic coast. The promoter, Dr. Andrew Turnbull, wangled a grant of 60,000 acres as well as a ship and a cash bounty from the Crown. In return, he transported over 1,400 emigrants from Greece, Italy, and English-occupied Menorca to the new homeland. The immigrants, expecting freedom in abundance, reaped the opposite. Seven years of cruel and dispiriting indentured servants, giving their forced labor to producing such goods as hemp, cotton, and indigo subsidized by England. The immigrants arrived in midsummer 1768. In a few weeks, they were ready to revolt. The August revolt was led by Carlo Forni and Clotha Corona. A brutal overseer who tried to stop the revolt was killed. The rebels, acting the part of their masters, plundered the property of the Menorcans of the colony, whose only crime was not joining the revolt. Governor James Grant's forces soon seized the rebels, but took four months to capture Forney and a band of his men. The governor decided to be relatively lenient with the mutineers, killing only the two leaders, Forney and Corona. Another forced labor settlement in East Florida was established at Ralston on the St. John's River and organized by the wealthy English landowner Dennis Roll. Roll secured a 20,000-acre grant from the government. When the vagrants, beggars, and debtors he had shipped to Ralston balked at the forced labor, Roll cut off their food supply. The workers then ran off to St. Augustine, where the government forcibly shipped them back to suffer Roll's dictates. They succeeded, however, in running away again. In addition, 89 more immigrants fled from Roll. Finally, Roll found the open sesame to success. He purchased openly enslaved Negroes, whom he was able to whip into a passable degree of productivity. What a former French Canada! After 1763, conquered Quebec was, to be sure, theoretically extended the blessings of English legal and representative institutions. But there was one very important catch. Roman Catholics would not be permitted to vote or to hold public office, and were even denied many protections of the law. Thus, the overwhelming majority of the French Quebecois were condemned to permanent subjection in their own land. The established French legal and judicial procedures were swiftly destroyed and English procedures installed in their place. As Catholics, French lawyers were even prohibited from trying cases and French citizens from serving on juries. Moreover, a nascent French-Canadian bourgeoisie was crushed by the English conquest. A few hundred English merchants who came as suppliers and contractors for the British Army of Occupation and royal bureaucrats in Canada, almost all new inhabitants, were able to monopolize the courts and juries and to carry on a systematic campaign of governmental exploitation of the people of Quebec. As in the case of conquered and battered Ireland, the Roman Catholic Church in Quebec was forced to become the fortress church of a suppressed ethnic as well as religious people. The church, 
and the country turned in upon itself, both stagnating under siege. Discrimination against Catholic voting was, in a sense, rendered harmless by the English failure to allow any representative assembly in Quebec. The first royal governor of Quebec, James Murray, and his successor, Guy Carleton, blocked the institution of any assembly. Meanwhile, in Louisiana, Spain was in no particular hurry to take over from France. The first Spanish governor, Antonio da Ulloa, finally arrived in Louisiana in 1766 and without difficulty managed quickly to alienate almost all groups in the population. Open rebellion and general disgust with government ensued. Things came to a head in 1768 when Spain imposed a thoroughly mercantilist decree excluding all but Spanish ships in Louisiana commerce and all trade but those to Spanish ports. Five hundred protesters signed a petition demanding the removal of Ulloa and the restoration of freedom of trade. At the end of October, New Orleans was captured by the French rebels. And Ulloa was finally sacrificed to the massive demands for his removal, the citizens of New Orleans poured into the street to laud the French and attack the Spaniards. The French government, in politic fashion, rejected a petition from the rebels pledging allegiance to France. Spain decided to crack down on the revolt and sent as the new governor, General Alejandro O'Reilly. Bringing 2,000 crack troops, O'Reilly characteristically invited the 12 leaders of the rebellion to meet him at his quarters, only to arrest them there and charge them with treason for rebelling against Spain. Five of the rebel leaders were promptly executed. At the end of two decades of aggressive war against France, the triumphant British government had succeeded in driving the French Empire completely off the North American continent and in replacing France largely by its own hegemony. By the early 1760s, the British rulers felt themselves to be masters of all they surveyed. Furthermore, the king and the various Tory factions had succeeded in using the war to achieve one of their long-cherished aims, the removal of the liberal, quasi-libertarian Whigs from the seats of ministerial power at home. With that, the major check upon the expansion of the power of the crown and its allies at home and throughout the empire, was at last extinct since the death of Queen Anne and the accession of the Hanoverian dynasty in the early part of the 18th century. The Whigs, headed by Robert Walpole and the Pelham brothers, had succeeded by crafty manipulation of Parliament in imposing a lengthy rule that had kept the Tory centralizers and imperialist expansionists under severe and unwelcome fetters. Now, in the early 1760s, the Tories and imperialists had at last succeeded in rooting out the Whig-Pelamite check rein on their goals and designs. In particular, in the colonies, the impatient king and the Tory factions were now free to scrap the policy of salutary neglect which Walpole and Newcastle had managed to impose on the reluctant crown and parliament. 
Enjoying the blessings of salutary neglect the American colonies had been able in the first half of the 18th century to ignore the de jure mercantilist restrictions and edicts of Great Britain and to flourish in virtual de facto independence from the mother country. It was high time, the British imperialist felt, to cast off the restrictions of salutary neglect and to bring the American colonies to heel. It was that grand design that was to precipitate the great conflagration of the American Revolution and to bring a new kind of nation into being.